the episode that time forgot. It's episode 101 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 101 of So Many Insane Plays, the episode that time forgot. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or themanadrain.com. This episode 101 is a long overdue effort to play catch up on episodes that were recorded throughout the last year and have become less able to stand on their own given the passage of time. In an effort to not completely abandon this content, we'll be presenting snippets and summaries of these shows, which will include the following Caldheim, Strixhaven, and importantly, Modern Horizons 2. So please forgive us this bit of effort to play catch up but enjoy some highlights from these episodes and see how they compare to your actual experience with these recent sets. So there are two cards we want to point out here. The first is less interesting. That's Skyclave Apparition. That's the one dub dub two two that when it comes in, it, uh, it removes the permanent. And then when it goes away, it gives them an illusion equal to its mana cost. It's a good removal white creature. And it has made some scant appearances in Vintage in some smaller events or leagues, but hasn't cracked our normal criteria, which is larger events, 32 players or more. Before you go on to the next one, Mm -hmm. what about Omnath? So our friend uh, Matt Murray tried some Omnath work on his stream. I know that much because he was having fun with that. But the only appearance that I see according to top eight decks, I'm sorry, TC decks with top eight appearances of Omnath was in an eight player paper event back in december christmas eve in fact that's kind of ironic so omnath is i think on the borderline of vintage playable but it's more of a more of a joke i would argue it hasn't otherwise (laughs) hasn't otherwise made an appearance but a card that i think is a real deal for vintage and has shown up in a couple different ways is archon of ameria archon of ameria is 2w creature archon flying each player can't cast more than one spell each turn non-basic lands your opponent's control enter the battlefield tapped and it's a two three this creature is is big time disruptive and yeah and it, it hasn't made a big splash uh, in terms of numbers but it has appeared in in a high quantity of smaller scale events and leagues in uh death and taxes white eldrazi humans fish kind of decks so kind of across yes. the board so kevin i want to st- spend a moment discussing it since we didn't get a chance to review this card. But before we do that, why don't you share the literal counts of appearances within the review period and remind our audience the, the <laughs> scope of the review period. Yeah, so we got to take a little bit of a historical lens here because this set was released on Magic Online in mid-October. The first tournament result we have with it, it's from a league, but it was on October 18. That's about when the clock starts. And so inside of the first m- three months of its time frame, which is, you know, the way we measure our that's, predictions. That's right. Yeah. Want, that's our frame. Yeah, that's right. Months. It looks back to a time period that has recently ended for us at the time of this recording, and that's January 18th. 
through that time period, there were a number of appearances of Archon of Ameria in vintage events, but none that met our normal threshold of 32 players or more. There were a handful of league appearances, a handful of prelim appearances, a couple of smaller paper events. So the card is clearly being played, and with some some success, but it hasn't cracked until just recently until the last week yeah of of january did it actually crack a larger scale event at which point it put two in the top eight of the vintage super qualifier which is a noteworthy spike yes and then the following the following few days (laughs) appeared in the vintage challenge right so so this has clearly appeared in top eights it just gets a zero according to our criteria (laughs) <laughs> that's right and had we been doing this <laughs> that review and this this, this follow-up on time it would have come back as a zero but has since proved itself uh, it's hard to imagine what our predictions would have been but yeah but kevin i, I think what's so laboratory arcane laboratory is a very powerful effect we overestimated deafening silence which is uh effectively an arcane lab variant right yeah as an enchantment um we, uh, what's the uh, what's the the white artifact creature that that is a yeah you're quasi- talking about the uh, rhetoric the eidolon of rhetoric which is an enchantment not an artifact no 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 the one that's um uh it's a it's a white colorless two two uh, opponents can only play one non artifact spell per turn ah yes the ether sworn canonist. Yes, the canonist. Yes. <laughs> this is one of the. That was the first instance in which we had Arcane Lab as a creature. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we have there are plenty of Arcane Lab effects. If this was just an Arcane Lab, and it is a more restrictive one, right? Because clearly Artifacts is a pretty big exception in Vintage. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> and for Deafening Silence, the exception is creatures, which is less so. But there are still lots of creatures in Vintage. A bug, Bugar <laughs> decks oh, are yes. quite prevalent. Um, this one does not have an exception. It's more of a strict arcane lab. But I think what really puts it over the top is the second disruptive feature, which Mm -hmm. is the feature that we've seen on Thalia 2.0, except it's even better because it's not just non-basics. It's all lands coming, opponents' lands coming to lay tap, right? Non-basic lands your opponent's control enter the battlefield tapped. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's basically that Thalia Thalia 2.0, Thalia 2.0 is probably its best ability on top of an arcane lab right that's pretty good (laughs) (laughs) yes it is i would have i feel confident saying i would have predicted non-zero because given my and the reason i say that is because i was quite high on deafening silence so i i tend to think that that these arcane lab effects are quite good Mm -hmm. um especially given you know the the fact that in vintage, we see a lot of Xerox, we see a lot of PO, you know that kind of thing. This is good in that. So I, I felt like this would have shown up pretty much. I probably would have predicted it in a bunch of cavern decks. I don't know that I would have per se saw this like boosting a new noble fish deck, but I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah. So to be clear, the deck you're referring to there, the one that spiked for Echo Baronin and Bozo. 2112 <laughs> in, in the super qualifier was a bant fish deck featuring there's some variants in there's lists but but both of them were playing a full four set of archon of Ameria as well as noble hierarchs and tarmogoyfs and other typical players in a bant context like swords to plowshares and okos and collector oofs lavinia azorius renegade a few other things 
so yeah it, it's a this particular deck is quite the surprise in my eyes i'm i'm right there with you and i would not have expected this i would not have been as as high as you would have been i think on this card at face value just because one of my go-to responses to a new card is where does this fit and right. uh, we would have talked a lot about white eldrazi at that time yes. i'm sure yes we would have <laughs> and, uh, and this card's good for that in fact we're gonna we're gonna talk about another card here today with kaldheim that's gonna bring up a similar conversation um and so i'm i'm not sure i would have predicted a non-zero number for this even though it's right on that edge and and even though thalia 2.0 has seen play i just would have fallen back on well white eldrazi is not very good right now but Obviously, I was a bit mistaken, at least after 3.2 months of time has elapsed. <laughs> right. So the, the the situational irony here is that you would have probably won in <laughs> terms right. of our chits. But, but yeah, I, that's right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so keep your eye out for Archon of Ameria and take a look. If you, if you haven't seen it already, take a look at that Bant deck that uh, did so well in the top eight of the Super Qualifier. Well, Steve, we've reached the end of the cards that have been uh, recommended to us by our audience for Kaldheim, combined with those cards that I've uh, scanned myself preliminarily. This set is clearly, clearly a return to a an alternate definition of power in Magic, and as such, does not have as many cards that are relevant in the Vintage context, as compared to several sets in, in the years 2019 and 2020, where we had a raft of things to discuss. Uh, R&D has clearly reined themselves in a little bit with this set. And, <laughs> well, yeah. it's, it's worth noting, we I'm didn't review how many cards signals. here. And a couple of the ones we did review were incredibly complex because one of the things they did in this set is replace power with complexity. And you and I don't need to tease out the veracity of that here. It's, it's a fun thing to debate, I think, but... That's not my point. My point is that I think they're pulling different levers with this set, and the the dramatic increase in complexity is one that they pulled very hard. And I personally enjoy some of that, but at the same time, yeah. for for people like you and me who have been reviewing magic sets for decades now, literally, um, the uh, the simple truth is is that um, <laughs> complexity can be fatiguing in its own unique way, and. I I just hope that this pendulum continues to swing a little bit. That's all. I don't want to I don't want to return to 2019 and 2020 levels of power anytime soon. Yeah, we we But I <laughs> I I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um but I understand that other people don't. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Um you know, look, we see oscillations, right? We, the original Theros was a very down yeah. period after some busted stuff. So, you know, we, we will go through these oscillations over time. It'll happen. We just have to roll with it. And for vintage <laughs> players, there's plenty of toys in the sandbox. So, you know, from recent years that still haven't been fully, you know, explored or matriculated, however you want yeah, to put it. Yeah, and uh, so I there's no cry better, too much about uh, that. representation of that than just recent events like the the Super Qualifier and the, the most recent challenges, which just have new and exciting technology in them. I mean, we talked about it with the Archon of Ameria at the top of this show. Yep. There's, there continues to be growth and development and movement and shifting and reaction within the vintage metagame. 
It's just, it tends to happen on small scales, small tweaks here and there, and you have to kind of look close for it. But I still find it very satisfying. It's one of my favorite things about playing in Eternal Format is watching the small things shift over time. I love that kind of thing. So in summation for Kaldheim, we only predicted play for a single card. And it was Weathered Runestone. And we predicted a, 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 yeah, a vanishingly small amount of play at that. with one for you Barely. and two for me. And we acknowledged all the ways in which, if it sees play, it will be pretty marginal. Other than that, I don't expect Kaldheim to make a big splash in the format, but we'd love to hear from our audience if, uh, if any of you think we missed something. been a little while since we recorded steve and uh i know many of our audience have still probably remembered the epic episode 100 session that <laughs> they may finally have gotten through to get to this point but <laughs> but there is a bit of important news since last time we recorded we've had another unbanning in vintage which is you know there's not too many of those these days it's pretty <laughs> historic in fact but it's one that we've all expected and is um as well, I would argue that it's already long overdue, even though it is the most recent banning, right? Yes. So tell our audience what happened. Well, Loris was finally unbanned as of, I think, February 15th of 2021. So it happened after our last recording, which was our set, our um, year in review. But it was something that we called for, right? I mean, it was the biggest story of the year, I think, right? For 2020. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. The banning, the entrance of these companions and then the banning, subsequent banning, because there are only three cards banned in Vintage um, for power level reasons um, or logistical reasons, and this was was basically the only card that's legitimately banned for power reasons. And they freed it after the companion change, at rules change. which we Well, not after, actually, because the companion rules change occurred effective June 1st. 2020 <laughs> is yeah. when that happened. Yeah. So you actually had seven months in 2021 and a month and a half in, I'm sorry, seven months in 2020 and a month and a half in 2021. So eight and a half months of <laughs> basically non-functional companions being banned. Um, but they listened to reason, you know, it took nearly nine months, but we got there and Loris <laughs> came out and my impression, Kevin, I don't know what your impression was. My impression was that people enjoyed meddling around with it, but ultimately decided it really wasn't broken. Well, absolutely not broken. And I agree, there was a bit of a flurry of Luris play, but it landed, uh, and as I would have expected it to some degree, which is just as a role player in a few certain decks, the right, the right tool for the right job, mostly in breach decks, where it, you know, it's, it's very valuable from both a primary plan, but also a backup plan standpoint. And I love that, right? That's that's where we want yeah. that kind of card. That's exactly the kind of thing. And so the cost increase has, in the vintage context at least, I think, uh, in the vintage context the at card. least, landed it right in the right spot, right? I yeah. think it hit the sweet spot. <laughs> uh, it, that spot may have been you know, too strong a medicine for the other companions, I think. But that's for Loris, true. for Loris, <laughs> it was the right dosage. <laughs> 
you know what? You're right. And I should have probably stated it that way myself. Luris is far and away in the vintage context more powerful than any of the other companions. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, uh, Lutri, but <laughs> it's a testament to how the companions impacted all the various eternal formats differently. That in order to get the right dosage, you had to put Luris at that cost, and that basically pushes everyone else out. Yeah. And I don't think, and this is not me saying that I think they should develop more companions that are at Luris's level to make them playful or playable, but it would be interesting to see of the next however many companions we get, five to ten would be my guess, in some future trip to Ikoria, it would be interesting to see if they can thread that needle and make another one that is just the right kind of niche playable and vintage. We'll have to see, and I look forward to that time. Yeah, me too. I I actually welcome our companion overlords. So I'm not I'm not fearful. You can't be fearful. <laughs> right? Well, because I mean, even people who were very upset with the companions have to admit it's all worked out right all right in the end, right? I and, I would argue that in, in the eternal formats that's mostly true. I, I think there's probably some people out there in the standard format who are really tired of Yorion, but <laughs> I can't speak for those people necessarily. I've just seen that sentiment. But for our close circles, I would agree with you. And not only that, I think we've learned something valuable. We've gained insight into mm-hmm. the nature of the game, mm-hmm. right? That the Very the sideboard so. slot is not nearly as valuable as we thought in terms of in terms of the uh, the advantage of being able to have a guaranteed additional card. Yeah, so I completely agree. And undoubtedly, the next round of companions will be developed with all of that in mind. Hopefully, they can do us right and get a nice variety and none of them will be too dominant. Yep. Yeah. Well, that brings us then to the primary feature of every one of our set reviews and that's our prior report card. This time we're here to talk about how we did for Kaldheim. Now, we did not predict much play for Kaldheim cards. I mean, I would argue that is an understatement. There is only a single card on our list that we did predict any play for. And that means for the likes of Burgi, God of Storytelling, Ravenform, Masked Vandal, Redain, God of the Worthy, and Tybalt's Trickery. The results were zeros across the board with one moderate asterisk. Now, this doesn't... Um... Now, when we discussed this in our prior episode, and we've been evaluating this as we go here, we've lost access to the, the literal number of players in vintage tournaments, and indeed all Magic Online tournaments, through our normal channels, like tcdex.net like mtggoldfish.com we can no longer say with certitude that a tournament is above 32 players so as we discussed in prior episodes we have a little bit of a needle to thread when it comes to prelims vintage prelims tend to be small but have been above 32 and we don't have a way to really measure that except to estimate based on player records i mention all of this because there was one prelim victory on the part of a mono red burgy god of storytelling deck and it was it's a really cool deck. I, I encourage our audience to take a look at it. That is the winning deck by actually Mem King. They call it Red Prison on TC decks. On MTG Goldfest, it just goes by the nonplus um, moniker R. <laughs> but this is a painter deck with Magus of the Moon and Blood Moons in the main and a copy of uh, Experimental Frenzy, four copies of Burgey God of Storytelling and four Goblin Engineers, which is which is noteworthy. So it's a pretty cool deck. I encourage you to take a look at it. <clears throat> Obviously, Burgi is not uh, storming throughout Vintage these days, but 
this event shows that she has some some legs under her. Now, there is a single card that we did predict some play for, and that card was Weathered Runestone. If you recall, we had quite Remind the, us what that is. Yeah, we had quite the um, the conversation about Weathered Runestone because it's the card that basically recapitulates Grafdigger's Cage almost in its entirety, and we talked about uh, the comparison and the differences there. But it's basically the two-mana Grafdigger's Cage, and we discussed at length how there are plenty of four Grafdigger's Cage decks out there that might want access to a fifth one in certain configurations, certain sideboards, constructions, right? Certain plans involving Karns and that kind of thing. Well, when it comes down to it, Steve, I predicted two, you predicted one, but the actual was zero. Zero Weathered Rune Stones. That, that's really remarkable to me. Um, I Go ahead. My thoughts are that the, our observations are still applicable, and in an environment where Grafdigger's Cage becomes even a little bit more important, all of our commentary and thoughts about it could still come back to the fore. But I have to say that I think the the environment has just shifted that much, that little bit much away from Grafdigger's Cage's importance recently, and so that undermines the playability of the Weathered Runestone at two mana. Hmm. I think it still has a place. Fair enough. Yeah, I would still own one. I think it's important to pick one up because you don't want to be like a vintage champs trying to find a fifth Graft Digger's Cage and you can't find one. <laughs> you know what? That's a really good point. And as the uh, author of the, uh, what was the old title of your uh, your article series about all the cards you needed to own for vintage? Oh, the vintage checklist? <laughs> That's yeah. right. That's right. As the author of that, I would take your advice on that front. Unfortunately, in practice, what's that? What that means is zero Kaldheim cards seeing vintage play. Wow! Yeah, okay. couple of close calls, couple of noteworthy um, smaller tournament performances like Burgie, but um, Kaldheim just did not have the splash that that uh, we would have liked. I predict greater than zero play for Strixhaven cards, though. So let's get into it. Yes. All right, let's move on to one of these Prismari spells, Expressive Iteration. This card, Steve, I think is something, well, it doesn't cost one mana, but it really does come close to the kind of situationally better, situationally worse kind of cantrips that we're always looking for. And I think this is very close to a kind of design that you and I have alluded to in prior discussions about cantrips. Now, the two mana cost is going to steeply limit its usability in vintage but i would argue that vintage is the format that is the most likely to be able to make good effective use of this exile in play clause yeah where other formats i mean everyone who's seen this card and evaluated it has quickly evaluated the fact that in non-accelerated formats you want to play this on turn three so that the card you exile can be a land so that you can make your third hand drop yeah thereby making this a, a, a draw two effectively right Uh, In the vintage context, we well know that you don't have to wait till turn three to do that. You could do this on turn one and have a reasonable chance, depending on deck construction, of finding a a free spell that you could just play that turn. Yeah, especially in an opal style deck. This card's design is funny because at first I'm like, okay, this looks like strategic planning. And then the last sentence, last (laughs) clause and sentence is like a a wild turn. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, completely agree. uh, the the issue I have with the blue red mana cost is that it immediately makes reminds me of Limduel's Vault at blue black, mm-hmm. which is just so much more manipulative mm. than this. 
That's a really good point. Yeah. You know, it's instant and it manipulates basically your whole library. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but Limduel's Vault's never going to give you two cards like this one is right away. No, it won't, but it will get you closer to winning the game. Yeah. You know, it'll get you the restricted cards that matter. I don't know. That's a very good point. You're absolutely right. Yeah, that seems to me to be an issue. And as we've discussed a number of times before, but it's worth reiterating, double designated costs like this are deceptively higher than you think they are in the vintage context because yes. uh, your off-color moxin on the whole don't pay for this, right? Even though we're in accelerated format, you could have five moxin or the lotus in your deck. Well, lotus is a bad example, but your your mox pearl, emerald, and jet don't help you cast this card at all. So the kind of accelerant you're used to in vintage don't always apply. That means as art, you know, the the rubric that we've used in the past for double designated cards like this is they tend to cost about two and a half mana in practice. Yeah. That's yet another reason to be skeptical of this card. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just can't shake the notion that the, while you could construct a deck pretty reliably to get two cards out of this on a consistent basis, and it wouldn't be that difficult. wouldn't be that much of a a reach from current Xerox style deck construction. But even the at mana two mana, co- that's just not worth it. Yeah. yeah. Two, two and a half mana, rather. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. I could see a number of decks constructed. Uh, Deathrite Shaman decks, for example, could probably make pretty effective use of this, right? You go land Shaman. You go turn two, tap my land, tap my Shaman, cast this. Re- can reliably get a land drop or and or a mox. And or if I've already got the land in hand, I can, I can exile a preordain and cast that, right? But that's just... There's not a lot of decks in Vintage right now that want that kind of curve, that are looking for that exact flow, even though you could reliably get a Knight's Whisper out of this that way. Yeah, I think this card is cool, and I think your allusion to strategic planning is is pretty apt, right? If this card had existed when Vintage discovered strategic planning all those years ago, that would have been awesome. <laughs> what year was that, 2006? No, uh, it was um, 2008. 2008, excuse me. Um, yeah, I think at that time, this card would have been pretty exciting for Vintage. But in the modern era, not so much. Agreed. Yeah, I'm going to go zero, unfortunately, in my opinion. What do you say? Uh, agreed. I'm, I'm at zero. Yeah. Too bad. Fun card. Good design. I like it. Well, here's a card where, where the floor is by definition, greater than zero. We're talking about Sedgemore Witch. So you get Tarpans out of this. Steve, obviously, this card, you know, another variant of the many of growing creatures, right? Uh, it, it looks a lot like a Monastery Mentor, if you if you squint. <laughs> right? Yeah. A, a three-mana one that generates more smaller creatures. But all the knobs and levers are totally different on this card than on Monastery Mentor, right? Yes. It's, it's yeah. a three-two, so it's larger than a Mentor, but okay it's larger than the mentor on paper but mentor had the prowess uh is menace so it's it's much harder to block in the vintage context you know creature counts tend to be low and so this one will get through a lot more especially against opposing planeswalkers that ward ability means um you know you you can still kill it with a lightning bolt but you're going to take three damage and then the creatures that you get out of this thing are pests and that probably doesn't matter a lot but in certain matchups and like against workshops, for example, if you get two or three pests out of that thing, that might be a turn worth of life for you to stabilize against yes. a deck that's trying to beat you down. So 
you know, where to begin. Well, let me start with that last point. So what are the ways that, that your opponent, a workshop playing opponent, tries to deal with the tokens that are generated either through a pyromancer or through a mentor? Well, typically it's going to be with the, you know, walking ballista type nonsense, right? <laughs> yep. Well, that that still will, will work to clear the attacker off the table, but it won't work to prevent, you know, the control of the ballista from actually suffering damage. So there is a kind of inherent resilience here that just does not exist, certainly not for young Pyromancer or any of the other, I'm going to call them the horizontally growing threats. Mm -hmm. Um, There was some of that for Mentor because you can always just pump, right? Um, But typically a Ballista controller wouldn't fire a Ballista out there if they weren't fairly certain that you know, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to get prowess. So, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. This card, I think there's a kind of resilience built in here that's a little bit subtle that um, just we haven't seen before. I completely agree. The, the punishment for particularly walking ballista here is real. Like, they have to pay three life for both of their activations to kill this witch. Right? Because each one is an individual target. So if you're trying to ballista this thing, you're going to pay six life to kill it. And any kind of deck that is. Ancient tombs. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, exactly. Uh, Yeah. I mean, shops is sometimes on the razor's edge from a life standpoint. And inherently, any deck that's got Sedgemore Witch in it is probably the sort of deck that is. So that means you're putting double pressure on them in two different directions. They pay life to remove this thing assuming they're doing it with ballista and you're gaining life from them having to run over your pests and the pressure on that in both of those directions you know contributes in the same fashion if you're the sort of deck who's putting sedgemore witch together with any other creatures like say tarmogoyf collector oof right well oof is changes the whole equation but something like goyf something like deathright shaman that really pushes you pretty far in the direction of having time to stabilize having time and or putting additional pressure on them. It's very realistic that a workshop player could get down to a life total that's so precarious that they can never functionally remove a Sedgemore Witch aside from attacking and blocking, at which point the menace becomes really useful, right? How how funny is trying to play... What was the... Um, oh, what's the black, black one... Uh, Instant that you have to pay five life. Oh, cast. dismember. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, yes. Just, <laughs> oh, dismembering this hurts badly. Very yeah. badly. Especially if, if the dismember gets countered. That's a really, you know, really good point. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, 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 you got to keep in mind that that this ward trigger is going to go onto the stack, and then it's going to have to resolve, meaning their life total goes down by three, and then you put your force of will against their dismember. Oh, oh, yeah. That's ouch. It's like a 10-point swing. <laughs> oh, that's bad. Oh, that's bad. Oh, and by the way, you got a pest for your force of will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I think this card's really interesting. Like, is it Monastery Mentor? No, but we only get to play one of those, right? This card has a what lot do you mean of. We only get to play. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, yeah. This card has a no, lot of fun knobs and levers. Um, a 
Also, this card can, again, just buy you that little bit of extra time against something like a Bizarre deck, right? Any deck that's trying to beat you down with Venge Vines, and you put a Pest in front of a Venge Vine, well, you do that a couple of times, and you've bought yourself maybe one more Venge Vine hit. Or, or probably more accurately, one more Hollow One hit. That kind of thing can add up quickly as well. Another thing that's interesting about this is if your opponent tries to use a sweeper, you you don't just lose everything out of the deal, right? So, you know, there are a number of different, like, earthquake-type cards. I forget all of them. There's the there's the cycling one. There's the uncounterable one. There's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we haven't seen them in a while. Um, you know, yeah, there are a lot of pyroclasms available yeah. in Vintage. Yeah, you still get some value out of it in terms of you gain the life back when they die. Yeah. Which is nice. They're not going to survive. But. And those kind of effects aren't that common in Vintage anymore. I mean, the, the, the simple truth is is that people are still pretty reliant on their Lightning Bolts and their Abrupt Decays and their like Eliminates yeah. to, to clear creatures. So this ward is going to trigger a lot if someone's trying to clear the way. I remember, in, I think it was in one of the seasons of the VSL, like Pyromancer was so ubiquitous that people were playing the main deck Cycling Wrath. What was that one? Talking, or it might have been in the sideboard, but people were, some people, I think Froelich might even had it main deck. Are you talking about the one that cycles for one damage? Uh, yes, the red one? Everything takes, yeah, everything takes yeah, one damage. I think. Um, I can't remember now. I'd have to open Magic Online and look at my collection and find it. But anyway. Um, hold on. I'm going to find it. You're talking about Slice and Dice. No, there was another one. There, it, you know, it was Slice and Dice. I think there was one... I think there's another one. Okay. It's okay. <laughs> well, at any rate, your point is is that when, when Mentor is at its peak, people are hungry for ways to sweep. Yes. And the uncounterable ones, especially, either the two mana or the uncounterable ones are at a premium. Yes. I so I agree with you that Monastery Mentor is superior. Here's the question: Is this better than Young Pyromancer? To me, that's the critical question. Yeah. Well, and I would argue that in a in certain iterations of a bug deck, then the answer is implicitly yes, right? Uh, yeah. Granted, lots of bug builds recently have been pretty creature heavy, right? And also, bug has often had as a late red for dread py- dread uh, dread or yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I would agree. I I think this being a black creature gives you some slot flexibility with certain configurations of otherwise Xerox style decks, right? I'm looking back toward the old Grixis Pyromancer decks that had um, cobble therapies, <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I had a soft spot for those old Grixis decks, but that's what I'm talking about is more creature light Grixis decks. I could see a, you know a Grixis style build where the only creatures are some witches and some Dreadhorde Arcanists, right? And you're a little more spell-heavy. And, yeah. and Dreadhorde Arcanist and Sedgemore Witch are best friends, very, naturally. Yeah, very right? nice. <laughs> and so there's something to be said for that style of build. Granted, that kind of deck might be a little ill-positioned in the metagame at the moment, but be that as it may, I think there's something there. And I'm also trying to... 
I'm trying to rack my brain for any way you can buy a benefit out of the life gain that isn't just the kind of racing benefits we talked about. Can you think of any application for a tiny bit of incremental life gain that we're not thinking about? And I'm not talking about necropotence or anything like that. I'm just... Yeah. I I can't think of a life gain synergy. Uh, Yeah, naturally. You and I, you know, you and I played uh, with Brian DeMar's that old Lotus Cobra deck (laughs) that had necro in it. You remember that? This card would would have been fun in that deck. (laughs) (laughs) No, there's probably not much to the life gain synergy that I, not that I can think of right now, but you know, you could dust off that old young pyromancer synergy. Bolas's Citadel. Okay. Okay. There you go. And I mean, it's necro adjacent, of course, but yeah. Yeah. By all means. And uh, this card doesn't have a lot of synergy with Tinker-style decks, right? The card Tinker still triggers it, of course, but that style of decks with high artifact counts don't play into this the way they do for Mentors, unfortunately. Okay. But it does have good synergy with your Night's Whisper-style decks, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about if you're talking about a deck that has three plus or minus one Sedgemore witches in it, then you're incentivized to be a five Mox deck, which plays nicely with your Knights Whisper technology, and so your Knights Whispers are good before and after the Witch, which is a nice synergy, and you could still be a pretty low creature count deck. Granted, Knights Whisper and Dreadhorde Arcanist aren't really friends, unfortunately, but you could, that's not a deal breaker. I don't know. I feel I feel like we're we're beating around the bush at this point. I think this card is absolutely vintage playable. I think it's highly synergistic with a lot of things that a lot of different vintage decks are trying to do, right? Three and four color bug decks, the older style Grixis Xerox decks, um Esper PO, right? Esper PO might be interested in this. Granted you've already got a mentor there for that deck, but that's still a thing. Um, I just think there's a lot of potential homes and there's a lot of baked in synergy already and you don't have to reach very far to get even a little bit of extra value. And in some matchups, like we said with that chops matchup, right? I, as a workshop player, I would really hate to see one of these on the other side of the table. <laughs> Agreed. Let me ask you, how much play is Young Pyromancer currently having in Vintage? Very little. Very little. I'm going to do a quick... Yeah, I'm going to do a quick scan here of Young Pyromancer on TC decks. My prediction is it's pretty light. Yeah, I mean, it it was uh, fourth place in a challenge back in March, but then the the last performance prior to that was in January, and that was only once. Yeah, then some league play back at the end of last year. Yeah, it's very scant. It's definitely fallen out of favor. What do you think about this card out of the sideboard in any archetypes? Like, um, do you want this kind of effect as an alternate angle in Doomsday in any matchups? Ooh, that's interesting. You're super spell-heavy already. I think the problem is, would you ever want out of the sideboard this over the opposition? Yeah, I I don't know the answer to that well enough. I, I I don't have enough experience with the opposition agent to say. I would probably think not. That's fair. You you know what, though? I think this... What's nice about... I think the... One of the features of this card that we that you said near the top that we shouldn't 
lose sight of is the ability, the menace ability really does allow this to pick off uh, planeswalkers in a, in a blue duel. So yeah. I'm just thinking, like, imagine your, your opponent's playing Bug and they have Oko, right? And they just played Oko and they put in a token. That is a real problem. But Sedgewood, the Sedgemore Witch deals with that very nicely. That's a good point. And the menace inherently makes your removal more effective, right? Let's say you're yes. you're playing against Bug and your opponent goes turn one death right, and you go land mox mox Sedgemore Witch or something. You know, it's a really good start for you. They go turn to Tarmogoyf. And now you're like, oh great. But wait a second. Now this lightning bolt that kills Deathrite Shaman means my Sedgemore Witch uh, just gets in through that Goyf, and I made a pest yes. from my bolt, which chumps that Goyf. Their Goyf yes. is, becomes neutralized, even though it's still sitting in play. Yeah. Yeah. That That's really good. I think Bug is really good, and so that's a very good interaction right there. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah, so I guess... That sounds I'm- to me like a Grixis deck. Yeah, very well. It could be. I guess what I'm coming to the conclusion here is that Sedgemore Witch's abilities, while it is ostensibly a go-wide effect, which is why we're comparing it to Mentor and Pyromancer, it really all just kind of comes down to dominating creature combat. Like, the yes. menace means you get in, the pests yes. chump and gain you life and win races, yes. and the ward means if you try to remove it, you're losing the race. It's, it's all just, wow. this really dominates creature combat. And oh, by the way, it plays into uh, you know existing functionality in Xerox style decks. Wow, and and also the, um, I mean the tokens just will even though you know they don't cause your opponents to lose life, they will drain your opponent's life over time, such that eventually <laughs> it will be too difficult for your opponent to ever remove the witch. At some point, that is some point actually above three, it's oh, just yeah. too dangerous. Yeah. It's too dangerous for them to even target your witch. I mean, that's a really good point. And, and the functional cutoff point is probably somewhere closer to four or five, you know, what with fetch lands yes. and force of wills and things and vintage. Oh, and your own deathrite shamans too, if you, if you build that way, right? This wow. plus a deathrite shaman races really fast. It races yeah. really fast. This is very interesting. Yeah. So it doesn't help you against it doesn't help you against certain matchups like it's no good against Doomsday of course but most creatures aren't um, and it, it's good against your creature heavier opponents like your bug kind of matchups especially the sort of bug deck that has a Tarmogoyf in there at the same time I think it's a, le- a little actually weak against your Dreadhorde Arcanist style more heavy control like Jess guy kind of opponents. Yes, it's going to be a pain for them, but not so much so that they're not willing to just invest a bolt in this. Because the pests, wow. the role of the pests in chumping like a Dreadhorde Arcanist, it, it doesn't, it's not effective. It's not, it's, it's not the access in which you want to fight those kind of matchups. <clears throat> so I don't think it's a gangbusters in Vintage right now. But anytime a, a Tarmogoyf is playable in Vintage, this card is inherently a good... It matches up well <laughs> against it, right? Yeah. Imagine uh, if I, you could... Imagine if you could... Uh, this, how, how does this... How does this make you feel against those bat Bant Archon decks? Magecraft is inherently diminished when the Archon's in play. But this thing hits harder than the Archon. I don't know. That's really interesting. 
You're not, this thing's not maximized when there's an Archon in play, obviously. But I can't shake the notion that I'd rather be controlling the Witch than the Archon in that matchup. Right? Yeah, I would rather be on the Witch side, I think. I guess that has a lot to do with the other elements of the equation. What other sideboard cards you have for that matchup, how much removal you've got. Yeah, as soon as you put a fatal push in the equation on your side, the Sedgemore Witch just really takes over. It's pretty sick. How good is this card with Lightning Bolt? <laughs> like Highly synergistic. <laughs> give yeah. me a break. It's just, it makes your Lightning Bolt so threatening. Like, like you said, imagine you're at, imagine you're at seven life. And this is sitting on the other side of the table. And just this. No, no army of pests or anything. Just this. And they turn it sideways at you. And you look at that. I don't know. Let's call it swords to plowshares. You look at a swords to plowshares in your hand. No, better yet. Abrupt decay. You look at abrupt decay in your hand. And you think, I've got a guaranteed kill on this thing. But it's going to put me to four. And they play <laughs> bolts. And I've got force of yes. will. I mean, can I afford to have this fight even from seven? You have to make, yeah, you have to make decisions all the time about risk benefit at every point. Yeah. So. And because of menace, I can't just throw down one creature to chump this, right? My my lone collector oof or whatever it might be doesn't help. Even my lone tarmogoyf doesn't help. Guys, really good at creature combat. <laughs> I'm, just always I'm very want impressed it in those with those mid-range matchups, yeah. All right, so We've agreed that this card is playable. We've agreed that it probably has uh, uh, several iterations of homes. You know, it doesn't go in every deck or every black deck, but it still has a lot of places in vintage. Uh, I'm I'm skeptical how good it's going to be against something like a bizarre deck. I mean, it, let's put it this way: once you've passed the threshold of your necessary hate for a bizarre matchup, then this card is a, is a decent card to have as a turn two or three play. Once you've crested the initial wave of your Grafter's Cage Wasteland Leyline Package or whatever it might be. So I guess at that point, if they've got a hollow one in play, I'm going to be pretty happy to have a Sedgemore Witch to hold that thing. <sighs> wow. Yeah. So from that standpoint, I guess it's, it's decent against the hollow one decks. No. This is, I mean, <laughs> and also against Dredge, I mean, it's going to start, it's going to gain you life while it's blocking. It may actually pull yeah. you out of some, some tight spots. Wow. And depending on the your construction of your deck, you can lean your anti-graveyard hate more in the spell direction vis-a-vis Ravenous Trap, for example, yes. and, and Surgical Extraction to play into the synergy with Magecraft. Very nice. Yeah. This is an impressive card. This card's pretty I, cool. I like it. I welcome it into the vintage play. I, I loved, I'd love to see what kind of decks, Xerox decks can get to utilize this card as another... I did. I I guess I really wasn't sure we'd see another three mana horizontal playable creature. <laughs> well, when you After- you pull when you pull enough levers, you know you tack on <laughs> menace and this ward business and the tokens you get have abilities <laughs> the of their own. Yeah, this, the 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 sum is greater than the oh, the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah, <laughs> I mean. Monastery Mentor still gets the prize for being universally applicable it's based the, on card type the and the craziest. geometric growth, right? <laughs> yeah, but. Head to head, I mean, it's it's hard to do yeah. a head to head analysis, but both sitting in play, looking at each other, the Sedgemore Witch can win that race. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's not a, it's, it's not, not given. A me- no, that's interesting. Yeah, because because you can get 
the witch can get damage when it's a stalemate. The witch can actually get in. Yeah. You know, obviously it's tricky, but <laughs> you're right. It's tricky, but I agree. It, it, you know, all things being equal, the the Sedgemore witch has some advantages. All right, let's try to put some numbers down, Steve. I I'm feeling non-zero on this, but I'm not feeling a high number, right? I, this I feel like this card's going to be a slow burn. It's not obviously taking over. It's not obviously upsetting too many matchups. But I have to believe that some bug or bug adjacent kind of decks are going to try this yeah. and be successful. The, the thing that that makes me so optimistic about this card compared to the other cards we reviewed is that it just slots into so many existing concepts already. Yes. You know, you can play it in Bug, you can play it in Grixis, you can play it, you know, put one of those into the into the Breach deck, which already has black. I mean, just, this has a lot of potential. Um, yeah. Yeah, I feel the same. You could, you even, you even floated the notion of putting into a Doomsday sideboard, which isn't crazy, right? If you want to go a different route, if you're, if you're sick of running into archive traps, why not play this, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, for, for a deck that's already playing a 2B creature in its sideboard in multiples, like, yeah. it's not that much of a reach. You could dig obviously Ritual this out, too. And, yeah, they and, obviously and, f- follow dramatically different roles, but there's still something, there's still something there, I think. Yeah, I'm feeling, it, I'm feeling a 2 for myself. It's really? a pretty conservative number. That's, that's way lower than I was thinking. I'm going to go 9. Wait, 9? Are you kidding? Yes. No. Wow, that's... Wow, that's funny. You and I were reaching dramatically different conclusions here. I feel like this is going to be a much slower burn. I'm I'm interested. I'm I'm really intrigued by the fact that you that you're feeling like a nine. That's pretty exciting, actually. I just don't feel like this has the power to upset quite as many matchups in the format. But I do think the card is pretty cool. I just see I just see a playable card. So, so Steve, I want to talk about one more card, and it's not for vintage playability. This is more of a you know, an homage to, well, it's an homage to the Library of Alexandria, but it's you and me, an homage to, you know, our predilection to do old set reviews. I'm talking about the Biblioplex. <laughs> it's a land. It says tap, tad, colorless. That's nice. Here's, here's the money, though. Two tap, colon. Look at the top card of your library. If it's an instant or sorcery card, you may reveal it and put it into your hand. If you don't, put it into your hand, you may put it into your graveyard. Now, here's here's the key. Here's the homage part. <laughs> Activate only if you have exactly zero or seven cards in your hand. <laughs> this is so cool. <laughs> right? By the way, could you imagine if library activated if you have zero cards in hand? Oh, you- can you imagine the Masonette <laughs> rack balance deck that I would have built out of that? <laughs> Jeez. This is cool. Yeah, I love it. And so... um. <laughs> I love this card. It's cool. It's good design. It's not Library of Alexandria. It's not vintage no, playable. No. I don't know why they decided to put the two activation on it. Honestly, it seems pretty safe. Otherwise, I mean, it's probably a little too good in standard, I guess, if you don't have the activation. But the the thing I like about this is, is, is here's the thing. In most contexts, if you had seven cards in your hand, this ability is not worth activating. Like two mana and tap, it's effectively three mana to just scry. Yes, you could okay. be draw a card, but you know a lot of the time it's just going to be like a scry because of the mana investment. You're saying that's right. Yeah. The, the three mana investment, like it's it's like a speculative Jame Day Tome activation, right? Yeah. And granted, True. you're not losing too much equity, but my my point is this. And LSV made me aware of this on one of his podcasts, limited resources or constructed resources. I don't remember which. 
the writer at the end of this about having exactly zero or seven, the zero is the functional part of that rider, right? If you have zero cards in hand, you want to be tapping this. That's that's value. Like you want to you want to be doing that. If you got seven cards in hand, you got better things to do than activate this. But the the number seven being on this card is almost entirely just an homage to Library of Alexandria. And this being the biblioplex, you know, being a, a recapitulation of that card. That's the thing I love about this card is they didn't have to have the seven on there. It's a completely frivolous thing. Like, why would this work this way? <laughs> right? You want this card when your hand's empty to draw cards. When you got seven, you got better things to do. The seven is almost entirely just that, and I love them for it. And it's and it's a really beautiful, you know, reinterpretation of the library. With little, did you notice the lights are like little lotuses? If you zoom no, in on, if you zoom in on the art, yeah, the the lights on top of the poles are are like lotuses. This card's cool. I think it's really great. I might put one in an EDH deck here or there, but uh, otherwise, I just love the homage. You know, it's this kind of stuff that keeps me coming back. <laughs> As we do with new sets, we like to talk about mechanics first, and ho, oh, Nelly, mechanics. So <laughs> Modern Horizons is a, just a smorgasbord of mechanics. <laughs> there are very few, arguably any, uh, new ones, however. But I do want to point out a few things that are new flavors on things that we've seen before, but notable new flavors. One of them is... A very cool thing, very relevant for our audience, very fun for vintage players, lowercase and uppercase. And that is the creation of Garth One-Eye. Why do I mention Garth One-Eye? Well, Garth One-Eye has an ability that puts a token copy of a card into play. And you might say, well, that's not that unusual. Cards have made token copies of things before. Yes, except Garth One-Eye specifically references five cards that aren't in Modern Horizons. Five cards that haven't been in, well, most magic sets for decades. Because Garth says, choose a card name that hasn't been chosen from among Disenchant, Brain Geyser, Terror, Shivan Dragon, Regrowth, and Black Lotus. Create a copy of the card with the chosen name. You may cast the copy. This is, in my opinion, awesome. There's a number of things about this that are awesome. Garth is a, by the way, I didn't say, Garth is a Wooburg 5-5 legendary human wizard. I mean, he's designed to be a commander. He's designed to be fun. But the thing here is, is that now any player who has access to Modern Horizons cards, and in formats where they're legal, of course, gets to play with Black Lotus again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is, in my opinion, fantastic. And it has made so many people excited about this card. It's it's sort of like the... uh the highlights of our 100th episode. <laughs> you know, it's, it really all is. Alpha, it's all the best picks from Alpha. <laughs> <laughs> it's really fantastic. I love it. And and it, it spreads the gamut, right? You've got you've got a, re- a couple of removal spells, Disenchant and Terror, great removal spells. You've got a card draw spell, Brain Geyser, which as we discussed in our review, you know, unparalleled especially in the Alpha context, but the progenitor for so many other things. 
And you've got regrowth, which is obviously, again, the progenitor for so many things. Ironically, you're legal in more formats than you might think. And then you've got that Shivan dragon, right? And what, terror. More ex- you skipped over terror and disenchantment. I'm, well, no, I, I started with those two. But the yeah. the point is is that Shivan dragon is just awesome and iconic, yeah. right? The the image from the alpha, uh, sorry, the revised uh, rule book, right? Yeah. I mean, and then it's Black the big Lotus. bad baddie of the. Yeah. <laughs> it's of it's the such set. a great. It's such a great cross section of limited edition. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, I know that people were wondering: does this is this some sort of Fourier in, uh, experiment with you know tokens as a way of skirting the reserve list? And uh, Wizards senior R and D members were quick to to tamp that <laughs> down. But it, yeah. it is interesting that you know tokens are kind of you know you can they've literally created tokens here. That mm-hmm. allow you to, you know, have the effects of Alpha's best spells. And I want to clarify a little bit to exactly what you're referring to in terms of their response, because <laughs> a lot of people thought as soon as they saw this card, what you're thinking, and and Evan Irwin, for example, made a tweet that Aaron Forsyth, director of R and D, specifically responded to. Evan Irwin said. Black Lotus tokens as a way to get around the reserved list is some galaxy brain stuff. Um, <laughs> kudos to whoever came up with that. Aaron Forsyth he, quote tweeted, sorry, what? Well, he's using galaxy brain in the non-ironic sense here. That's, Usually that's that would right. be <laughs> sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, it was not sarcastic. Um, Aaron Forsyth quote tweeted Evan and said, not to rain on any parades, but that isn't happening. Now, I take umbrage with this next statement. We have never made tokens that are copies of specific cards, pack rat, etc., and aren't starting here. Garth One Eye is still amazing, though. Now, Aaron is playing a little fast and loose with history because Ben Blyweiss then immediately responded and showed him images of a Johnny Pride mate and Llanowar elves, <laughs> which they've made literal tokens of and are produced by their respective cards, right? And so you can keep track of everything like that. <laughs> I Come know, on. right? Aaron's response is a little inaccurate, I would say, but the spirit of the thing is no, this is not the direction we're going. But, that but said, it is those inaccuracies if, that allow people to drive freight freight size trucks through yeah. through those loopholes, right? I mean, it's the old foil version of the, <laughs> of That's the right. card. In my opinion, <laughs> <The premium. laughs> in my opinion, there's nothing wrong with Aaron saying we have no plans to do this right now, but he's not saying he he says we he's haven't done saying, this. He's not entirely right. He says we aren't starting here. Well, that's just a you know a, a Swiss <laughs> cheese of of assertion <laughs> right it's like they may not intend to but they've opened the door right i mean that's the the problem <laughs> once you've i mean that's the the thing right is it doesn't it's not it doesn't matter what your intent is if you do it then yeah. you've created the precedent on which someone can later on build so Com- I, i'm agree. not expecting anything i'm not expecting a card you know so for example what if they printed a zero artifact mm-hmm. that came into play and said, sacrifice, you know, what we could call it, um, dumb thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> sacrifice dumb thing, and it turns into a Black Lotus. It creates a Black Lotus token and goes and it goes to the graveyard, right? What it then? Could, oh, exiles itself, rather, and then creates it, a Black Lotus token. It could be even more elegant to sidestep a lot of problems. It could, it could be a zero-mana artifact that says, if this would enter the battlefield, instead exile it and create a token copy of Black Lotus. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty close to what I was envisioning yeah. there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, your point, you, they, your point they, is well made. This, they're not amending the reserve list. 
to deal yeah. with this right now. Let's hope they don't. But <laughs> the, can I go ahead? Is, finish finish is, all. Yeah, it has long been known that there are many clever ways that they could sidestep the reserved list. Right, a lot of things just don't apply to the letter of the law, and they've intentionally said many times we're avoiding some things because of the spirit of the the policy, like reverberate, for example. But when push comes to shove, there's just innumerable ways you can sidestep the reserve list. This is just one. And the fact that they put this out there gets people excited about the prospect again, which, in my opinion, is great. And for them to deny it, I don't care. I don't care if they deny it or not. It it doesn't matter. It could happen next year and Aaron could say, well, we changed our minds because you all like the idea so much. It doesn't matter, (laughs) right? So anyway, Garth One-Eye is not technically mechanically new because the precedent has sort of been set. But it's definitely a new kind of implementation of this thing, especially referencing and then not enumerating f- six different card names. I said five earlier, but it was I was building up to Black Lotus. Six different card names that aren't in the set and aren't described at all. That's a little unprecedented, and I think it's pretty cool. They, it's interesting that they selected so to the six. They selected a card from each color in Alpha, and then an artifact. I find it interesting that they selected, um, well. So disenchant for white is not, I think, shocking. Because if you're you're going to choose a creature and you decide to make a Chivin Dragon, then anything else just seems lame by comparison, I suppose. Like, you don't really need, like, a Sarah Angel, and disenchant is just highly, highly versatile and flexible. Um, I do feel like versatility was one of their goals here. Versatility yeah. and iconic choices. Right. I just wonder if instead of Brain Geyser, they should have just made it Ancestral. Or would that probably yeah. have been too powerful, <laughs> too broken? I definitely considered that. But, you know, on the flip side, this is a five-mana creature, and they got to pass the turn, and then you tap to activate. Right. At some point, you got to consider that you're not in it for efficiency anymore. I guess, I guess that's a good point. And also, I think there's another point, which is that if they allowed... if You have to balance... I wouldn't be surprised if they actually tested Ancestral on this and decided that it just became the go-to. And they wanted people in diversity of situations to choose among the different spells, right? Mm. And that's so, a good point. You know, that's ve- that seems like a very reasonable read. Yeah. Yeah, because you and I both know that if Ancestral was on this list, it would be number one. You'd have Probably. to convince me not to do it every time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It'd be the default. The yeah. presumptive default. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's a good point. Okay, so there are a couple of other mechanics that, again, not literally new, but new combinations of things. One of them I want to point out is the Pitch Evoke cycle. This is the so biggest, right? There's, yeah, there's a cycle of five creatures in the set, all of which can have Evoke, which is, again, not new, but all of which have an Evoke cost of exiling a card matching their color. We're going to review basically all of them, or at least we're going to address <laughs> all of them. And so... That's a very meaningful cycle from a vintage standpoint and a very cool combination of uh, intersection of abilities. And Evoke, just to remind folks, is very important in vintage. The biggest one is is Ingotchur, which mm-hmm. it, which for, oh God, a good decade was just like the default answer to Lodestone Golem and <laughs> through Thorn. Yeah. Um, but that pitch versions of Evoke is, I think, brilliant because it allows you to take the mana cost out altogether. So yeah. now you've got essentially a cycle of free spells. Exactly. And we're going to get into more details about how that manifests with each one. So the cycle of five uh, pitch evoke creatures are in, in name, grief, subtlety, endurance, sol- solitude, and fury. They're each a single color. 
they each have uh, one or more combat abilities, which is noteworthy. Like, Grief has Menace. It's pretty cool. They each have a comes-into-play trigger, and they each can be cast by exiling a card for their evoke cost, matching their color. Yep. So let's talk about Grief. Grief might be the biggest and most important one. So here's where I want to start. I want to start by talking about the card Unmask. So the card Unmask, which this clearly mimics, is a card which I have played with for a very long time in Vintage. And the two decks that I think are most obvious where I played Unmask, the first is my 2004 Doomsday deck, which, Kevin, you might remember when our team rolled in with Doomsday at Star City Games Chicago, the third Power 9 event. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in that Doomsday deck, we had four Unmask, four Force of Wills, um, obviously four Doomsday, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and Unmask was pretty important to that deck because it was one of the ways that you could essentially, as quickly as possible, protect yourself from either things that might disrupt you, counter magic, um, or anything that they might try and do to advance their game plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and also gave you information. I think we also had four duress. So it's like four duress, four force, and four unmask. And I remember playing against people like Ben Perry and the Cart Brothers, you know, with Unmask, <laughs> and they were annoyed by it. So Unmask, first in my experience at Vintage, was played in that deck. Um, later on, it sort of became a card I think we used in various kind of oops, no spells shells, like the Rogue Hermit deck, which was never really a big tournament viable deck, although some people played it to success. But the next place where I really enjoyed Unmask and have basically always played Unmask is in the post-Modern Horizons 1. Well, even or before that, versions of Dredge. Yeah. Because Unmask do, it does a number of very useful things. It allows you to, to see their hand, which is always good with Cabal Therapy, right? Number two, it allows you to pluck out Graveyard Hate and Answers. So you can take Containment Priest before they can cast it. Even if they've had a turn and they only have one mana, you can take cards like Containment Priest, Rest in Peace, um, or before you've activated a bazaar, you could take things like Ravenous Trap. Um, or before you give them a target, you can take things, again, like Surgical Extraction. Mm-hmm. If you're on the play, then you can pretty much strip everything, except yep. for Leyline of the Void. Yep. And I've always given... Here's the thing about Unmask. So I've always liked... If you look at my dredge list, going back to the spring of 2019, which the first time I really started playing dredge again was when Sphinx came out. Remember, I played it, and then Modern Horizons came out, and I had a, a, yeah. a great run with Dredge. All those lists have the Max Unmask. Max Unmask, which has, over time, waxed and waned. But generally, Unmask has never been the top, or even in the top tier of disruption spells among most Dredge pilots. They preferred, you know, after Force and Misstep, which were like the defining and Cabal Therapy, people, I think, tended to like more like Force of Negation, and um, which I've always liked, Force of Negation and Mindbreak Trap more than Unmask. Um, I've actually preferred Unmask over both of those cards since the beginning. And here's the fundamental reason why. And this is a reason that I I have hewed to and it's never done me wrong. The <laughs> fundamental reason Unmask, I believe, is better than Force of Negation and Mindbreak Trap is this. About 50% of the cards in your deck are black. Which means that if you are in top deck mode, like let's say, for example... um. You know, you've been using the bazaar to find a force of negation. Look for force of vigor, rather, um, because your opponent has a ley line in play. And you, 
um, f- have found the, you know, the Shambling Shell and the Force of Vigor, and you have just one un- unmask as another card, and you're not sure whether to fire off the Force of Vigor, if you just wait one more turn for a draw, you have about a 50-50 chance of hitting another black card. Whether it's Prized Am- Amalgam, or Amalgam, however you want to pronounce it, <laughs> um, an Icarid, whatever it is. Which means that that's totally different, Kevin, than a force of will or a force of negation in hand, where your chance of drawing a blue spell to support it are quite low. You know, lower than one in three, probably lower lower than one in four. Which means that um, in a mid-game scenario where you need disruption, I believe Unmask is the best from-hand disruption Dredge has in a mid-game. And by mid-game, I mean like after turn three, right? Where the game has been drawn out, Unmask is the best. It's better than Mindbreak Trap because at that point, no one is, I, I should say unrestricted, right? It's better than Mindbreak Trap because... Sure. <laughs> it's better than Mindbreak Trap because Mindbreak Trap at that point, they're not going to go up to three spells in most cases unless they're like top deck PO. And even then, a, a you know, a Mindbreak Trap cannot stop a top deck PO, Right? Um, it's arguable that misstep is better there because it's one one card right instead of two, but essentially I love scenarios where I upkeep dredge, empty my hand with bizarre, draw an unmask. At that point, if I've drawn an unmask, I know in my next upkeep not to dredge, or I can of course just dredge a black card because all, a lot of your dredgers are black, and then complement it with the. But I know not to activate the bizarre is my point because. Either I'm guaranteed to be able to use the unmasked next turn by dredging a stinkweed up or a shambling shell, or I have a very good chance of drawing a black card right then and there and using the unmasked. So I have had countless situations where, you know, my opponent has like a flusterstorm in hand. I have the force of vigor and the, the green card, and I, I have drawn I have an unmask. All I have to do is wait one turn, Kevin. I draw the black card, I unmask them, the force of vigor resolves on their next upkeep. So the unmask yep. is a key card in my opinion, in Dredge. An underappreciated card. There's too many times where I see people playing two, three, or even fewer on masks. But here's the kicker. So as good <laughs> as I think Unmask is in Dredge, for the reasons I just stated, it's ability to give you information immediately. One other thing I actually want to say about its ability to give you information immediately. In addition to pulling out Graveyard Hate, it allows you to decide the route you want the game to go. So let me give you an example. Suppose your opening hand with, with Dredge is Unmask, Icarid, or let's just say unmask and blank non-dredger black spell, a black dredger, a bazaar, a wasteland, a force of will and a narcomipa, okay? And you activate the bazaar, you, and I think I included wasteland in this hand, right? You can immediately say from their hand whether you should, for example, uh, hold, uh, a, you know, whether you should go for, say, double hollow one or wasteland, right? If you look at your mm-hmm. opponent's hand and you see, okay, they have a dual land and they're reliant on that dual land, they have nothing else, then you know to bin the second hollow one and keep the wasteland. Mm-hmm. Or you see, oh my god, they're playing a bizarre deck. It's hollow vine or whatever. So you bin the second hollow one and you keep the wasteland. So it allows you to make key tactical decisions with perfect information that you otherwise would not be able to make. So all that said, as good as Unmask is, Grief is far better. <laughs> now there's one yep. there's one advantage that Unmask has over Grief. I'm going to say what that is last, but let me go through the advantages that Grief has over Unmask first. 
Number one and most important, well, I don't know if it's most important, but it's highly important. It is a creature, which means that it cannot be flusterstormed. And so a, a lot of blue decks will lean into flusterstorm against dredge because they know they can stop the key thing, usually force of vigor. Cannot do that with grief. So the grief, and also the grief peels through force of negation, <laughs> which a lot of right. blue players have really gotten in the habit of playing ancestral in the dredge player's upkeep because of to get around force of negation and that sort of thing. Grief does not care about that. You can't force of negation it. You cannot um, fluster storm it. So it just cuts through so much of the blue counter magic wall that they have. Number two, um, it feeds uh, it feeds Icarid. So I can't tell you how many times, Kevin, that I've been able to grief um, and then immediately activate. So for example, I'll activate Bazaar in turn one. I will bin an Icarid, let's say a Dredger and a Prized Amalgam. And then I play and I evoke grief. The next turn, I can return Icarid immediately without having to decide you know, do I pitch a dredger or the, you know, prized amalgam? I can keep the dredger from my draw step. The prized amalgam is going to come into play at the end of the turn because the grief is being used to bring the Icarid into play. So it just creates a compact design efficiency that's amazing. Um, but here's my favorite trick with grief. And I got to do this against the eco, uh, Andreas Peterson this weekend and he was, he, I think he thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, my favorite trick with grief is this. You play Bizarra Baghdad first. You don't know exactly what your opponent is playing. You pitch Grief, and you stack the Evoke trigger and the CIP trigger, such that the CIP trigger resolves first. And you look at their hand. Mm-hmm. And you see their hand, and you get, realize, okay, there's no surgical extraction here, there's no Rav Trap, or you clear it out. Then, after the CIP trigger resolves, but before the evoke resolves, you activate the bazaar. And if you have a bridge from below, and this is what happened to Andreas, I had a bridge on top of my library, the bridge went to the graveyard, the evoke resolved, and the resolution of the evoke triggered the bridge, giving me a 2-2 zombie. And at no point were you exposed to Rav Trap or Surgical before your Grief's trigger had resolved and taken it out of their hand. Exactly. Because mm-hmm. you stack the mm-hmm. Evoke and the and the CIP trigger in the certain that way. Is, now you can that stack- is very nice synergy. <laughs> very powerful. That and is so, great. And in a mid-game where, let's say, your opponent has already, you know, let's say they had a ley line, you fought over it and whatever, and you're just trying to pick, pick away at their life, that 2-2 zombie can literally win the game or it can force them to block their with their Yixla Jailer or their Containment Priest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's nothing they can do. And, and of course, against Containment Priest, um, a, a 2-2, you know, Bridge from Below is much more powerful. So here's the overall... Number one, Grief is immensely powerful. It's immensely synergistic. But it also changes the internal Dredge player calculus of the power level within Dredge. Bridge from mm-hmm. Below has always been probably my least favorite card in the deck. It's a very important card, but it's like the first card I'll pitch to an unmask usually. It's the first yeah. card I'll often bottom. Um, grief it's, makes it's one it, of the most conditional pieces of the puzzle. Yes. There, there's so many ways. 
proactively, reactively, inherently that decks have to disrupt your bridge from functioning properly. It's right. so it's so the most fragile. Yes, grief totally changes that. Um, you know, it, obviously generating bridge tokens, the bridge works through containment priest. It works through cage. Mm-hmm. So grief is very important, and it dramatically increases the value of bridge. So you, it's hard to imagine designing a card better for dredge than grief. <laughs> it really is. It's it does so many things simultaneously. In addition yeah. to being black, which is so important because fifty percent of your cards are black. So <laughs> right, it could only be better if it was like three colors, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it was, if it was, if it was green and blue it would be and better. black, then it would be. Yeah. But if I had to choose any of the, you know, wild wild draw four. <laughs> yeah, I, I would not want it to be green, even though it would have more synergy with force of vigor. It's much better because 50% of your cards are black, which means that, in a, right. again, in a mid-game, it's so... So I'm now having games, Kevin, where I can grief twice on turn one. Yeah. Bin right. a bridge and grief twice on turn one. You know, and I, I, I'm happy to do that. So a couple more notes on, on just uh, on this. So those are kind of like the... I've given you the level one interactions, and I've given you the level two interactions. Let me go one level deeper or higher. <laughs> depending on how you conceptualize the metaphor, the leveling. <laughs> I believe that grief contributes to an evolution of dredge in which the complexity of playing dredge is kind of at its apogee of all time. Mm. So when, when Manalist dredge was first conceived, and especially when Serum Powder came in, dredge was viewed, I think, as sort of a mechanical deck with yeah. a kind of algorithm of staging the play. You could flowchart what you're going to do at any given moment. Precisely. You could almost code it into a program. I believe that now we are at a point with Dredge where every decision is of consequence. Literally. So let me give an example. I found myself in the first few days with Grief realizing that the cards I put on the bottom of my deck with my mulligan have never been more important in the order I put them in the bottom. Wow. And the reason... I, I literally have gotten to games where I had to think, what was the card I put on the bottom of my library? Yeah. Because if it was of a certain color, like a black card or black creature, if it was a black card, then I could act potentially you know, use at the very end of the game a grief and try and win right with the last spell. Or how many cards do I dredge? Like to get mm-hmm. to the bottom, do I need to dredge the, you know, do I dredge, say of four cards in my library, do I dredge three and then draw one? Do I try not dredge at all? Or do I just activate a bazaar? You know, and all of that matters. And it's, it's mattered. And so I have now been tracking, which I've never done before, especially when you, when you put two cards on the bottom. I have been tracking the order and the specific cards I put on the bottom because it, it's just hugely significant now. Especially, I'll give you another example. Especially if at the end of the game you need a force of, you need a shambling shell or a green card to pitch to force of vigor. Right. Um, you know, it, it's like, I can win next turn with no cards in my library if I draw a, like, second from the bottom, the Shambling Shell, for example. I can win, I can win with one card, you know, with no cards left in my library, I can do an Alpha Strike. Um, so the specific order, it, it used to be I'll just, like, put a Narcomoeba, put a Serum Powder is the first card you usually put on the bottom. But now I've been thinking, being very deliberate. I need to make sure that if I'm putting two cards on the bottom, I put the serum powder on the bottom and not and, and because the way magic online works is the first card you select is the card that goes on the bottom first and then the right. next card goes on the bottom bottom. Right. So right. 
I that's that I th- what I'm saying is that grief is now create a level of complexity and because you can have up to eight unmasks the decisions you make on turn one about what to discard and here's where it really comes in kevin do you want to think about the disruption options you have strip mine and wastelands force of wills chalice of the void unmask grief force of negation mind break trap and and mental misstep take all those cards yeah um on turn one now you are going to have the option of having potentially three or four of those cards in your opening hand pretty consistently, but you can't use all of them. Right. So you have to make high-stakes decisions, including Force of Vigor, which I didn't include. Yeah. You have to make high-stakes high high stakes decisions on turn one about which of the cards to keep and which not to. And by the way, that also include Hollow One and Leyline of Sanctity. Naturally. And Grief amplifies that to the next level now. Yeah. So, so I have always been of the view that the cards that are most valuable in Dredge as disruption cards are the cards that trade one for one, that don't re- re- require a second card. So I've always, more than others, valued Chalice of the Void and I think Wastelands and to perhaps a lesser extent Misstep, although it's never really undervalued. Right. I find myself viewing Grief and Unmask is more powerful than Chalice of the Void because... If I'm looking at my, you know, if I have my opponents looking at my opponent's hand on turn one, and it's between, you know, um, let's say f- force of will or chalice of the void, um, as this, you know, you know, you're going to grieve. It's it, what I'm trying to say, Kevin, is that the trade-offs are more intense now, and more and more often confronted and evaluated. And so you have to make tactical decisions about which which of the cards to keep. And because because I think Unmask and Grief are better than Force of Negation, you now the Dredge now has fewer blue spells. Mm. And so you have to make it most Dredge a lot of Dredge decks just don't run Force of Will anymore. I think Force of Will is still worth running because it's immensely flexible and powerful, especially in post board games when you're fighting. Yeah, especially in Blizzard Mirrors where you're fighting over lay, you know Leyline superiority. So you have to make decisions about, for example, whether, you know, should I play a second grief or chalice and a wasteland? That's an example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're confronted with that now, not as a theoretical possibility, but as a routine probability. <laughs> That's what I'm getting at. Right. Um, right. You know, Matt Murray jokingly said, now I'm going to get rid of my unmasks. I actually doubled down the other way. I first started with four unmasks, four griefs, just to see what it was like. Knowing yeah. that I, knowing I was not going to go that route, and yeah. I had I had uh, creeping chill, which I tested and I still hate. I think it's a terrible <laughs> card, and I don't want to re- go over why I think it's so bad, because that would be for like a dredge theory episode. I just think it's a win more. I think it's terrible, um, and even with four unmask and four grief, it's still terrible. <laughs> um, um, but I have settled on originally for the for the vintage challenges weekend. I settled on four griefs and two unmasks and one chalice. And there were in two of my six matches, Kevin. There were forty-five players in the vintage challenge. Two of my six matches on game one, mm-hmm. I had Chalice, and I wished it was unmasked number three. And I believe I would have won both. In bo- in both scenarios, I lost game one in one case, and I think the other ca- other case it was a, a game three scenario. I believe I would have won both of those matches had it been unmasked number three instead of Chalice. It feels inevitable that the downward pressure on efficiency of anti-dredge cards has gotten us to the point where. 
Landmark's thing is no longer a reliable option against Dredge, so much so that the Dredge player no longer has to fight the Landmark's thing play. Yeah. Uh, at, at the level exactly. that you're talking about, specifically yes. with Chalice of the Void. And also, just the, the decks, with the exception of the Urza PO decks, and there's basically nothing in the, in the format that is super relied on zero mana. You know, yes, yeah. you can hit Doomsday with having their Lotus in their hand, but it's, they have rituals. You know, they have, they have Gush yeah. and lots of free things like Street Wraith. Yeah. Um, and days. I, I, I just, given rug, bug, bizarre decks, um, doomsday, just, just yeah, everything's, not a lo- everything's, if it's not PO, everything is a low mox count deck anymore. Yeah. Even the shops decks don't, aren't just not reliant on the mox. Yeah. So I have found chalice, which I have always been on because, and the reason again, I like it is because I want to be able to, I, I want to be able to interact if I have to mulligan to five and I can't yeah. do. Unmask and force, right? Yeah. I want yeah. and and I want to be able to do things. I still found over and over again, unmask number three better than chalice. And again, the reason Kevin goes to the <laughs> very very first point I made, which is that if you just wait one turn, you're going to be able to use that unmask because your next draw is probably going to be a black card. Yeah. So yeah. I have found myself going to seven unmask effects, and I'm just loving it. So I'm having the be- one of the best times of my life playing playing uh, Dredge. Hey, so I don't situationally better and situationally worse, right? The metagame has yes. shifted gradually over the course of the last few years toward the point where unmasking and, that free effect that's in their hand is far better than disrupting them their mana wise. And the marginal utility of mask is never harmful; it's always upside because even if you want, let's say, to keep a wasteland instead of using a second unmask. Let's say I discard down to Grief, Grief, Unmask. It's not a big deal. I'll Grief pitching Unmask now, and the next turn yeah. I'll Grief pitching the next black card I draw. So it's <laughs> fine. It's just, it's it's amazing. So that's, yeah. the level three point is I think Grief creates, it ratchets up the skill level, in my opinion, that Dredge players <laughs> can now utilize, which means that Dredge is becoming sort of like a normal vintage deck if it hasn't already in the sense that it's a high-skill deck with lots of high-impact decision-making and choices. Trade-offs yeah. at every point. I find myself being proud of myself for how well I play with Dredge over and over again on a more yeah. routine basis with grief than I think I did before. And often I was very proud of myself before. <laughs> Prideful in terms of my ability to decide, do I activate Dredge Bazaar here? Do I wait? When do I do it? How do I flow chart how do i flow this you know what's the best route what's the best tactical answer here um because often with dredge you have to make long-term strategic decisions okay my opponent has this card in play and you have two options right it's like they have a they have like containment priest in play i have a hollow one do i just try and get more hollow ones that's strategy a or do i try and bend my entire library so that i can get all four uh, bridge from belows in in the graveyard and then, you know, um, trigger the bridges with a grief I have in hand yeah. or something. You know, yeah. like you have to make – and it's it's a high-stakes decision because if they have an answer for strategy A, then strategy B is your only option. If they have an stra- op- answer for strategy B, then strategy A is your only option. You have to make a decision. And it's that just, comes up more and more now. It's, it's just so powerful. I mean, you, say you're a deck like – um, a four or five color, not five color, sorry, three or four color death right deck. And you've brought in cages against dredge. And 
you're on the draw in game three, which you frequently are, right? Yes. And so that's why you, a better example is cage. Yeah. Yeah. And so you fan open that hand and it has two cages in it. And you're like, <laughs> and, and maybe it has force of will too. And you're like, okay, okay, this is good. I can live with this, right? And your dredge playing opponent goes, play, as you said, put Bazaar into play, put grief onto the stack. And you're yes. like, ah, crap. <laughs> but it's okay. I've got two cages, right? Yeah. And so you say, all right, it's good. And, and they take that grief and they're like, okay, I see that other cage. Let me bizarre accordingly. Well, a turn or two goes by. Maybe you resolve that first cage, but they're bizarring. And there's yeah. one bridge. And I'm attacking, and two with, bridges. I'm attacking with a token. That's right. Know, well, two- and then and then there's that mid-game grief that comes out on turn yes. three or four. Yes. There's two bridges in the graveyard, and it makes it makes you two or three zombies, depending on the situation. That the the upside of grief being a creature and and being able to plan ahead plan your approach to the game over the course of the first few turns that way and get that incremental advantage against certain sideboard strategies. It's It's so satisfying. It's so powerful. I've been, I've already always done better against bug. Not always because bug used to be my nemesis in 2019, but in 2020 I did a lot better against bug than I did in 2019. I think that, I think the advantage has actually shifted. Uh, and, and so let me give you a concrete example that builds on your example or iteration of your example. So your opponent has a cage, and you know, um, you've got a bazaar. Maybe they wastelanded your first bazaar. Um, you have just two cards in your hand. You've got a grief. No, you've got two cards in your hand that are not grief or not unmasked, mm-hmm. right? And you activate bazaar. So you have four cards, and you see a grief. Do you keep the grief and discard the other three cards? Let's say, you know, or do you, you know, it could even be a hollow one there or a wasteland there, whatever. I would keep the grief, especially if you have two bridges, because next turn you're going to draw a black card and be able to use it, <laughs> and then yeah. then you're clear. You got two yeah. to- you got two bridge tokens, and you can even put yeah. the grief on the stack and activate the bizarre in response to try and get another bridge into the graveyard. The reliability of it is just it's really huge. I, I'm completely in 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 agreement with you there. So I have not been able to um, test grief in any other deck. It's my sense that it probably doesn't go into the Hollow Vine decks. It could very well go into the Hogak deck, um, but I haven't seen it there in the Hogak. So that would be another place for for noodling around. Um, sure, I think the absolutely. Hogak the Hogak deck though is really more of like a Death Rite deck than a mm-hmm. Bizarre deck. But it, grief is so good when you've got eight Golgari cards just yeah. at your core, and then more on top of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I, there we are. So, Steve, <laughs> I don't think there was much uh, debate at the start of this episode between you and I, or most of our audience, as to whether or not grief was a playable dredge card. Right? It obviously is. It's better than and unmask, the, which was a yeah. top tier disruptive spell. Right. This is <laughs> yeah. a, just a strict upgrade. So, yeah. And so also we don't gets need to debate Thor- that. By the way, also it gets through Thorn and Thalia, and there are oh, lots of yeah. Thalia decks wandering around in vintage. You know, there's the White That's Hate Bears deck, too. the White Eldrazi decks. Um, yeah. It's it's very significant against those. Yes, and it gets around Force of Negation, as you said. So if I could make all of my cards just creatures <laughs> and that they did what they do yes. today, I, yeah. I probably would. Yeah. Um, so anyway, let's talk about how we can structure the rest of this conversation, though, vis-a-vis our set review. Um, you mentioned some other decks it could go in. We need to predict some numbers. 
and it's I want to know. <laughs> and I want to know. Yeah, I want to know if you have any other theory discussions on top of everything you said about its place in Dredge, because well, I have one other modest point, which is very meta. Well, I think it's an automatic four of in Dredge, and there are of course going to be yes. Dredge players who either don't have it or haven't upgraded to it. Um, sure, but there's that's, also the point. I yeah. I promise that there's one advantage of Unmask over Grief, which I should mention. Oh yes. And the advantage of Unmask Over Grief is that you can unmask yourself. And this context uh, in which that matters, there are actually a number of contexts in which it matters. Like, it's not infrequent in a dredge mirror that the dredge player will therapy themselves. Mm-hmm. Although I think mm-hmm. it's a mistake to keep therapy in post-board in most cases, more than one or two, at least. Um, the Especially when you have a game... Uh, uh, let, let me give you a specific example. Like, your opponent... There, there are times where you keep a, a hand that does not have Bazaar with Dredge. And typically you keep a hand that does not have Bazaar if you have a Ley Line and a Force of Will. Because that... And you have an, a, like a Force of Vigor, particularly. If you have those three cards, you're probably yeah. going to keep that hand if it doesn't have Bazaar, no matter what. Force, yeah. Blue Card, Ley Line, and a Force of Vigor, you're going to keep that. <laughs> because you can answer your opponent's That's Hollow Ones. Damn good. Yeah, you can answer your opponent's Hollow Ones and if I have a wasteland and strip mine, that's a guarantee I'm going to keep that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, unma- in those situations, being able to unmask yourself can be is much faster, right? Unmask your your Golgari Grave Troll, Troll or Stinkweed Dip is much faster than getting to seven and discarding a card. Um, that's the one advantage. So that's actually why I still like some number of unmasks. But e- even if I could only play four unmasks and four griefs, I'd still run four griefs and zero unmask, um, rather than some split. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, absolutely. um, so in predictions, I think that this is an automatic inclusion in Dredge. It's a very strong possibility in Hogak decks. I can't say it's an automatic inclusion because I'm just not sure. I think it probably is an automatic inclusion in any of the Oop spells decks. Rogue, Rogue Hermit. There was actually a Rogue Hermit in the top eight of a vintage challenge this year. I saw it, huh, nice. so I'm not sure where that was. That. Yeah, I can tell you the date. Um, <laughs> but it's not going to materially affect the numbers. No, when compared to Dredge, it was on February four. February fourteenth was in seventh place. Was a rogue rogue hermit deck. Yeah. Um, were there more? Oh, there was also one on. There was a combo rogue hermit belcher deck that got s- sorry. Uh, sixth place on March 27th as well. So there have been... Oh, and there was another one, uh, a Hermit Belcher deck on January 30th. Let me see if there's been a fourth. No. So there's been three Rogue Hermit decks in Vintage Top 8s this year. In Vintage wow. Challenge Top 8s. That is, that is two more than I would have remembered. <laughs> so, and I don't know how heavy the black... I, I assume that the black is pretty heavy in both of those because they have eight of the rogue gu- creatures. So I would assume that you want grief in those decks because, again, grief trumps force of negation, fluster storm, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Um, but beyond that, those decks, I don't really see a place for grief. I guess you could consider it as some sort of like wacky bug sideboard card, you know, where like it comes in and you can, you know, well, I don't. What about what about Doomsday? You said in the in the past Doomsday not played, a chance uh, unmasked, but it doesn't today. Not a chance. You think this changes the, the calculus on that? No, I, I think Doomsday has basically been refined to almost perfection over the last year and a half. 
And if you look at those lists, they are just like days central, you know. I actually yeah. like misdirection in, in Doomsday and have for a year and a half, and I have I see people playing like Force of Negation instead. But people are playing like Mystical Dispute, which maybe one grief would be better there than, you know. But what are you going to pitch? You're going to pitch Street Wraith? No. You pitch Doomsday? <laughs> no. You pitch Dark Ritual? No. I mean, Doomsday That's a has really be- good point. You don't, have, has, you don't have bad black cards. Yeah, Doomsday has become refined into like a monstrous, like super fast combo deck. Yeah, I just don't see yeah. grief being used in Doomsday. Yeah, but I could be I agree wrong. With you. I agree with you. I, I don't think the the benefits that grief provides over unmask are too slight for Doomsday to justify looking down that road now. Right? The fact that it's a creature. Not especially material. Yes, it sidesteps a fluster. The fact that it evokes and goes to the graveyard, no, doesn't really help you. Doomsday doesn't make use of the ways in which Grief is better than Unmask the way Dredge does. Yes. Which tells us that if Doomsday wanted that effect, it would be playing it already in Unmask. Right. So let's talk about, and I I always like to do this, you know, look back at the recent history of a particular deck that we know this card goes in. So let's talk about Dredge. Uh, I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but Dredge is a pretty common top eight appearance in the vintage uh, challenges lately. Yes. It's been putting up one or two appearances, you know, consistently. And all signs point to this card powering up Dredge yes. relative to the rest of the metagame. I, so I would expect, I mean, we haven't finished this review, well, but I, two, there's a good chance it's going to be an increase in popularity. There's been two, ch- two challenges since this came, uh, uh, you know, between the time we set for this review, this podcast recording session, mm-hmm. and the legality of this card on Magic Online, which is not necessarily enough time for every would-be dredge player to incorporate grief, right? Um, but in so far, it does not appear to be a world beater. It just appears to be an upgrade. Um, yeah. the, the Hollow Vine decks have gotten, I think, a, an even larger upgrade, which is why they're seeing more play and more top eight. <laughs> and, and we'll talk about why that is. Right. I think. I think. It's probably for the foreseeable future going to be the same clip it's been for the last three or four months. Dredge maybe a, a slight increase in percentage terms. Yeah. So I think whatever it feels just, like the over under is one per top eight. That's probably pretty close. So you could just mm-hmm. reverse engineer that for three months, which would be if there's two per weekend. Um, that's eight per month on average, and therefore yeah, twenty four per quarter. I say I'll take I'll take that I'll say twenty four that's a good number. Yeah, I guess that's the base. I mean, I'm already raving th- about it, so I, I can't. <laughs> I, I'm not going to lose if I'm wrong. If it's the other. <laughs> uh, I think that's a reasonable starting point. In my, I, I'm going to take the under just because I feel like I, I don't feel like that pace would. Well, I don't I don't know how to put it. There are so many things being shifted with this set that it's hard to make room for everything right it's basically a card or three for every archetype in the format (laughs) in this set and so it's hard to predict how all the pieces shake out i'm going to take the under on that though just because i feel like people will adapt if grief dredge becomes becomes very good so So i'm gonna yeah i'm still thinking it's it's quite high but less so i'm gonna go um I'm going to go 16, just okay. to kind of put my money where my mouth is. Yeah. <laughs> 24 and 16. <laughs> I want to say one thing, though, about this whole cycle, and Grief is the epitome of this, because Dredge, I think, is the epitome of this in Vintage. 
And it's something that I heard from Patrick Chapin when he was reviewing this card, mostly from the context of modern. There's totally different dynamics in modern, so it's not the same thing as Vintage Dredge, of course. But one of the things he observed was he liked the fact that even though cards like this that that cast for no mana um, ostensibly speed up individual games, individual interactions, the more cards you have in a format that that one for two you, the, the more games and resource management becomes about yes. quantity yes. becomes about a, a material yes. which that's indirectly, the point i was making earlier indirectly well but i want to take it i want to take it a step further though because to patrick's point it indirectly undermines the impact of the london mulligan it incentivizes yes. you to have a higher Larger quantity of cards yes yeah thereby giving you that that just that slight disincentive to not mulligan quite as much I don't know and that he, there's he pointed much, out. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I don't know there's much option for a dredge player with respect to that. You know? <laughs> That's true. You're compelled. That's absolutely true. <laughs> but but you gave a good counterexample though. Post sideboard in the mirror, where if you fan open a hand that has a nice spectrum of answers to what they could have, you don't need bizarre. You can expect to win that game without yep. that, and that's a that's a textbook example of what Patrick and and I, I in this case I'm talking about. I don't know if I'd say expect to win. But you, you, it's your strongest line, is what yeah, I'm trying to enough. say. Well, but that's, but that's what we're talking about, though. You know, the highest win percentage when you're fanning opening a hand. Yeah, this hand of seven is better because of the quantity of material I have here, less so getting to a particular card. Like, if I can go down to four or five to get a bizarre, it's not actually better than this seven-card hand, necessarily. Agreed. Yeah. And I think, I'm not saying we're there, but I'm just saying that these one-for-two effects despite how fast they are, are actually a good thing because you could... It, I mean, Dredge is already at the point where it has fully 20 cards that cast for free. And I'm not counting Hollow One. I'm uh, 21 for twos, right? Force of blank. <laughs> uh. it, and depending on how you construct your deck, of course. Um, that, is a, that is an enormous ratio. There's never been a deck in Vintage before that had that concentration of one for twos. Well, it was the first Modern Horizons that brought us to this point. Oh, right? naturally. Because before that, Dredge would sideboard the Rainbow Lands. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. At least in modern vintage. And you, and, and you were casting well, Nature's Claims, right? Let's, that's right. And Chain of Vapor. Let's shift yeah. to Endurance. And let's, let's, sure. test, let's test this theory of yours. So this is the green part of this pitch cycle. Endurance. No, we didn't even list the stats for grief. <laughs> I'm <laughs> hoping cares? our audience knows the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's four mana. It's a 3-2. It has Menace. There you go. Endurance is three mana. It's a three four. It has flash and reach, which is noteworthy. Flash. That's so pay attention to that. When endurance enters the battlefield, up to one target player puts all cards from their graveyard on bottom of their library in a random order. And so, of course, you can exile a green card to cast it with flash, mind you. So when when I read the spoiler with great enthusiasm, as <laughs> as the cards were becoming spoiled, I, I just. I can't hide my enthusiasm for this set. I love this set. This set is, is like one of my top five sets of all time. It's amazing. It's, fanta- it's fantastic. I, I think I might like it overall more than Modern Horizons 1, although Force of Vigor is one of my top five cards of all time. Favorite cards yeah, of all time. So, we can discuss that later on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we will in, discuss that later on, in fact. So no, maybe not this episode. When reading this, this was a card I will confess that I overlooked. I just didn't okay. see application. I've now been the victim of this card. Now, fortunately, I won <laughs> against Hollow One, um, the game in which this was played against me uh, yeah. as a dredge player. But it was quite 
the surprise. Let me tell you, <laughs> when you know, I thought I was about to win and my opponent played, it was like my entire graveyard was Noxious Revivaled. It was so obnoxious. <laughs> um, and it can be played, as you said, for... It, That's what we speed. should call this, Obnoxious Revival. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I understand also they wanted to make these really iconic cards, so they, they chose one word pronouns, you know, one term uh, pronouns for each of the cycle here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this card um, is really, I think, interesting against Dredge. Um, and Dre- it's it's interesting for multiple reasons. One is that... Oh, yeah. Uh you're always looking for more green cards when you're bringing in Force of Vigor, and this is this is interesting with that. Mm-hmm. Um, it also this it's very strong in the Hollow Vine decks against Dredge. But here's the interesting thing: this card is also really interesting against Doomsday. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You put that Thassa's Oracle trigger on the stack, and all of a sudden your library is a little bit bigger than you expected. Boom. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, in fact, you'd be hard-pressed to design... I mean, maybe that's an overstatement. You could probably design several cards. But this card appears to be tailor-made to address both of those vintage decks, right? In a very impactful and powerful way. It's disruptive to Dredge's graveyard because Dredge wants that graveyard. Full stop. It doesn't exile it, which would be ideal. But putting it on the bottom is nice. But the choice to put it on the bottom makes it disruptive against Doomsday yes. and Thassa's yes. Oracle, which is fantastic. And so the intersection so, and the overlap of those two things is a beautiful design. So, and also, again, as a creature, gets around Flusterstorm. Doomsday can't stop that. Naturally. Um, gets around Force of Negation. Uh, can't be misdirected. <laughs> this is an yep. annoying card uh, for Doomsday yep. and Dredge. I think it might be yep. worse for Doomsday, though, honestly. I think this card is just... It, it, for Dredge, it's more of a speed bump, although it can be a very powerful speed bump. It can... Cause the bumper of your car to fall off. For, for for Doomsday, this is the kind of speed bump that that causes your engine to fail. You know, it's like it's. <laughs> I mean, it. I like that. It's this is bad. This is real bad. This, this is like your axle was tied to a to a telephone pole kind of. Speed yeah, bump exactly. For <laughs> it's terrible. So, um, I want to I want to clarify what you just said a little bit more though. So for Dredge, this card can't be your whole answer to Dredge. There's just no, no two ways about it. Unless you're going to win the game the a, next turn. Has a bazaar, it's not going to... Yeah. So this has to be in support of other effects. But it amplifies other effects, like anti-dredge cards tends to do, right? This makes Wasteland much better, for example. Because if, if they, their first bizarre activation gets undone yes. by Endurance, yes. and then you waste them, that's a good combination. But you still and, have to ask the question, when would you play this over a Rav Trap? Well, that's a great point. Is that yeah. is it better than other things? So, and the the previous observation about it being effective against Doomsday might both. hold your answer. There, that's what I was going to get to. Yes, yeah. in vintage, you're always looking for cards that have multiple rules against multiple decks. Yes, and so if you were exactly. going to run a Rav Trap, uh, you know, this still, by the way, is still a stop by Leyline of Sanctity. Yep, because it says target player, but um. <laughs> Yeah, if you're looking for something, you know, people are playing Archive Trap against the Archive Trap is all across sideboards. Yeah. And it's vintage. a garbage card. I mean, that's a really it's, garbage card and it's, it's super narrow. Right. If you have green, why not endurance? If you're playing Bug yeah. or Rug or Hollowvine or Hogak or Dredge and you need an answer to if I'm, you know, I've seen Archive Traps in Dredge sideboards, Kevin. Wow. That's that's serious. 
I would just this run card, this. Yeah, any deck with green, well, a significant density of green should run this over Archive Trap, in my opinion. So Now, let's talk about one other thing, and that is this is the uh, mana cost-wise, this is actually the cheapest of the cycle of the five. This only yes. costs one GG. Yes. And in the kind of decks we're talking about, especially Deathrite decks, right? Yes. You could very well see this in support, in addition to another sideboard strategy, Rav Trap, Leyline, what have you, such that you bridge from turn one where you didn't where you didn't pay any mana for your sideboard card, the trap, the surgical extraction, etc. But you went land death right, right? Then you bridge to turn two where you play your second land, and now you can just cast endurance yes. for one GG. It's actually pretty relevant, especially in death right decks, where this is a reasonable turn two play in a lot of games. And I think that matters a lot as well. Agreed. Especially for like a bug sideboard, where you like the one card is often the card that makes the difference. Like when Joe Brennan won the last vintage championship, North American mm-hmm. Vintage Championship, he had what was the card that was good against tokens that he played that really put him over the top against Jeskai? What was that tech? I, I don't remember. It was like a four mana black card. I can't remember what it was. Um, oh gosh, he wasn't playing the creatures get was, minus one minus one thing. No, hold on. Um, I don't remember the card you're talking about. I'll tell you. Hold on. Here it is. How can you not remember this? You were there. What are you going to do? Here we go. It was, sorry, it was Liliana of the Last Hope. Ah, there you go. Interesting. Yeah, if you're so that, same mana cost, card, except in 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 black. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And that card was especially noteworthy because it killed most of the Jeskai creatures, but it also disabled Dreadhorde Arcanist by lowering its power. Yes, which meant that Arcanist couldn't flashback cards and it couldn't damage Lily. Yeah, that's and that was a huge tech card. card for him. It's just a one off, yeah. and it was like enormously significant to his success that day. Yeah. So yeah. you can imagine like a one off in a bug sideboard of endurance could play a similar role against Dredge and Doomsday. Just Easy. another, yeah, just another one of that. Just an, you know, it moves you out. So Dred, so Joe had in his sideboard just as an example: two Jailer, one Tabernacle, two Trap. Two cage. What if he just had one endurance on top of that, or in addition to one of these other things? He had two force of vigor in the sideboard too, by the way. So yeah. yeah. And to put some quantity to what you were just saying a minute ago about archive trap, I'm looking at just May and just vintage challenges and vintage prelims. There have been 15 appearances of archive trap <laughs> in sideboards. That's not and quantity. That's appearances. That's yes. appearances in, in that's decks. And let me list these archetypes for you. Hogak, Sultai, <laughs> Mud, Dredge, Sultai, Mud, Mud, Sultai, yeah, Mud, 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 Golos, Dark Depths. I mean, yeah, the, car- the card's being played all over the place. And every one of the Sultai examples here should probably be Endurance going forward. And some of the Dredges, too, depending on your concentration of green, maybe. K- Kevin- Mud ones, not so much. Mud can't really justify this. They would still play Archive Trap if they needed it. The- I want to make a comment not for the podcast. So you're going to have to edit this out. But I see you on my spreadsheet. You can see that I've been keeping it up to date. Hopefully you can tell that. Uh, um, I see a lot of empty columns, though. Look at the bottom. Look what I say. The list is not there. 
Those oh. Wizards has not reported. They've had problems. That's they, for the ones where they weren't publishing them. Okay. No, I, no, I didn't read that It's much. not that they're not publishing them. It's just they're not... I mean, it's not like a deliberate thing. It's just they're not... You know, I don't know. It's a complete no, I, snafu where they're not publishing. They're not if you click the link, okay. the lists aren't there. This is yeah. entirely filled you. out. Except I'm, for I'm those. With you. I'm with you. So, Thank I just you want that. you to know that. Yeah, and, all right. And I, so I've been keeping up the... Ta- now, we can actually get the list for these. Because Joe uh, Dreyer has, uh, in the vintage uh, streaming community on Discord, have reported yeah. the top eight for all the li- all these events. So I can actually oh, nice. fill them in, but they're not available on the links at the top, the top okay. row. Okay. Um, I just want you to thank know you that. for clarifying. Thank yeah. you. Um, so we've we've started to hint about some mechanisms for predicting endurance, right? So these archive trap numbers for Sultai, that's a that's a dead giveaway. They're indicative, right? yes. Yeah. But but that's not the only possible use case. It's just one very clear one in my opinion. And it, you can also make a case. So <laughs> we're talking about lots of overlapping effects here. And you and I both know, thanks to things we're gonna get to in a few minutes, that Hollowvine is making a resurgence now, thanks to new cards in this set. Yes. And endurance seems like and you said it already, I think. Endurance is a perfect it's a tailor-made anti-dredge card and anti-doomsday card for these hollowvine decks right yes and so if if they surge in popularity which has the first week has shown if that p- pattern continues that we could see a lot of sideboard and even maybe even main deck appearances of endurance and that would really bolster its numbers so what do you think we've about got that? a long episode i suggest we just give some figures here because we're i mean it's just it's guesswork. It's prediction, right? <laughs> we're not going to be... I mean, w- I think we're both probably going to get in the right range, but we're not going to get it exactly on the dot. So the best we can do is try and give that range. To, and me, make- to me, it feels like endurance could actually outpace grief Fascinating. in quantity. I do not think... Think about it. If, yeah. if, if Holovine is approximately equal to grief and endurance is in every one of their sideboards plus some spattering of sideboard play for bug, plus whatever else unpredictable we can't think of, I think Endurance goes in more archetypes than Grief does. And if Hollowvine and Dredge are jockeying for the best Bizarre deck, there'd be more Endurance in the end. Okay, so give a figure. Give a prediction. I'm thinking thinking 30. Wow. (laughs) Whoa. I think that is wildly above the mark, but... um... All right. All right. Let's hear it. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to go 17. <laughs> All right. Uh, I love it. <laughs> okay. So well, there are three others in this cycle and we're not going to talk about them okay, nearly okay. as much. Uh, sorry. I, so what was your figure on Archive Trap again? Total number for three months? For May was how it, many? Uh, it, 15. Okay. Yeah. I, but only I, a few of those were Sultai. Of those 15, only one, two, three, four, five, five were yeah. Sultai. I'm, I feel like it's going to be... So for three months, a 17 figure is three to four a month. Is that right? I think that's about right. Uh, yes, that's, so, that's accurate. Well, that stands to reason. Yeah, maybe four, four to five a month. I think that's about right. But but so, I also don't think Archive Trap is the is the is the only baseline here, right? Yes, I, I also think you know, look, there's just, always a slow burn for these things. These things don't just automatically appear. <laughs> that's right? fair. That's so fair. So I'm, I think 17 is good. Okay. Let's turn to fair Fu- Let's turn to Fury next, if you don't mind. Okay, no problem. So Fury is the red portion of this cycle, and Fury is, well, basically it's pyrokinesis. Yes. <laughs> not, not to put too fine a point on it, but let's get to the other stats. It's five mana, three RR, 
It's uh, it has double strike and it's a three three. When Fury enters the battlefield, it deals four damage divided as you choose among any number of target creatures and or planeswalkers. So it's actually a little better than pyrokinesis. Yes, yeah. But um, so but otherwise, it has all the same bell uh, bellwethers of this pitch cycle. So here's the funny thing, Kevin. So the mighty Montolio uh, this weekend, he top aided the one of the challenges with pyrokinesis and Holovine. And when I saw his list, I actually did not consciously realize he was actually playing with pyrokinesis and not fury. I just assumed <laughs> it was fury because I didn't remember the name of the red card, but I remembered <laughs> reading it in the spoiler, right? And yeah. so I was like, there's no way. Yeah, actually, here it is. His list is um, until his fourth place on June 5th. He had two pyrokinesis main deck and two in the sideboard. And then on Twitter, he posted the list and said, Yes, I did not even know Fury existed. So number one. Wow. <laughs> so number one. So number one, I am very disappointed in you that uh, Montolio that you did uh, did not read the spoiler. You you shattered my dreams in your and uh, <laughs> in, in your magic uh, brewing uh, tendencies. No, I I kid. Um, but he did have he had two endurance in his cyborg. But there two, you go. two endurance, but two pyrokinesis. So like, he didn't know it existed. <laughs> uh, so obviously, that, if he's running four pyrokinesis between the main and sideboard, Fury has a place, right? <laughs> this we need to put a pin in this moment because this <laughs> moment is going to go down in history for its comedy value. <laughs> this is just amazing that the moment Fury is previewed. He plays pyrokinesis. Yeah. We've had access to pyrokinesis for literally, you know, ninety-five percent of the history of vintage. Yeah, it was in alliances, right? So that's right. For as long as we've had force of will, we've had pyrokinesis. <laughs> oh, geez, that's really, really funny to me. Okay, so, but your point is well made. If pyrokinesis is playable, um, and note that pyrokinesis can only hit creatures, whereas fury can hit. Uh, Planeswalkers, planeswalkers as well yes yeah uh I, and also obviously fury is a creature which makes it in just inherently Again, same thing double, of negation, doubly relevant for vengevine uh thalia thorn all of that <laughs> and vengevine yes and vengevine. which is why it's in these hollowvine decks yes or will be yes <laughs> in Montolio's case. it's amazing <laughs> it's absolutely amazing that he did that <laughs> That's why. Good grief! Third we better, place we in the challenge sa- with we a handicap. We better save the Twitter snapshot of this because he's going to delete it. <laughs> well, good good work to you, Montolio. But so the the point is well made, though. There are there are network effects going on here with respect to why this Hollowvine deck is improved right yes. now. Fury is one of the cards. Endurance, which we just discussed, is one of the cards. There's a Root Walla coming up, which is one yes. of the cards. Squeeze so is in the deck. Yeah. So <laughs> there's the combination of factors here. But the simple truth is, is that Fury matches up well against basically every creature in vintage that you're gonna it's, be in combat with. It's also importantly in the dread in the in the bizarre mirror, it can hit a hollow one. So it, well, precisely. Hollow yeah. one in particular. Yeah. And also you know, you want to know something funny, Steve, is for all the reasons that grief is good in dredge vis-a-vis dr- uh, bridge from below, fury is good against yes. dredge. Yes, yes, no doubt. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so you, like it blows he, up your opponent's bridges. <laughs> yep. Right. So you can you can obviously see what's going on here in the Dredge ver- versus Hollow One or Hollowvine kind of matchup. Dredge goes first, and they take a card out of the you know Hollowvine's hand, and they bizarre, and they play a Hollow One, and they set up their graveyard with a bridge, and they say go. And Hollowvine says, Hollowvine says, bizarre, discard a Rootwalla, discard <laughs> some other piece of garbage, uh, a Vengevine, I mean, play the Rootwalla, then I play my own Hollow One, and oh, by the way, I evoke Fury, kill your Hollow One, and exile your bridge, go. <laughs> this, is the most, like, this is the most amazing time, exciting time to be playing Bizarre <laughs> Mirrors. It's, it's, it's so, on the tools, but, I mean, we've gotten three cards into this cycle, and all three of them are playable. And uh, immediately yeah. in these decks. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. It's just incredible. Now, it, it won't be like that for the other two, but that's not the point. The point is well made, that this is a great cycle. And to, in order to, to make a cycle and have well, at least three-fifths of them relevant in vintage, that t- takes some work, right? Yeah. Even the, even the force cycle that came out of Modern Horizons 1 didn't meet that threshold, right? It only got two out of the three into vintage. Yes. Yeah. We talked force of negation. I'm sorry, two out of five is yes. what I meant to say. Two out of five. Yeah, okay, I what so you meant. this is already beat as, that. Yeah, yeah. As compared to grief and endurance, though, fury has, I think, a much narrower set of. Wait a second, Kevin. That makes this the best free spell cycle of all time, because the original yeah. ley lines only two of them actually saw play at first, and only one was very any good at yeah. first. Uh, the original alliance cycle, only force of will was good at first. Um, in the modern horizon, contagion. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes this the best pitch cycle of all time, or for, sorry, free spell cycle of all time. That is a compelling argument, and I'd have to study it a little bit more to say definitively. But uh, yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. <laughs> and also, and, these are and not. We still cards. haven't gotten to the blue one. And the yeah, and these are tactical cards. Meaning that they're not oh, yeah. cards that, um, these are not cards that are like driving people to a turn one win. Well, you know, or even a turn well, they're, two they're, win. They're, they're all removal. Yeah, they're all tactical cards. Or disruptive. Dis- yeah. Th- yeah, they're tactical. They're not, you know, they're not like, I don't know, a card like, um, Leyline of the Life Force that makes elves combo out on turn two or something, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Well, so as, as I started to say, Fury is great, but it has narrower applications. It goes in Hollowvine and probably not much else. I, I could be wrong about that, but there's no other deck in Vintage that has well, a concentration of red spells that you, also wants to be killing creatures. You would, ha- I mean, so you, the Hollowvine has Squee and Blazing Rootwalla, and you would need, I think, both Squee. You would need a deck with Squee to justify sure. Fury. I think. Well, or, I mean, you could construct a, a Xerox deck that had 20 red cards True. in it, right? That's not that's not out of the question. And we're going to talk about that in the future, in fact. But that deck doesn't even want Fury, right? That deck's not Yeah, it's in not it castable. For, yeah. It, it, yeah. You know, it's, an, it's a one-off. It's Yeah, I agree. But boy, is it good. I mean, you can <laughs> really hit... You could hit a lot of things. It would have been fun to see this card in a Mentor era. Oh, yeah. As an answer to Mentor. Good point. Because really it doesn't point. trigger a mentor ever, you know. It's a creature. And um, four damage is kind of the sweet spot for killing a mentor via via damage. Yes. Yeah. It's hard to stop it, right? You can't fluster, misstep it. Um, yeah. Wow. We've been interesting. 
So Say love my me. feelings, yeah, my feelings way, on the how quantity great would of this card have been against Lodestone Golem. In that oh, wow, nice, <laughs> nice, especially in conjunction with Ingot Chewer. I know. <laughs> oh wow, wow! Imagine if they had they had Lodestone and a Revoker on your mocks, oh. and you evoke this and get both of them, turning yeah. your mocks back it's on, like wow. Thorn, all that. <laughs> wow! Wow! Wow. Okay, okay. So in terms of quantity of predictions, I, I believe that Fury is going to come in a little under grief. And the reason I say that is just because for now, I I got to give the advantage to Dredge as the presumptive best Bizarre deck, though I don't think that's the not ma- a sure thing. I don't think thing. the math, the evidence supports that right now, but go ahead. Well, tell me more about that. Well, Hollow Vine has more overall top eights. Yeah, I think since well, obviously oh, since over what time period? Well, it has three in the last weekend, and Dredge has one. So <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> uh, I mean, early early results are are not always predictive, but I take your yeah. meaning there. Sure, sure. But I'm looking over the past three months, and I realize that's that data is with an asterisk at this point with respect to the impact of this set. But over the last three months, Dredge has far outperformed Hollowvine. Hollowvine yeah. put up very few, if any top eights in i mean scant few one or two in the last three months whereas dredge put up a dozen yeah that's why i say that dredge is the presumptive fair enough um presumptive better bizarre deck i'm open to being wrong about that but i'm just going on some some that form of evidence this weekend i agree with you it looks like Hollowvine's doing better and it could be that actually endurance is the thing that actually pushes Hollowvine over the top. It could be that Endurance's effect against Dredge and in the mirror, in fact, and against Doomsday is the thing that really does it. We shall see. But what that tells me is that I predict... Also, there's one other thing, and that is you can build Hollowvine without Fury, but you won't build Dredge without Grief. That's the other thing. <laughs> yeah. You know? I believe yeah. Fury is very good in Hollowvine, but it's not a critical part of its strategy. But your Dredge deck without Grief is an inferior Dredge deck. There's Agreed. just no two ways about it. So, and that's part of my calculus so as well. So, you give give a number. I'm I feel like I feel like um 12 for Fury. Wow. Okay. I think that that is right in range. I think Grief is going to be number 1. Mm-hmm. I think Endurance is number 2 and I think Fury will be below Endurance. Because Endurance can be played in a larger range of decks. Exactly. And this basically only goes into Holovine. I think 12 is a little high. So let's see, for the next three months, let's assume there are f- six Holovine decks per month in top eight. That would be 18 over three months, which would be June, July, August. Mm-hmm. And let's assume that two-thirds of the Holovine decks run this. That would put me at two thirds of eighteen, which would be twelve. That's where all. That's what you said, right? So that's just, my number. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we can both say yeah, the same number. I'm we don't. S- we try not to, but it's not unprecedented. Uh, should I? I'll go. I'll go a tick higher. I'll go thirteen. All right, taking the over on twelve. You got it. <laughs> what a jerk! <laughs> you just said that with hey, we, such underlying and subtle resentment. <laughs> what, we, we have gone, we've gone every which way with this mathematics in the past, right? Yeah. The jerk move is when I say one and you say two, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, like, that's the worst. That's the worst, right there. 
we're All only right. we're only so, teasing each other to our audience by the way so. right right we don't there's no money writing on the line here no so we still have two cards in just this cycle to talk about but we're not going to spend nearly as much time but i got to talk about subtlety go for it and this is going to be interesting from a theoretical standpoint if not necessarily for a practical implication standpoint the- subtlety is the blue one it's two uu it has flash again it has flying and it's a three three so this is a flash flying phantom monster when subtlety enters the battlefield, this is and pay close attention. Choose up to one, up to one target creature spell. The word spell is important, or planeswalker spell. Its owner puts it on top or bottom of their library. So the word spell is important here yeah. because spells only exist on the stack. Right. So this does it's not affect any card in play. This is only a counter spell for creatures or planeswalkers. It's, a, it's, it's not a, a full counter spell. Soul. It's a, it's, it it's a memory it, lapse. I'm sorry. A memory lapse removes soul hybrid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So a couple of things about that in concept. One is it's not nearly as good as force of will. It's not even as good as force no. of negation. No. It can hit one of these uh, other spells in the cycle. I'm though, not sure. It's, is, I'm not nice. sure it's as good as foil, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you might not be wrong about that. The, the point is the, the narrowness of the application here is enormous. And, you couple that with the fact that it doesn't even fully eliminate the spell, like they could draw it next turn if they yeah. want, means this is really a pure tempo play. It would be useful against uncounterable things, but with respect to creatures and planeswalkers, that's not really a thing in Vintage. Yeah. Can you think, is there an uncounterable creature that anyone plays? I don't think there is. Uh, you're asking the wrong guy. I don't play formats. <laughs> no, I don't. Where... I don't think there is. Okay, but the point play, is, is that I play this formats is, this is... that <laughs> that are so old. <laughs> They're older than most <laughs> Magic players. <laughs> so, this is almost purely a tempo play in Vintage, and Vintage is not a tempo format right now. No, just it's just not. And so, I'm straight up going to say I think this is a zero in Vintage. Oh yeah, I would. Yes, I would. In, in the average game, you will have targets for this. So don't get me wrong. I mean, against Dredge and Hollowvine, you're going to have targets for this. It's just that countering a creature temporarily against a bizarre deck is a terrible prospect. There's a card in Vintage called Red Elemental Blast and Pyroblast that <laughs> <laughs> basically yeah. do most of what this would do for you without having well, to lose a ma- lose a card. I'm no, the, this the is different targets, of course, of course, but yeah. yeah, this this is just a zero. I I don't think we need to belabor the point. This is a this is a neat design, and it's good in other formats. There's no two ways about that. What a great name for a card, though. Oh, and the art is just incredible. I mean, the art on all these is incredible, but the art on subtlety is really beautiful. the The water shape was really well rendered. It's awesome. Yeah. All right, so let's finish this cycle. Let's finish this cycle with the white one, which is solitude. And there's no two ways about it. This is swords to plowshares. It's five mana, it's flash, it's lifelink and three two. So it's a lifelinking three two for five mana. When solitude enters the battlefield, exile up to one target, other target creature, excuse me, it can it can exile itself. It's not also healing sav. Uh, that creature's controller gains life equal to its power. It sorts the plowshares. Five mana, which means that the manual casting is kind of out on vintage. It, um, Steve... Obviously, Swords to Plowshares is still a relevant vintage card. Yes. But it's never been worse to try and just swords a creature as a well, as a, an answer to a situation vis-a-vis Dredge and um and uh Thassa's Oracle, for example. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I still think Swords has a role against Dredge. I mean, you know, if you have like a ley line in play and your opponent goes hollow one route, swords is quite useful. Uh, if you're picking away at their <laughs> cards gradually, you can swords and Icarid, and it can be quite important. 
you know, before the swords in their in their draw step before they get to the main phase to, to flashback therapy or attack. Um, I still think you know swords is played for a reason. It's a good card in vintage. How many swords are there in recent top eights? Maybe you can do a quick search while I'm while I'm uh, extemporaneously assessing this <laughs> card. I, I think swords is still a useful effect. I think that the power of swords is both the combination of its efficiency and the impact in compactness in a card. So I think spreading swords, I think taking the one mana out of swords and making it cost another card is a bridge too far. I think it's that, it's already so efficient that it doesn't really gain much by making it a pitch spell, right? Yeah. Especially one where you have to pitch another white card. There are white cards you can pitch. You can pitch like a Lavinia or something like that, but I just don't think there's nearly enough value in that. To justify, and by the way, this this art is this art is awesome. On Unsol- this might be my favorite of the. It looks like like Dave like Dave Sinkovich, Bill Sinkovich, who is a comic book uh, cover artist and art great artist. Um, but so how many swords are there in recent top eights? In the month of May, in challenges and prelims, there are one, two, three, four, five, six. There were six appearances by Swords to Plowshares. Five of them are in the... Just uh, guy. With, no, not at all. Five of them are in the Archon of Ameria decks. Oh, yeah, of course. The, the White, the white the Eldrazi band. decks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there there's like the Noble Bant version, and then there's the White Eldrazi deck. I guess Jeskai's yeah, kind of in disappeared. In this case, is, Jeskai has completely disappeared. The only other appearance... So it's a split between the Jeskai and the Eldrazi decks. Uh, the only other appearance was uh, one Underworld Breach decks, which is yeah. ostensibly a Jeskai deck. Yes. has its one mentor in it. And and one copy of Swords to Plowshares, it looks like. Yeah. Oh, um, no, sorry. I'm sorry. This list had three swords. I where apologize. Is, where subtlety is a guaranteed zero, this is actually a non-guaranteed zero. I would not be shocked. I mean, for example, in the one deck where this could actually be useful is like a White Eldrazi deck. Um, yes. Or like, a, it's, no, I take that back. I think this is too much for a White Eldrazi deck. I think in a White Hate Bears deck, this could be quite useful. Because El- White Eldrazi does not have enough... Like they're it's so inconsistent to begin with. This is not really castable, even with ancient tombs. Um, I think though, in hate bears, is where you have like a super density. For example, if you have a second Thalia in your hand that you can't play, and you can cast Solitude to clear out some menacing threat, like a mentor or a hull breacher or whatever the case may be. This I could see, or a hollow one. This could be great. It can't be. So I, th- I think what you're, you're what you're specifically alluding to is the white card spell count. Yes. Across those two archetypes, right? Yes. The typical white Eldrazi list has Tharlia, Guardian of Thraben, and Archon of Ameria, plus a smattering of other small white creatures. number, but not a yeah. lot. It's the white hate bears Pe- deck that has the lot. Right. So and those Eldrazi lists are peeking out at about a dozen white cards. They can't support a pitch white spell. No. Yeah. It's the it's the white hate bears decks, which still put up top eights. There's a phenomenal one we're going to talk about in this set, the <laughs> Sanctifier. So. so what we're getting at here is even though there is a, an archetype, White Eldrazi, that would probably probably enjoy a pitch plow in, in some context, it just can't support it. And prior to that, yeah, I mean, Jeskai has really fallen off the face of the format. And the Underworld Breach deck that I alluded to, even though it runs three plows... Those are like the only white cards in the deck. There's a, a mentor and maybe one or two others. I can't think of off the hand. Maybe some Thal or uh, sorry, Lavinius. That that deck can't support 
pitching white cards to this. So really, the, the problem this card faces is not so much the utility of a pitch plow, but more so that there's no deck in the format that runs a sufficient density of white cards that is a consistent Except performer. Except for White Eldrazi, yeah. White Eldrazi does Eldrazi have li- top eights. It, it does have top eights. Oh, no, no, but it doesn't have, the, that doesn't have the density, right? It's top eighting with 10 or 12 white cards in its deck. Sorry, I, I said White Hate Bears is what I meant. The oh, yeah. So, I can't find a recent top I, I performance can. of that white one. Uh, there's a fourth place list of a white hate bears deck. Oh wait, no, that deck has it has four thought thought not seers in it. Um, that's an Eldrazi. Yeah. That's an Eldrazi list. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm only looking at the last month or so. Uh, obviously, there was a period where that uh, noble deck was doing well, and that deck might have been a better candidate for it. But uh, that deck kind of fell off in favor of the Eldrazi variant now. Suffice it to say, if this appears, it's going to be in vanishingly small numbers, right? Yeah. And also, what's the pressure to have a pitch plow? To your point, Swords to Plowshares is always it's already as efficient as it could possibly be. And I just think that even decks that could support it with a sufficient white spell count aren't pressured on that axis. Agreed. You don't need a free plow against dredge. You don't need a free. You don't want a free plow against doomsday. Whatever. What other use cases are there? There's just not. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to go with zero. Me too. Yeah. Kevin, we have a lot of ground to cover. Let's talk about the cards we want to review before we. This is not for the podcast. Let's talk about the cards we want to review for the rest of the set since we just did the first five card cycle. Okay. Yeah. So I want to review. I'll tell you what. I want to review Master of Death. I want to review Sanctifier and Vec, which you don't have on the list. I obviously nobody even asked for Sanctifier. It's and insane. Vec. That's interesting. It's insanely good. I want to review um, Blazing Rootwalla, Yavamaya, Ignoble Hierarch, Ragavan and Void, Ragavan and Void Mirror, and I could care yeah. less. And Urza Saga. I think we should just close with Urza Saga. Let's do that last because it's so. We got to talk about. I'm going to talk about Dragon's Rage channel. That's fine. I'm just saying those are the cards that I care about. So, oh, okay. Um, I, I, the other cards I could care less. I'm just, you can make the case for the other ones, but I think we've got to, yeah. got to get moving. We're, we don't, can't do, it's going to be a long, long night if we do all the ones you have here. It, that's true. We, I'm comfortable cleaving a few. <sighs> all right. So. I would suggest let's just move on to, because I think let's it, do Urza Saga next. No, actually, I was going to say let's do Blazing Root Walla next since we've already been in the 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 bazaar. Oh. I actually would save Urza Saga that, for last because it's pro, it's possibly the most powerful card in the entire set. Okay. Um, okay. And I, I think well, let's do Blazing Root Walla. Closing with it is is very powerful. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. <clears throat> We'll keep All our right, energy Steve, up. Since, Sorry, go ahead. Since since we've already talked about the archetype so much, and you even mentioned the card, let's talk about Blazing Root Walla then. <laughs> this is this is just a red Root Walla. Yeah. There's not too much more to it than that, but it has a couple of levers that are important. One, it's a red card, so it already interacts with Fury in a positive way. Yes. And Pyrokinesis, as Montolio has shown. There's another key thing. Okay, so what is Basking Root Walla? It's the green one, Madness Zero. It's a 1-1. One, one. You put 1G into it. And it gets plus two, plus two. Blazing no. Root Walla is... Oh, sorry, go ahead. You're right. Yes, yeah. 
It is plus two. Plus Blazing two. Root Wallet is almost the same card, but it has some levers pulled on it. Yes. It's red. It's still a 1-1. One, one. It still has Madness 0, but its activation is only a single mana. It's R. Yes. And it gets plus two plus zero. Zero, yes. And the fact that it costs one less to activate this is enormous because you never needed that toughness with, with Basking Root Wallet. Okay, rarely needed that toughness. The fact that this gets the same power for half the activation cost is big. And the fact that you can play eight Root Wallas in the Vengevine decks is big. And the fact that this is red and Pitches to Fury is big. Yeah. So all the way yeah. around, this is just a super high it's, synergy alternative to Basking Root Walla. It's crazy that they printed this card to me. I mean, I remember my mind was blown when they printed Simeon, uh, Simeon Spirit Guide, because Elvis Spirit Guide was like <laughs> one of my favorite cards in Grimlong post. Yeah. You know, and it's like, oh my God. God, Simeon, like they're trying to make it's so much better. Yeah, and they're trying to make everything just like so fast and combo delicious. Um, it's just crazy to me that they printed this card. It's like it's already like these cards are already silly enough to begin with. Like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> like, we need more Basking Root Walla. Now the Hollow Vine decks will never run any of the what was it Memnite garbage again. They get right. this stuff right. Um, right. I, I don't think this is better than Basking Root Walla though. And I'll tell you why. I think it's very simple. Um, okay. Basking Root Walla, it's just green is a... Gaius Cradle is a, the natural um, mana booster in these Hollowvine decks. They all have, like, because of Montoya, they all have Ga- Gaius Cradle. And you obviously can pump... With, with a Basking Root Walla and a Blazing Root Walla in play, you can tap a Gaius Cradle every turn to attack for four. Um, oh, I see your point. Yes, that's a really good point. I didn't consider the fact that you... You're still much more incentivized to play Cradle because of its power than you are to dip into red. Yes, as a as a mana cost. So no, those those decks are not going to be able to p- activate the Blazing Ruwala to the best of my knowledge under any circumstances. Unless they've got Death Right, right? Yeah, those are more the Hogak decks than the Hollow Vine. Um, gotcha, gotcha. So I suppose those could, but red is. I mean, you're already black. You're already green. You kind of want to get you know Bayou stuff going. I guess you could, and sometimes they they play Savannah, whatever, for um, oh the white enchant, deafening silence in the sideboard, stuff like that. Um, right. Okay, so maybe dipping into red is too far unless you just go full five color lands. Yeah. But the power of cradle cannot be ignored. Right. So, and I'm trying to remember all the different ways you can get mana. We're going to talk about this with our next card, which is Yavamaya, because it's related to all this. Um, mm-hmm. For a while, Dredge used to play uh, Riftstone Portal, right? Which is a card in the graveyard, a land in the graveyard that allow your Dredge, your uh, Bazaar to tap for was it white or green? Is that right? Correct. Even if you have a Riftstone Portal, you still can't activate this. So there's uh, there's not an easy <laughs> right. cheat to be able to activate this, even though it's more efficient. To your point, this would have just been like phenomenal back in the standard days. <laughs> oh, my word! Yeah. So as it stands, though, let me let me put it to you this way: Do you feel like the proper construction of Hollow Vine has a non-zero number of this card? Uh, the proper construction of Hollow Vine has four of these, and here's why: okay. This card is strictly superior to the Memnite because of Madness. If you can have right. no cards in your hand, and you can have um, Venge Vines in the graveyard, and if you hit Blazing Root Walla, Basking Root Walla. They're all the Vengevines come into play. You do not have to cast this card from your hand ever. Yep. 
Completely agree. I agree. The proper construction of this deck has eight of those. So what that tells me is that our calculus... Okay, so before I go one step further, do you think there's any other deck that wants this card? Outside of sort of hollow wine bizarre decks? Not to my knowledge. I mean, so there were back in the day, as you recall, there were the Oshawa Stompy decks. (laughs) Remember those? The survival decks with bizarre. I suppose it's possible to build a survival deck with survival and Rootwallas, and you could probably get reliable Taiga, but when was the last time we actually... I mean, it's been a couple of years since we actually saw survivals. It's just sort of morphed yeah. into Holovine. Um, yeah. I suppose those decks could use this, but they don't exist in the current iteration of Vintage. There's a big problem with this card in the Hogak decks in that this card doesn't cast Hogak. No, it's not black or green. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think you play this in Hogak. Agreed. Yeah. You might so still, like you might c- still actually, just because it activates, um, but but probably not. I'd have to go look at the study yeah. the lists, but I don't think they have it. Yeah. It it's just not synergistic with that list. Maybe there's a corner case for one or two because it's I I, I can't think of another card that it's better than. Anyway, I'm feeling like the Hollowvine decks are the only place this goes. So, which to me says means it's our be, predictions. It's going to be between the range of endurance and fury. Is what you're exactly. saying? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I gave a pretty high number to endurance. I said thirty. You didn't go so high, but I only said twelve for fury. It feels like, yeah, it feels like you could build Hollowvine without fury, but you can't build it without this. Which means I'm just going to ratchet that number up a few and say uh, sixteen. Well, I said seventeen for endurance and twelve for fury, but my assumption for endurance is that it would be played beyond these bizarre decks. Naturally. So I may. <sighs> I may actually go higher on this because whereas I thought it was like, I think like Fury will be in two thirds of the Hollow Line decks. I think this will be in a hundred percent of them. Yeah, exactly. So what was your number? And, and your number this? was eighteen. Uh, I just said sixteen, but to use the mechanism you just said, you had started with uh, eighteen, 18 so as your target 18. number of. That's what I'm gonna say. Yeah. That's actually the number I was going to say, and then you reminded me of my, that I had actually <laughs> set that out. So it's good that those two things now, converged. <laughs> I, I want to point something out here, and I'm, I'm giving you an opportunity here. 18 is higher than the 17 you said for endurance. Yes, I think this will see more play than endurance. For the reason I just said, why? Because I th- well, I I, I, I think, think that's a mistake. So he, let me explain. I think endurance is going to appear in um in, I think it's going to be a beyond the Hollowvine decks, but I don't think it's going to be in 100% of Hollowvine sideboards. So I mm, think okay. whereas this is going to be in 100% of Hollowvine decks, it's inconceivable to me that someone would build Hollowvine without this. It's not like it's Agreed. a rare, it's a common, right? Probably, or a m- uncommon, maybe? Oh, I don't even know the answer to that. Let me double check. Let's <laughs> see. Let me look at let me the look point at the is it's symbol. not going to be expensive. It's an uncommon. No, yeah. it won't be on. So I think this is going to be a hundred percent of hollow vines, whereas endurance is going to be be played beyond hollow vine, but not in a hundred percent of hollow vines. So that explains the paradox. Why I think it's going to be more than endurance. <sighs> I think what you've just said is correct. At the same time, I just feel like. So, what percentage of hollow vine decks do you think are going to have endurance? Half. I think probably sixty percent, and then it's going to show up in other stuff. Sixty percent of eighteen is right around ten. Then, yeah, 10 I, think or 11. Endur- I think endurance is going to show up in some dredge sideboards. I think it's going to show up elsewhere. It's very I mean, possible so you're, that you're, my endurance is too. You said endurance was thirty, and I said seventeen. Yeah, 
I'm not gonna. I'm just trying to. Numbers. I'm just trying to. I'm trying to help you with your math here. Yeah. It sounds like you're predicting six other appearances of endurance outside of Holofine. That sounds, which seems far too low. I think it's going to appear. Well, I I could see endurance being played even in fewer Holofines. I think it's going to appear in maybe one or two bugs, maybe one or two rug sideboards. Look, I I'm not going to yeah. tinker with my seventeen. It, it's okay. it's it could okay. be anywhere from. 14 to 35 you know who knows um it's a rare it's going to be slow to be adopted as people figure out the configuration of graveyard hate they want and as people people are comfortable with archive trap which i think is garbage like you think are going to be slow to switch it's not going to be an overnight switch it's going to be something people figure out on mass over time okay fair enough so when making predictions over the next three months you know things just don't move that swiftly so i'm very comfortable fair enough Let's let's let's, turn, let's talk about Yavamaya. I need to use the restroom though. Give me a break. Okay. I will too. I think we should move on next to Yavamaya because it uh, dovetails with the Holovine decks, right? So Yavamaya is just a green version of Urborg. It's not really much more complex than that. It's a legendary <laughs> yep. land. Each land is a forest in addition to its other land types. So Urborg has a place in vintage history, right, Steve? I mean, there's a number of workshop and, and bizarre decks and other things that have just needed that kind of mechanical access to uh, adding mana to their lands, like bizarre, right, which opens up some opportunities vis-a-vis paying for spheres and things like that. And also uh, black casting workshop decks that needed to have access to non-workshop mana via, via their workshops for things like let's call it uh, activating Grindstone, for example, or casting a Demonic Tutor, that kind of thing. So there's precedent here, right? Pretty clearly, I think there's precedent here. And so then it's just a question of, well, did the modern workshop or bizarre decks need to turn their non-green producing lands into producing green occasionally for effects like pumping a root wall, as we talked about, casting a green spell, perhaps... I think there's a precedent for it, although I don't think there's really strong demand at this time. What do you think? Well, I think you're probably right. There's not like strong demand, but um, you know, we are working with the benefit of actually having a couple of published lists. Montolio's deck list had had a Yavamai mm-hmm. on the sideboard. Um, and we can talk about what he was thinking when he did that, right? Yeah. Well, he can hard cast mm-hmm. Force of Vigor with enough lands. He can boost Brute Wallas. He can uh, pay for uh, hard cast st- Stone Coil Serpents. He can uh, pay for Sphere Effects. He can, there are he a lot can of things. sidestep Void I, Mirror I just, if it comes here's, to that. Yeah. Here's the observation I want to make about this kind of effect. When Planar Chaos came out, I... I think I wrote a set review. I'm not 100% sure. I'm pretty sure I did. And I just don't remember thinking that Urborg was going to be a game changer. And over the years, I was just consistently impressed and surprised, looking back now, on how frequently it appeared and in different places and has seen play. It just, over time, has just shown up again and again as a workhorse utility card in two-card Monty decks, which are heavily played right now as Golos mm-hmm. versions shop with Golos and shop in uh, used to be called what were those decks called those mono black decks with them for a while that were quite popular. Oh, sorry. Um, with Liliana, 
the mono black decks with with what those used to be called from from about a decade 12 years ago or so they were they were popular and vintage for a bit um with with even before they had dark depths it was like it was called um they had dark depths it was called um oh shoot it'll come (laughs) back to me later um i mean i even remember i think i have one memory of what was it uh tuan owner town (laughs) anthony michaels playing with um the barbarian ring the black barbarian ring card yeah and i i just think that i i i mean i've just seen so many decks that have urborg you know use urborg over time that i think this is just going to be one of those cards just gently inserted in the card pool and just watch it appear in different places it it won't happen in the most obvious way, but it'll yep. happen. It'll find well, root. Well, Golos Golos is a perfect and, example of utility for the card as a one of right, and that's it's been showing up a ton there. Yes. But Urborg is always going to get the nod over Yavimaya because Golos is using it to cast black spells, Leyland of the Void, Dismember, occasionally other things. And so, I agree with you in principle, except Yavimaya is never going to get the nod over Urborg in that sense. Yavimaya. For that in that particular oh, iteration of the deck, but maybe there could but, be others. Maybe you, you, all it takes is for there to be a force of vigor in their sideboard when Yavimai gets the nod, right? Yeah. Exactly. So your point is well made there. The uh, the Holovine decks being base green decks are always going to use uh, Yavimaya if they need that effect. The Hogak decks are an interesting case, right? Evenly split across green and black for the most part, yes. and so they could go either way depending on what they're trying to accomplish. So I think there's plenty of use cases in Vintage, and it's kind of just a matter of who, what pilots find that it helps their matchups this way or that way. I, I think it's a little unpredictable, but I think it's undeniable that the card is going to see play. Those black decks were called Dark Times. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, you can also play, for example, imagine you had an Elves deck, Kevin. And you wanted to play with a bunch of, I don't know, Wastelands and Strip Mine and Library of Alexandria mm-hmm. and stuff like sure. that. This will help you use those immediately if you want to yep. tap them for green. I don't know. I'm just, I'm going way out on a limb, but I'm trying to illustrate. If you had a green based Eldrazi list, right? Your Eldrazi temples and your ancient tombs yes. are forests. Very, very useful. Yeah, I mean, you and I are coming to the same conclusion here, I feel, which is that this is going to be played. It's hard to predict how much. It's not a critical part of the Holovine construction. Montolio probably could have made top eight as he did without it. I I don't know how his matches went, but the point is, it's not critical. A sideboard effect. Um, I'm I'm inclined to say a non-zero number, but a pretty low one. And we'll just watch it pop up here and there. If it becomes a useful tool of Hollowvine in fighting certain tactics, then it will actually be pretty popular. It'll actually show up ten or more times, potentially. Yep. I'm inclined to think that you could construct Hollowvine without it, though. And which tells me some people are going to do it, some people aren't, and so I'm going to go with a, a modest number like five. That's reasonable. I see nothing that tells me this is critically important. 
There's not a dominant sphere-based strategy in Vintage right now. Workshops are still present, so spheres are a thing. Right. But I don't think it's critical. You can you can you could put a different land here and get a similar benefit against shops in fighting a sphere specifically. It's not even clear that if we were four years ago, this would be so important for like a dredge deck. Right, because you could still tap this to catch your, cast your nature. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, this probably would have been superior in that particular era to Urborg and those dredge lists. But as we've alluded to, that was not... It was, that trend in deck construction wasn't pervasive. It didn't last for a long time. I think five is a very reasonable number. So what do you think? Well, I'm trying to think how many people are going to copy Montolio mm-hmm. here. A, a, a meaningful metric. Yeah. Um, the Hollowvine deck that got second place the next day did not run this. It had a guy as, another guy's credit in the sideboard and Endurance and Fury and Petrified Field. Mm-hmm. Well, Petrified Field's another good alternative to this. For for, for obvious yeah. reasons, I would think. Um, It is interesting, by the way, that this can help you cast Once Upon a Time. <laughs> yeah. So if you're playing Once, once Upon yeah. a Time, it's a reason and to play And these Holovine decks tend to play Once Upon a Time, so that's a good mark in its favor, sure. And if there were, there were as I said, yeah. a green-heavy Eldrazi deck, that would be a mark in that in favor in that archetype too. There isn't one right now. Also, here's something interesting. You can if you have tabernacle, if you're going, you know, you can tap the tabernacle for mana with this. Yeah. Sure. Um I'm just gonna go I'm gonna go let's see, for to make things interesting I should take the over under, but five sounds like smack dab <laughs> in the middle of the range. Let's see. I'll take the over. Okay. You want six? Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want either one of us to be consistently going over the other person. <laughs> in other words, I don't want our spreads to look like, yeah. you know, wings on an airplane, where one person against a graph, where one person's wings, you know, are higher <laughs> than the others, because that doesn't make it fun. I, I like the fact that you've taken the over in some cases, and I'm I taking completely the over. agree. All right. So where do you want to go next? <laughs> Let's do one more card, Kevin, in the kind of functional reprint category sure. for a moment. Although it's not quite. Let's talk about Master of Death. Oh, interesting. Master of Death is one UB. It's a zombie wizard. It's a 3-1. It says, when Master of Death enters the battlefield, surveil two. Okay. At the beginning of your upkeep, if Master of Death is in your graveyard, you may pay one life. If you do, return it to your hand. One life to just return this. So this is Squee. This yeah. is a blue-black Squee, right? Squee. And it costs, costs a, life, a life, which is irrelevant. It's better than Squee when it comes into play because Surveil 2 and being a 3-1 is just better. But this is not about being in play. This is about being a blue-black Squee. And as we discussed before, vis-a-vis Force of Will, Force of Negation, Grief, and, and Unmask, as well as uh, Ikrit, the fact that this is a blue-black Squee is just incredible, right? 
it's crazy. <laughs> it does it, yeah. it does everything that the dredge decks kind of want to do for in all modes and all zones. Yeah. I just can you imagine if this had been legal back in 2003 uh, when we were playing World Gorger Dragon oh, combo? Jeez. Yeah. Cuz they could have used this with force, you know, you'd be with um what was the uh compulsion? Yeah. Um, you know, you could play unmasked yeah. with this. It's just amazing what this could have done. So this this card seems to support the kind of mid-game utility for grief example that you described in detail earlier yes. very, very well. Because this card with access to this card in your deck, and you don't even need a lot of them, right? Two of them might make might make do. You just have reliable ability to cast your mid-game grief or your mid-game force of will. It's so yeah. reliable. Yeah. Yep. So part of what you're trying to do... So l- let me just construct a couple parameters around the discussion mm-hmm. for a moment. Suppose you're playing, number one, a bizarre deck. Suppose, number two, that your opponent is not playing Wastelanders, so you get to use your bizarre. Um, and you want to be able to interact, mm-hmm. Right. What you want to be able to do as quickly as possible in that specific scenario is is to be able to get as many squeeze into your graveyard as quickly right. as possible. Because if you can, once you get three squee effects in your graveyard, you are essentially just drawing two two free cards every turn, sort of become right. ancestral recall land. And the problem with just the four squeeze is that if you can't find a squee quickly, if you just get one. You're still kind of lose. You're you're just you're not quite yeah. breaking even. Even I mean, now of course I'm just talking in ter in terms of pure yeah. cards, right? Not in terms of, um, you know, the advantage that you want to actually have some cards in your graveyard, like Rich from Below or whatever, Vengevine. Um, and so this now for the first time creates a possibility where you can play up mm-hmm. to eight squeeze. Now we've talked about cards that get somewhat close like that, but we really haven't seen... I I vaguely recall in the last year and a half we did a set review in which we discussed a card in the context of Dredge that I, I vaguely thought had an outside shot of being played. S- Silver Smoke Ghoul. Dredge because it was something... Remind that me one that comes... One if, you've, uh, if you've gained life during your turn, it comes back into play. Oh, yeah. yeah, it was not <laughs> nearly like, as good. It, it required Creeping yeah. Chill, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So... So this is, this is, yeah, just functionally squeed. Now, I've actually played against this. Mm-hmm. I've seen that work, and it's quite powerful. You know, the opponent's light life's ticked down one a turn while they were just reusing the bazaars, and they had one squee and one of this, and then eventually two mm-hmm. squee and one of this, and then eventually I <laughs> crush in the avalanche. Um, so I know for a fact this is playable. I've seen it in action, not yeah. just in theory. Um, and I, I really do like the fact that a lot of those kind of like hollow vine type decks where you would play this have a bunch of pitch spells, misdirection, force of will, yeah. force of negation. I think the challenge is going to be fitting yeah. this in. Really yeah, we've good. already articulated just a whole bunch of and, playable cards here. And if you decide, okay, I'm going to play, first of all, if you're going to play this over Squee, just an just automatic, you know, just uh, shove, those, shove these in and pull out the Squeeze. Then you're going to be losing all the synergies we talked about with Fury. So that's writing right, up Fury, right. right? And also, you're there's also a sort of questions like you know not it's I don't know I haven't played Holovine enough as a pilot 
to have a sense of the reliability of Bizarre. You know, I just don't know to what extent you really can activate Bizarre turn after turn after turn on Indeed without yeah. getting Wasteland or Strip Mine, yeah. Ghost Core. But looking around at the metagame right now, Wastelands are everywhere. I mean, Bug has it, Rug has it, yeah. <laughs> everything but Darn Doomsday right. has it. Um, if you're you not, know, if you're not a pure Wasteland combo deck, you're playing deep. Wasteland. I think that's probably- everybody else is Bizarre Workshop um, and and well, Bug. I don't know that. The, I don't th- the, the the Witch Turbo Xerox decks aren't so that's, uh, that's okay. Another but I mean, yeah, but those are getting pushed out in favor of PO. <laughs> oh, I have played so many against so many Witch Turbo really? Xerox decks in the last week on League. It's by far the deck I played. Interesting. And it's and it also won the Saturday challenge, and I played against that. I the frustrating part is with Dredge, I was undefeated in leagues against Witch Turbo Xerox, and I went one and two in my match against the tournament <laughs> winner, in a very frustrating manner <laughs> where I thought I should have won. I can't remember exactly what happened. It was some freak, you know, yeah. outside well, chance magic. It's interesting. Thing. I mean, the, the but in terms of representation in the challenges, which is is way down though, like. Literally won I, the tournament. I know, and it was exactly. one of three <laughs> pilots in that event, and one and one pilot on the other day, a single pilot in the other event. Well, win, winning a tournament does not seem to me to be a signal <laughs> to the metagame decline. I, I, I don't, I don't uh, know how to explain any, it though. I mean, it, it, you've seen it a lot, but it's not yeah. showing up in quantities in the in the, oh, the challenges. By far, the the thing interesting I the most in league. By far, um, it's, it just seems to be ubiquitous. I think. The rationale behind that is because it's good against Doomsday. Although I have not played the Witch deck to know that for sure. That's the okay. people are there. So, the point I want to make here is this. The point I'm going to make is this is going to lead to some choices. Um, I think it's very playable. I think it's very pro- possibly very good. But you're going to have to make some decisions about... You know, and maybe you do want more than four squeaks. But you want... if you, if you, No, <laughs> it's like... Now I can play up to eight Unmask. If you suddenly take the cap mm-hmm. off a card, it doesn't mean you're automatically filling up to the new cap, sure. right? You have to make a decision about <laughs> where a, to there, calibrate. There is a theoretically right? correct number, and it's not necessarily the max. Yep. Yes, exactly. And I don't know what that number is, um, but it doesn't necessarily matter for the purposes of our prediction um, because we're not predicting total number of copies. We're predicting appearances. In which one <laughs> or eight, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in in outside of constructed. Well, and so in, in um, practice, what you, what you're going to observe, and it's already started to happen in the couple of challenges here, is that Master of Death is in is supplementing Squee, right? And it de- yes. de- But what my point? But the point I was trying to make is it could theoretically do. It could be more. It could, the question is, is it more like Grief or is it more like Unmask? That is, sure. is it the default 1 to 4 or is it s- supplementing Squee? Does it replace Squee and then you add Squeeze to supplement this or does it supplement? Naturally. It? Completely agree. And you've already articulated the ways in which it's going to... It, it can't just be a one-for-one one replacement necessarily. The There's no tension in terms of color requirements and the Dredge side. Dredge doesn't play Squee. But yes. it might play this because of the utility yes. of being a free card that's so, blue and black, naturally. I have actually, in preparation for the 2019 Vintage Championship, in which I did play Dredge, I actually tested a squee okay. in the sideboard. And the, the principal reason I tested a single squee in the sideboard and had it 
almost in my sideboard up until the time of the event was as a as a dredge mirror tactic. Um, but I just came to the conclusion that that's not really how the dredge mirror plays. I just on this assumption that like you know your or like your your opponent has cage. Yeah. You know, or like containment priest and you want against control decks that don't have wasteland. I wanted a squee as a way to like create card advantage. It's a reasonable theory um, to test. I think this is perfect. I did test it and it was interesting but not consistent enough. Because one squee could be anywhere in your <laughs> card deck. You can't Naturally. You know what I mean? Um but here's the other thing. It's also un- unlike grief, where grief is just better than unmasked, although not strictly superior, it's vastly better in dredge. Um the marginal utility of of second version of this can be quite painful. You don't want to be in a you don't you have a short time horizon if you're paying two to three life per turn to return two or three of these. Yes, that absolutely naturally it's not it, it's not a one for one replacement. You have to be getting powerful utility out of the color of this card in order to justify it over Squee when you're already a Squee deck. Well, partly so partly what I'm making the point is there is a theoretical I'm making a that's true, but that's not on point. Okay, that's not what I was trying to get at. Was trying to get that is a very good point because, um, yes, in Dredge where you have blue or in Hollowvine where you have lots of blue pitch spells, this could be better than Squeeze. But the point I'm trying to make is suppose that you decide this is better than Squeeze, that doesn't mean you run four of these and let's say right up to a max of six. You may decide there is a theoretical justification for running three and three, or for running four Squee and two of these, even if you believe this has a higher general utility than. Because, and, and, and the reason for that is you're deciding that your life is more valuable yes. Yes. in aggregate. Yep, completely agree. And so, and I expect that in the Holovine decks that we're going to see ratios like that. We're going to see ratios like 3 and 3 plus or minus 1. You, know, I, I, you could make a case for plus or minus 1 in either direction, yeah. depending on your construction of your deck. Strongly depending on how important... Um, Fury is, for example, because because Fury yes. is these decks tend to have be low on red cards, and so if you're trying to support Fury, you're probably going to be a four squeed list as a baseline, and then adding in the Master of Death. But if you're not a Fury list, you could you could very much approach it from a three and three standpoint, and then see how things go, see how important your life total is in various matchups, etc. And the marginal utility of one over the other is very slight. In my estimation, you're not going to have a bad game because you drew one over the other necessarily. You are going to miss out on some utility in terms of pitching squee to force of will, which you're accepting in advance, and that's going to be part of your calculus. But even if you can't pitch squee to force of will, squee still is supporting force of will by providing card quantity over time. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that. I th- I think that the median number of Master of Death in a deck is probably going to be two. I agree. And it, it makes sense why. Maybe the mode yeah. as well. Um, And I think it's not going to be in every... It's certainly not going to be in every Holovine deck because sometimes four squeeze enough and you, no. you're pinched on color. And as, Have the, Are there any in the top eight weekend? I don't, uh, let's see. Are there any Masters of Death? Yes. Yeah. So okay. in the seventh placed list, there were fully oh, yeah. four of each on the fifth. Yeah. So that's cl- yeah. 
But go. that's a Hogak deck. Oh my god, he has subtlety in the in That's the deck. that's a Hogak deck though. And so so this person, Winged Hussar, was clearly testing a lot of new things. Although interesting, no no well, blazing root wall. The one subtlety already already <laughs> Oh, that's funny. I I hadn't looked at that before. Yep, so we're already wrong on subtlety. Um <laughs> yeah. but who knows, maybe that'll be the only one. But that was the only appearance of Master of Death on six five. But I think on the other I think on the other one there were more. Let me see. I've been trying not to study this in in detail in advance. Yeah, there were three players with Master of Death on on 6-6, but only one in the top eight. And that was a 2-4 split in a Holovine deck. SPO got second place with two Master of Death and four Squee in their Vengevine deck. And this is a four Blazing Root Walla deck. Does this deck have Fury? Yes, it does. Two in the main and two in the side. So there's your use case right there, right? You're a Fury deck. You have to you have to lean into four squeeze in order to support Fury. Squee. Yep. But this takes you up mm-hmm. to six squee. Which I think is probably about where this this feels like it's probably going to be an, an average use case, I agree. Interesting. So, so our conclu yeah, I mean our predictions prediction. have to be non zero here. So my observations these sideboards are getting crazy. Fury, endurance, like two fury, one endurance, one force of vigor. It's like, make up your mind, man. <laughs> so, uh, I believe that this card will become a, a low numbered staple in across both Dredge and Holovine. I'm, I'm thinking that the, my prediction of two is probably going to be pretty common. And as such, the, the total appearances will be quite high. This feels like it's going to be above 20. When all is said and done, I mean, I pr- I predicted wow. sixteen for grief alone. If half of the dredge players and half of the Holovine players play this card, it's gonna be a it's gonna be twenty or so. Easy, right? I I, I don't. Yeah. So you can you can make a good case for constructing either of those decks without this. But if you go fifty fifty, yeah, I'm I'm gonna go with twenty. That's that's that feels right to me. Ah, oh, that's a lot. Um, but I think you're right. So my numbers were 24 on grief, 18 on blazing rootwalla, yep, 12 on fear. Oh, and what was my endurance top one? was 17. Endurance Thir- thir- 13, uh, 13 on, fury. on fury. You took the over. Those are all looking low now that we're <laughs> putting it in the frame, but I'm, I'm going to stick to it. Um, I'm not going to say that there are more Masters of Death than Bastion. Well, the thing I have to worry about, there's more use cases for Masters yeah. of Death than Master of Death than... Yeah, it's not a one-to-one comparison. That's the trick. Yeah. Um I agree with you that the the, the right I, construction of Holovine has a, ma- a blazing root wall. It doesn't have to have Master of Death, but I th- yeah, and grief clearly can go in Hogak and Dredge, although it will not go into the yeah. Holovine deck. Um, and and also grief will go, can go into the yeah. Snow Spell decks. So, uh, I'm going to say. <laughs> I 
Well, if if I've already put a I've already put a ceiling on Hullivine with at eighteen, because that's how many basically I was effectively saying this is how many Hullivine decks I think they'll be in top eights in the next three years. Sure. Eighteen, right? That sounds low to me now that I said that because it, essentially just thinking to my spreadsheets in the past that means I'm thinking like like eight one month that means there can only be there's only room for like five and five the next two months, which could be right if if a bunch if yeah, the game will adapt. I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think that the number is going to be below Blazing Rootwallow because there will be some number of Hollow Vine decks that just decide to go four squeeze zero of this, like Montolio. Yes, I would agree. So I'm, so I'm going to say sixteen. Okay. This is. That allows me to say like, like most of the Holovine decks, and maybe one or two other places, maybe like in a dredge sideboard or something like that. Okay, gives me a little okay. flexibility. You know, the other thing is Master of Death really does open the door. I think even more than Squee, to a control bizarre deck that we have not seen before in a real way. Interesting. And now, are you talking like a, a land style deck? Like the kind that C- that Cius played, potentially, potentially, or something. I had something even more controlling in mind, like the the old Wargorger decks, you know. Or or do you remember those decks, those Japanese decks that used to use like the um, from the old Invitationals that use like Intuition to dump the squeeze and just outdraw oh, yeah. your opponent, like the oh, replenish yeah. decks, something like that. A real control deck could be built around around Bazaar and Master of Death in a way that we really haven't seen that does not really rely in any way on the graveyard aside from that. So it would be totally immune to King yeah. and Containment yeah. Priest. But would have to find a way to protect the Bazaar. So it probably would need Noxious Revivals or Petrified Fields and stuff right. like that. Right. I don't know. I'm just saying that that's a possibility. Interesting. It creates that design possibility in a way we really haven't seen. Not in many, many years. Agreed. All right. Well, what so should I'm we go, go to next? Sorry, I'm going to go 16, I mean. <laughs> um, We've got a, so many possible cards here. The card... I, let's talk about Ragavan next, because this, this is the big yeah. legacy card. Right? Oh, I love Ragavan. For, for R, you get a 2-1 legendary creature, Monkey Pirate. Whenever Ragavan, Nimble Pilferer, deals combat damage to a player, create a treasure token... And exile the top card of that player's library. Until end of turn, you may cast that card. Ragavan also has dash for 1R. What an incredible value engine. I'm old enough, Steve, to still remember Jackal Pup. <laughs> and, yeah. And we've talked about, yeah, and we've talked about Sly in our Alpha Set review, right? The history of Sly and all the garbage creatures that Sly played just to have a curve, right? What was the what was the terrible one drop that that deck played? Like a, a, there were so many. Some terrible orc. Mog fanatic. But the, the early version had some oh. terrible orc that had a drawback. Oh yes. Oh, it was. Um, oh, I can tell you what it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think no. I I'm, I'm sorry. I can't remember. I remember that there were a lot of bad ones in, in Stomp. Yeah. 
I don't remember. I can't remember. But go back to our Alpha Set review and you'll hear us recount the. Because I mistakenly remembered Sly. My, my envision of Sly is the Tempest era one that had good creatures Mog Fanatic, Jackal Pup, uh, uh, Mog. Um, the 3 3 for 2 Mog that uh, I can't remember the name of right now. Flunkies, right? There were some strong creatures in Tempest Block that really made that deck good, but then you corrected me and said, no, the first version of Sly was way before that, playing all manner of garbage one and two drops that were terrible by comparison. This And, and the only reason I bring that up is just because Jackalpup is, to me, the iconic card from Sly. It's highly efficient, big drawback, but it didn't matter because you were murdering your opponents on curve. Well, Ragavan compared to Jackalpup is just laughable. It has like four more abilities than Jackalpup does, less the drawback, and it generates mana value and card advantage for you. It's incredible. <laughs> the card that was terrible in Sly circa like 1999-2000 was... Oh yeah, that's bad. the one. That's the one. What an awful card. <laughs> anyway, anyway. So, Ragavan. Yes, Ragavan is tearing yeah, up Legacy. Is so, so beyond <laughs> the power. Of any of those. It's totally absurd. It's more of like an Ophidian right. for one mana, right? That's really what it kind of is. And it has the ability, it also has a built in ability to be evasive if you want to play it for its dash cost right. over and over again. So it's just, it's just a very silly card. It really, <laughs> really is. The, the thing is, given everything we've talked about around vintage lately, it's very hard to be a Xerox player in vintage these days. It just is. The 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 combo decks are yeah. so punishingly powerful. The bizarre decks are so filled with value that sidesteps most mana production requirements that the notion of just I'm going to have this one modest threat and well, ride it to victory is so hard conceptually in the format. Well, they've just restricted everything out of the Xerox deck for so long. I mean, they were just suffered so mm-hmm. many restrictions. You know, gosh, Gitaxian probe, me- mental misstep. So it's it was inevitable they would eventually, you know, yeah, marginalize. But the the simple the simple truth is is that it is very difficult in vintage, even with a high value card, value generation, and tempo card as Ragavan is, to just play this creature, yes. fight your opponent on their turn with no mana, usually, and then yeah. ride this card or ones like it to victory. If if mental misstep was unrestricted, maybe. Perhaps. Yeah. Um, remind me, just remind me. I think I know what they all are, but remind me. Treasure clue and what's the, the, the <laughs> food? <third> one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Remind me the, what each of those are. Treasure is one mana. Is, food is life. Clue yeah. is card. Yeah. yeah. Is but clue and okay. food both take two mana to activate, and treasure is just a lotus petal. And it's funny you should ask about those three because there's a card in this set, which we won't be reviewing, but there's a card in this set that says when you make one, if you would make one of those, you make all of them instead. Uh, the, what is it called? The Workshop uh, Automator. I can't remember if that's, if I'm pronouncing that right. That card is so cool. I'm going to love it in EDH, but we don't need to talk about that. I feel like Ragavan is an incredible value generation engine and is amazing, but I just think Vintage has passed this card by. So, you're playing against workshops, and you play this on turn one, off of a volcanic mm-hmm. island. That's quite vulnerable. You attack next turn, they flip over 
a sphere type effect, you're not going to really play it, right? Um, you get a treasure token, that's useful. Great. Right? Um, that's definitely helpful. This is pretty much garbage against bizarre decks. Um, yeah, I mean, this is just, I think, a bonkers card in Legacy and a pretty modest card in Vintage. I don't want to say unplayable. Yeah. But I don't, I'm not excited. I get no thrill out of this card. Let's put it that way. Your observations about how this is going to function in certain matchups mirror my own in the sense that the card advantage elements of this are deceptively weak in Vintage. Depending on your matchup, there's going to be just a ton, a ton of cards that you're never going to cast. Counters, counter magic I mean, that you can't. have been confronted with this? Yeah. I mean, there was a card that we reviewed within the last couple of years that was a reverse Ophidian. Was that red card? Was um, that red one? That, sorry, reverse Ophidian. Um, are we talking about Robber of the Rich? So Close this card evokes that? Robber of the Rich. Robber of the Rich says... Um, Oh no, that is an actual Ophidian though. During your turn, wait, hold on, hold on. Rob of the Rich says, whenever it attacks, if defending player has more cards in their hand with you, exile the top card of their library. Yeah, yeah. Robber of the Rich, I think, is the card you're remembering. No, I know what it was. The card I'm thinking of was a Snapcaster. Oh, that's Direfleet Daredevil. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's also dependent on their deck, and we properly concluded. This, this is yeah. What, S- yeah. Same problem. Same problem. In all these cases. Think it's gonna yeah, suffer in all these cases, your opponent's cards, getting temporary access to your opponent's cards is just too unreliable. There's too many situational cards in Vintage. It's not like this is 2002, when drawing an average card off your opponent's deck is just going to be a powerful effect that's probably good for your deck too, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the cards we've been reviewing here have become so specialized, so focused. Like, imagine hitting them with Ragavan and flipping Grief in your Jeskai deck, like... Uh, okay, <laughs> I guess I exiled one of your griefs. Yeah. And the next turn you hit them and you hit bridge from below. Like, all right. <laughs> or against workshops, like you said, you you hit them and you hit sphere resistance. Well, no thanks. Or you hit you hit ancient tomb. Well, great. There's just well, there's just far too yeah. many specialized cards. And as you as you articulated earlier with respect to Xerox, all the the cool stuff in Xerox has been restricted. So sometimes you're going to get a counter spell, which is obviously dead for Ragavan, barring, um, barring resolving your own spell in your second main phase, which is going to be rare. Uh, but then otherwise, you, you know, you're rarely going to hit the good restricted card. Sometimes you're going to feel great if you hit their preordain, but gosh, it's just going to be so inconsistent. Uh, to me, this is very much the dire de- dire devil fair- <laughs> dire fleet daredevil. And I'm I'm glad you can remember my you know turn my vague recollections into concrete <laughs> card names. Um, <laughs> um, I, I I would not be so. I think this look. I actually have seen that card, the the Daredevil in Vintage before. Um, and I would I think this is probably playable and probably will see play somewhere. I'm just not excited about it at yeah. all, and I find it somewhat boring to talk <laughs> about. Actually. Well, I. I- <laughs> Given the context in which we're debating it, if this was any other set, I would probably be more enthusiastic. That's a good point. It's, <laughs> it's 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 below the bar for this set, even though it's a cool card. Even though it's absurd. I agree with you <laughs> that this card yeah. is vintage Project. playable. 
it it has certain advantages over a Delver of Secrets. You're right. A Delver of Secrets never going to yeah. generate you a card advantage per se, whereas this one will, and you can get some above average draws and really dominate your opponent if you hit some good cards. I think the time is not right in this format right now for this card, but if things shift, the metagame shifts, we get back to maybe a, a grindier control on control kind of metagame possibly, then you might be onto something. Yeah, if there's a bunch of restrictions, then this could become... If the, if the, the metagame becomes more homogeneous, then it becomes a better yeah. card. Okay, so Kevin, what are your predictions? I'm going to go zero on Raghavan. Playable, but I don't think it's going to be in the next three months. I don't think it's going to put up the performances in this environment. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I'm going to go zero. I do want to talk briefly, though, about the other white one drop in this set. Because it has a different angle to it, slightly. And that's Dragon's Rage Channeler. Also R. This is a 1-1. It says whenever you cast a non-creature spell, surveil 1. It has Delirium. As long as there are four more card types among cards in your graveyard, it gets plus 2, plus 2, and has Flying and attacks each combat if able. So every time you play a non-creature, you surveil. Once you get Delirium, it's a 3-3 flyer. Steve, the notion of triggering on non-creature spells to surveil means that you suddenly have a fairly robust graveyard-generating engine off this one drop, and you could construct a... I'm not talking about dredge or anything on that level, but you can construct a Xerox or Xerox-adjacent strategy that indexes a little heavier on the graveyard and tries to generate value out of it, not just via Delve, but via Flashback, Say, uh, say your Snapcaster mages and Ke- Kevin. I'm sorry, I'm lost. Where Dragon's are Dragon's Rage Channeler? Why is it not oh, okay? Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. So I'm talking about your your flashback via Snapcaster mage, things like maybe Ancient Grudge. I'm trying to think of another good example right now, but you can you can sculpt your draws powerfully if every time you're force of willing or dazing you're also surveilling you get to sculpt your draws that way implicitly which makes this card function a little bit like a cantrip it doesn't have to attack to generate this value no it just sits there and triggers off of your moxin and your force of wills and everything else what does that do for you well i I always think whenever you have an ability like this that's no mana cost and can be triggered mm-hmm. unlimitedly, there's some potential for abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, it is funny to me to think that basically with some sort of like, I don't know, Tide Spout Tyrant Mox Engine, you could basically sculpt your deck oh. <laughs> You know, at every point with this that's card. That's true. If you got a true engine um, going, that would work. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't actually generate you any card advantage. You would have I to get resources out of the graveyard to to call it card advantage. But the yeah. power of selection here yep. is is powerful. Right? It's kind of like it's you, useful. you can you can be interacting with your opponent and not preordaining, right? Imagine if you cut preordain from a Delver list and replaced it with this. You play one of these on one, and you didn't get the preordain yeah. effect. But then you you force them on their turn, and you and you surveil, 
well, there's your scry, right? And you put that ex- you put that extra land yep. on the bottom and draw the next card. Well, that that was just a preordain then, basically. Except you've got a one one on the board, and then you untap and you play some other interactive card, right? A lightning bolt, another counter, something, and you surveil then too. Well, you've got half of another preordain right there. You can stack up and get three or four preordains worth of value out of this thing over the course of the first few turns of a game if you're being interactive. Yeah, you're you're not wrong. Um, maybe if there was like a, I don't know, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's like it's yeah. If like Ataxian Probe wasn't restricted and Gush wasn't mm. restricted, yeah, you yeah. can imagine really getting a lot of a lot of a uh, manipulation power out of this, yeah. but. It's not the world we live in. It's also worth noting that this triggers on you casting a preordain. Look at how this interacts with a preordain. Yeah. Right? This adds, this basically adds one to the dig of any cantrip. Preordain. Yeah, you can resolve, this trigger resolves first, then the preordain. Precisely. This feels... Turns preordain into like... Yeah, this feels amazing (laughs) in legacy-style decks that have... 8 to 12 cantrips and then another 8 to 12, you know, free counter spells... And they're just riding this thing. It turns into a 3-3 and just riding it to victory. But as we said before with Raghavan, you just can't do that in Vintage right now. Yeah, this is just too dirtily for me to get excited again. Like Raghavan. At the moment. I'm sorry. (laughs) I I can't muster the enthusiasm this card probably deserves. (laughs) But I'm glad we reviewed it. I'm glad we reviewed it near Raghavan. Yeah, it's just hard for me to imagine that this card would be much of a real sh- mover and shaker in contemporary. Yeah, completely agree. So where do you want to go next? I want to go to a card that is a big mover and shaker. And that card, this if you, in a normal set... <laughs> hang on a second. Hang on. I just, I'm just deleting some rows that were empty. I was just... You just deleted a row I put... I was trying to move... Uh, I was trying to move... Hold on, hold on. Let me do this. Let me do this first. <laughs> okay. Because I was I was creating a row so I could put the dragon's channeler. I want to keep everything in order. Here. Oh, I see. Okay. So in a normal year, Kevin, the card that would be clearly the vintage design for card is Void oh, yeah. Mirror. Um, this would be the card that would be the big mover and shaker and the exciting card to talk about. Where is it going to be used? How is it going to be used? Right. So, and so, forth. so why don't you present this card? And then I want to draw some comparisons, and then we can discuss application. Void Mirror is an artifact. It costs two generic mana. Whenever a player casts a spell, if no colored mana was spent to cast it, counter that spell. That's it. If you don't put colored (laughs) mana into your spells, they are countered. So it is quite deceptively simple, right? The card is actually very complex yes. to uh, situationalize and and understand its strategic position and advantage. Um, the first thing, so let, let's just provide some concrete examples of what we mean by this, and then we'll talk about comparison cards. So if you cast a Force of Will with this in play. Force of if you pitch counter. cast. It, if you mm-hmm. pitch cast, yeah. If you cast um, a Hollow One with Bazaar, discarding three, or, yeah. or if, if you cast you, a hollow one with all colorless mana, off a, yeah, off a workshop and a and mm-hmm. a mana crypt, it's countered. If you go Mishra's workshop, 
uh, sphere of resistance. It's countered. Yep. <laughs> but if you go Mishra's workshop, Mox Emerald, tap the Emerald in the shop, mm-hmm. resolve. Assuming that um, Emerald was in play before the so, mirror. <laughs> yes. So if yes. The, right, if you, if the mirror is in play and you go Mox Emerald, the Mox so, Emerald is countered. So there's two cards, Kevin, I want to draw comparisons. Yeah. The first is Chalice of the Void, and the second is Damage. Yep. And the reason is because they seem to be like two poles. Poles. Two ends of a continuum in vintage and cards that would at first glance appear to have, I think in our D- Dominaria set review, I predicted 11 or 12 damping spheres. I was pretty, pretty warm yeah. on it. Now, 10 or 11 is pretty low in the context of <laughs> modern horizons because, modern too, because both these sets are bonkers. Um, but, uh, but for a normal set, 10 or 11 might be the top card, oh, yeah. right? For an ordinary set, I should say, not normal. Um, so, so Chalice of the Void came into Vintage with a huge splash. It was a card that came with Mirrodin, and it was one of the most obviously vintage playable cards in the set, although Mirrodin turned out to have a plethora of them. <laughs> <laughs> a really deep right. bench, right, of playables. Um, and was almost instantaneously a a subject of consternation and heated debate in the community. Oh yeah, right. Like how obnoxious it was to be able to have an asymmetric effect like that. The the person who who got to play first could play it. And I wrote an article when it came out that was called "Chalice of the Void: The New Black Vies." Now, as a point of reference, it's probably easily lost among contemporary magic players because Black Vice is both an obscure card and one that sees no play outside of old school. Um is Black Vice even restri- is it even is it still banned in Legacy? I <laughs> no, it's, it's legal. Not. We we you asked that same question during yeah. our <laughs> our alpha review. <laughs> <laughs> well it's I mean it's like Mind Twist is banned, but Black Vice isn't like what the he- you know what the heck. Um by the way, parenthetically, I did play against a, a Mind Twist deck on Magic Online in, in the league yesterday. Um, it was very <laughs> odd. Uh, where opponent had four Black Vises and actually got me one game by playing a, a Dark Ritual Lilion of the Veil, Wastelanding my Bazaar. No, they played turn zero, Leyline mm-hmm. of the Void. Turn one, Dark Ritual Lilion of the Veil. Turn two, Wasteland my Bazaar. And I was, it was a very strange game where I was able to actually blow up. They, they, Liliana couldn't keep me lower than two cards in my hand. Um, so I actually got a second, I, I got a green card and a, I, once I found the Force of Vigor, I just waited until I got a green card. And then their upkeep, or when the response to the activation of Liliana, I blew up the Leyline of the Void. And then, um, <laughs> I actually, but the problem was they hard cast another Leyline. And then they mind twisted me, so I couldn't get out. I won game two by just playing Leyline of Sanctity. Game three, I mean, with <laughs> Leyline of Sanctity, so I won the match. Anyway, the point the point is that that both those cards are quite <laughs> innocuous. But but the real point here is that uh, Chalice of Void was extremely controversial. It was controversial from the beginning through its ultimate restriction, right? And it was controversial not because it was so much a world beater, and also it had a role as being a combo. Anti combo mm-hmm. card, right? That it prevented a lot of like nefarious, like just shenanigans with speed combo decks. 
But what it ultimately did, I think more than anything else, was it was very oppressive with workshop decks. In yeah. workshop decks. And people were frustrated to play against it. And it had this additionally nefarious part where it's a stupid ley line game and uh chalice game in real life where you were not responsible for your opponent's oh, missed yeah. triggers. So it's just infuriating. Yeah. Chalice <laughs> um, is a poster child for the variances and changes and problems with the trigger rules in tournaments. Paper tournaments. Hate it. Anyway, I, I was still of the view that the, both players should be responsible for game state and that if a player knowingly or with, you know, knowingly and w- with awareness uh, allows a, an opponent to cast, um, to, to miss you know, the trigger. If a, if a player knowingly, yeah, I think it's, I think it should be, um, penalized. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. The point is that Chalice of the Void was extremely heavily played and Damping Sphere was a card that we thought, given both the uh, its effects against workshops and its ability to dampen the and slow Xerox decks would be potentially quite useful and interesting and vintage, but it never really found a home. Yep. So I think Void Sphere has a lot of elements of Chalice of the Void, but also has a lot of elements of Damping Sphere beyond the simple mm-hmm. casting cost. So I want to draw those out just a little more pointedly. Both Void Mirror and Chalice of the Void counter spells that are being cast. So they are kind of like a they have that Nether Void quality, right? They don't prevent they don't they don't so much tax as they do <laughs> yeah. as they counter, right? Um and that can be very frustrating. So an opponent plays a spell, oh shoot, I forgot. Okay, yeah. it's countered. The second thing though is that be, it, it's un this because like Damping Sphere, this isn't a card you're going to play in a shop deck. It would be very unwise, I would say. Yes, because it takes away your greatest advantage, which is Mercer's Workshop and Ancient Tombs. Now, you could theoretically design a shop deck to work with it or work around it, but that would be, it would be an uphill battle. It would be, you know, sabotaging yourself. It, it's like, it's like when bizarre decks include Tabernacle just to hurt their opponent more than themselves. It's sort of crazy, but it sometimes happens. You know, like I'll see a Hall of Vine deck playing a, a Tabernacle on the sideboard to hurt the Dredge deck more than it hurts yeah. itself. That's sort of what, what Vordmir would be like. So I don't, I, I guess I wanted to just open the discussion of Voidmere in that context. But this is the one point I want to make before I allow you to kind of like, <laughs> rant about where you think this is going to play, see play, or how it could be used. And I'm sure you have lots of interesting examples in mind. This has a huge scope of application. Right? I mean, the sheer number of cards caught up in the Void Mirror are enormous in Vintage. So, just to give a couple, a few few more examples. We mentioned Force of Will, Force of Negation by implication. Unmask, Grief. Um, uh, I want to mention Daze. I want to mention Gush. Mental misstep, um, uh, f- force of vigor being very important, um, among many others. Okay, <laughs> stopping there. Go ahead. The first interaction I had on Twitter with regard to this is one that I'd like to kind of recount here, in, in the sense that I initially said this card, the scope of application, and the inherent power, the, the intersection of those two things, is unavoidable with this card. You just articulated both the power and the scope, which means this has got to be playable. 
And a couple of people responded and said to me, well, even against shops, it's not that good. You know, they even the, the most mono brown of brown shop decks still has already has like six sources, seven sources of, of colored Academy. mana between Mox and Mox Lotus and, and Academy. Yeah. And all it takes is for them to, to add in, you know, like, like an Urborg here or there, and it's not going to be that disruptive. And I said, that's a fair point. At the same time, consider that the, the de facto blue control deck of the format, Bug, is inherently a mana denial deck. So let's say you're you're on the draw your bug and you're on the draw against yes. shops and they go workshop mox emerald as you example exemplified and they play a, a creature or two. In that situation, you might say, "Well, the void mirror is not very good there. They've already got their emerald. They can just play a spell every turn. You're going to fall behind." Yeah, except here's the thing: I've got collector roof, I've got abrupt decay. <laughs> like I have no problem yeah. going land mox uh, void mirror go and let you play one more spell. And then next turn, play Collector Roof. And enjoy casting no more spells that game. You think you're going to defeat me with the three creatures you just <laughs> resolved in those two turns? I'd like, I'd like to see you try, you know? Like, yes, it's not that, it's not like <laughs> Chalice led to some non-games. We can all acknowledge that. Maybe more than it should have. It's restricted for a reason. Void Mirror is going to lead to some non-games. But if you construct your deck knowing that Void Mirror is for the matchup that you intend it for, or the matchups, you get to take advantage of the little of the little ways in which you're constricting your opponent. That's the proper use of this card. It's not like I'm expecting to go Landmarks Void Mirror and you never cast a spell. That is kind of that could happen, but it's not the expectation. In my opinion, this is the thing. It's kind of like endurance. Enroll. It's the thing that supplements the plan you've got, and if you in, and if you integrate it correctly, it's a backbreaker, right? Yes. As opposed to being the backbreaker of itself, it's it's you're looking yes. for synergy. Like look how right? you're you're not deploying this and expecting it to look win. Look how by well itself. this card plays with the intersection of collector yeah. oof, force of vigor, and wasteland. Right. You 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 will be able to tur- yeah. you will be able to turn your bug deck into a prison deck in certain matchups. With the, with the intersection of and those you cards, you can cast Force of Vigor, whereas your opponent yeah. can't. That, see, yeah. see, that's what I'm talking about. The, there's so much downward pressure on efficiency of cards in Vintage that Void Mirror, if it's not if it's not correct now, is going to get more correct later. <laughs> right? You know right? What, what, this yeah, set is an example of that. This whole cycle of free spells we just discussed, like that, makes <laughs> it Void Mirror inherently better in the format. So I don't know. I think you're right that there is a correlation between scope of application mm-hmm. and power. But I also think the counterexample of Damping Sphere shows that scope and and power are maybe correlated, but they aren't inextricably intertwined. You know, that's, that, that's a fair point. At the same time, the power of Damping Sphere pales in comparison to the power of this. Well, pales. Well, or 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 you could say the opposite. That a card that's scope is too sweeping actually oversweeps itself. Also fair. Also that, fair. That it's hard to use damping sphere in a way that is asymmetric in this in the similar sense to the example you sketched out. That reminds right? me, yeah. With, that reminds me. The other example that came up on Twitter really quickly was well, if you're playing bug, you've already got like six six or eight pitch cards yourself, plus your mox, and doesn't this hurt you a whole bunch? And I said no. 
If I draw this in Force of Will, I'm going to have a great game. I'm going to force your first spell and then play my Void Mirror on turn two and be incredibly <laughs> happy. Like, the fact that I'm turning off future forces is irrelevant because if I construct the situation correctly, I don't need those forces anymore. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's and, and it'll be almost impossible to remove the Void Mirror. It's going to be, yeah, the way Vintage um, is constructed these days, very difficult to remove a Void Mirror. There's just very few disenchants being played right now. Bugs kind of the only deck that plays a disenchant. That aren't that the people are casting yeah, that aren't sort of right that people are putting mana into. And, yeah, um, I think this card is terrifying. <laughs> I have actually played against it. So I pl- I I played against an opponent this weekend who had it wasn't in the challenge. It, it I think it was on Friday night where where he or she had um. We're playing White mm-hmm. Eldrazi or Hate Bears deck, and they got this down against me, and I suddenly realized I could do nothing. It was as if they had played Karn and Mycos right. and Gladys. I could not cast Void, uh, uh, Force of the vo- Force of uh, sorry, <laughs> Force of Vigor. I could not cast Hollow One. I just couldn't interact in any meaningful way from that point on. If you look um, at Montolio's. So against Dredge, it's I just want to say against Dredge, it's it's monstrous. If you look at Montolio's list, but it's two mana in his main deck. If there's a Void Mirror in play, the only way he can get a creature into play is by reanimating a Vengevine. He has to have a Vengevine and play two creatures, and then that Vengevine will come back. But any creature he played, Hollow One or Root Wallace, will be countered. So it's only the Vengevine, yes, and which means he can't get mana off of the right. Gaia's Cradle. The, the to only Gaia's creatures Cradle that will either. ever he, be in play needs- are Vengevines. Well, he has the Yavimaya. I know, but that's not on the main deck. Head, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. If you can resolve it, which is not, not trivial, simple. I agree. Um. Uh. Yeah. It's it's hugely good, but there. It, that's. I mean, look. There are plenty of cards against bazaars that are of that ilk. I think the difference is that by that ilk, I mean two mana, shut it down. Yeah, except, so I'll, yeah, there's, except there's, there's no card that shuts down their spells. Let me finish the thought. Let me finish the, well, that's what I was going to say. So I wanted to Sorry. finish the thought because I was going to make the point. So if you, if you look at the full suite of two mana, shut it down against bazaars. I'll tell you what the shut it down cards are. Yixla Jailer, Rust in Peace. I, I would not put Containment Priest in that category. Maybe it's just those two. But the difference is those don't actually prevent your opponents from playing any more spells going forward, <laughs> exactly. which this does. It both it both fights their, I mean, it it fights their ability to proceed forward, but it doesn't actually shut down. I guess it doesn't shut them down from reanimating Icarids. This does not stop Icarids. No. This doesn't stop. It, yeah, but it stops. It doesn't stop them from triggering Narcomebas. Doesn't stop Icarids from dying and. In, in bringing back in bringing uh, bridge tokens, it doesn't stop anything in the but graveyard it, for dredge. The only thing it stops is no. Well, it does. It stops no, dread return. It does stop cabal therapy yeah. and dread return. But those aren't the yeah. emphasis. So similar to endurance, void. If, if you're bringing void mirror against dredge, it needs to be a supplement to the real, the real backbreaker. It needs to be in addition to the ley line or the rav trap or the combination of fa- effects, right? You, and it's the secondary yes. one in those cases. We have to be clear. It is the secondary one. Yes. Yes. It's, it's actually the, the card's it's actually the... a little bit more backbreaking against Hollow Vine because it does actively stop 
all their non-Vengevine creatures from entering play. Yeah. It counters... It, the damage it does against Holovine is much worse yeah. than against Dredge, and it's already really good against it's, Dredge. Uh, it, we gotta be yeah. clear, it counters all the Root Wallas <laughs> that are madnessed out. It counters Hollow One, unless you have your one of, like, Mana Producer in play. It counters Stone Coil Serpents, again, unless you have your one of Mana Producer in play. <laughs> and so... It, it counters Fury, yeah, Endurance, fear. Force of Will, Misdirection, mm-hmm. Mind Break Trap. It's a backbreaker uh, against Force Hollow of Vigor. One. Yeah. Yeah, it really and, is. And it's, I, I consider it a backbreaker against Shops, too. Yes, those Shops decks are have baked in <laughs> colored mana producers. And, but I, as I go, go as I fall back on any strategy that's good against shops is going to be good against those mana producers as to, as well, basically. Yes, wastelands and 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 collectors mm-hmm. and null ruts. By the way, I just want to say there is no solution for hollow vine against this either. I mean, there's just nothing they have they can to do. add colored mana producers to their decks that aren't gay as cradle that aren't reliant on them having a board and, presence. And even if they do, even if they can. It's going to be so marginal. It's going to be, you know what? A a hollow vine deck could have eight squee Uh effects and be drawing, could be drawing legitimately five cards a turn Mm -hmm. of two bazaars. Wouldn't matter a bit. Also, it's worth pointing out just because you draw a Yavamaya to produce green mana, it doesn't help you cast or resolve a force of vigor. You'd have to be able to produce four green mana (laughs) to do that. Yeah. Well, what you would have to do is you would have to cast one Rootwalla, get it to resolve. With your Yavamaya, then you cast another. <laughs> then with the Gaius Cradle, you could potentially get close that's right. to four. A, a cradle with three, but, but with a never... Vengevine and two Root Wallas plus, uh, yeah, that's that's how it would have to go down. And yeah, it's well, ludicrous. And that's why we might see we might see a resurgence of things like Dakmore Salvage and Riftstone Portal, which is more reliable yeah. ways to make colored mana. That are strategic in the sense that you're going to get access to them reliably, but that just doubles down on your reliance on the graveyard, right? A leyline plus a, fo- a, a void mirror is going to be big game against both of those decks. I have played and tested plenty of Dakmore Salvage mm-hmm. and Dredge, and it oh, it took me about two months to realize it wasn't very good, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I was stuck on this notion that. That you know, I could beat Wasteland with Dakmore Salvage, and and I could trump Tabernacles with it, but it 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 took me a long time to realize why it's not good. I won't get into it now, Fair but enough. it's the main reason is because alternatives are ge- generally better. Yeah. Um. So I I I so, don't. So yeah, you're. It's not to say there aren't answers that you could design, but it would it would claw, it would take up more space. Yes. And 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 they would still just be marginal. They would be tinkering at the margins. It wouldn't be like, oh, this solves right. the void and, and inherently it would be slow. The void too. mirror. Yeah, yeah. very. <laughs> so I don't want to. This is I don't brutal. want to so, come across as saying the, the void mirror is going to be the death of vintage. In in, in most cases, that is the bizarre batch ups. It must be in in addition to another primary tactic. And the same goes for shops yes. too, in my opinion. Little, a little less so shops. Like, you, if you, this was your only sideboard against shops out of bug, you, you're still going to win a fair number of games because bug is inherently good against shops just by design. So there's that element. But so I'm not saying that this is just going to become the new chalice of the void and everyone's going to put a bunch of them in their decks and just win all their die rolls. I, what I mean to say is I think this card is very powerful, very omnipresent, and sorry, very omni useful. 
and its applications, and a lot of archetypes should consider its effect both for and against their deck. I agree. Um, where do you think this card's going to see play? I think it has a natural home in Bug because of how many matchups it's good against. Kind of similar to our Endurance, ironically. Uh, there's so many good new cards in this set that they can't all fit in, right? We got the Three Stooges Syndrome in terms of the format. So <laughs> I, I actually think that Void Mirror is going to see kind of a a low-level introduction into the format. And there will there will probably be a couple of decks that really maximize it. I, ironically, I think there might be one Workshop deck that's really that's really good in and that is any of the urborg based like dark depths or maybe the maybe an urborg based um two card monty list might actually really want this card yeah um because they can aggressively deploy it and and if they sculpt their deck in their hands correctly they can play around its drawback even though it might seem catastrophic it's not really but um, yeah. But those decks aren't super common right now. There's, they've put up some good performances lately. Well, yeah. I mean, if you have a Dark Depths in play and two mana, you don't need to cast. That's out. true. In you some can matchups, just turn after yeah. turn. Yeah, you can just remove the counters. You know, turn after turn until you get your yeah. In certain game states, you're right. If you just lock both players out, that you win that match. And I agree with you there. That's part of the reason why I like it. And the other reason is that it's it's just a good disruptive tactic. This this card functions like a um like a like an abeyance or like an orange chant sometimes against force yeah. of will decks. If you're gonna go off that turn yeah, with if, a with a helm and you just announce a void mirror, well they don't get to force of anything you for the rest of that turn. <laughs> right. Or if you go turn zero ley line, turn one void mirror against any bizarre deck. That's gonna be it's real gonna good. Be... Yeah. Real good. Yeah. <laughs> um Yes, yeah, so I guess the better example would have been um, defense grid. It functions kind of like a defense grid. Yes. In that sense. Yes. So Agreed. anyway, but that's a marginal part of the metagame. I think the biggest single deck that's going to make use of this in the metagame is probably Bug. I think it's just a natural fit there. It fits in a bunch of matchups. It, it's synergistic <sighs> with the mana denial strategy. I don't think, you know, not other Xerox decks, if they really existed right now, don't want this. It's not, you know, you're not going to play this in Breach. I don't think you could play this in the witch decks. You could play it in the witch decks. You'd have to restructure a little bit. Uh, I could be wrong about that. I don't know what what's the witch deck trying to do against Dredge right now. What's your what's your plan if you're the witch deck? I don't know. They usually I don't even remember it. I played against them so, so much. Let me, I just usually roll. Let them. me find an example of the witch deck. So okay, so the winning witch deck that you uh, alluded to, which is So sixty three. Uh, from six five, was it um, Leylines? Jailer and Trap. Oh, Jailer, that's it. Yeah, I play against. I face Jailer all the time when I play against them. Crush it. Yeah. But the, I think. I think the reason I lost against him is because I remember what it was. I made a dis. Uh, my opening hand. I decide. You remember how I told you that Dredge went. Now the mulliganing decisions are even right. more fraught. My opening hand in game two or three against him, I had a a um, uh, a sh- a shoal. Hmm. Okay. What's the shoal yeah, called uh, again? Sickening. Sickening shoal, and I decided to bottom it. Ah, I see. Or it was either bottom it or I. Yeah, no, I bottomed it. It was. I was trying to just debate what the bottom. 
and I I think I decided to keep a force of vigor. And no, I think it might have been game two. I bought him the shoal, and then I instantly regretted it because he played turn one. He played turn one jailer after mulliganing really low, and I would have been able to kill the jailer right there and just go off. And I and I had a second. I had two shoals, and I had to. I found the second one, and I killed the jailer, and then he played a second oh. jailer. I was really frustrated with myself. <laughs> well, uh, one of the things <laughs> anyway. I need to point out, which I should have said before, any of these um, witch decks that are also uh, Arcanist decks obviously don't play the mirror. Mirror doesn't play with Arcanist. And so if you're an Arcanist deck, you yeah, can't play true. that, which is one of the reasons why... It's just the yeah, blue-black one. Right, so yeah. blue-black witch decks, you, you could integrate it into your strategy probably. I think it might work. That's a good reason That's a good reason for Bug to oh, play. Oh, yeah, that's true. It's an anti-Arcanist. It's good against Jeskai. I mean, there's yeah. no there's no deck in Vintage which isn't taking advantage of free spells. Full stop. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's a feature of the format. Yeah. This is <laughs> <Right>. Vintage. <laughs> and so then it's just a matter of, well, are your free spells more fungible than theirs in, in whatever matchup you're talking about? Does this hurt you more than them? And can you still cast your free spells, so to speak, with the mirror in play, right? So that goes back to Bug, right? Bug's free spells are castable. The endurance is castable. The force of negation is, or vigor yes. is castable. Everything right? is castable. Yeah. Whereas the free spells in Dredge and Hollowvine tend to not to be. So anyway, I guess we're coming around to, in my opinion, Bug is the home for this card, the the, the majority home, and it's probably going to be a, a small part of Bug players. Not everyone's going to. This is not a go-to thing. I think I think it's going to show up in sideboards of like the Hate Bears decks. Of some shop decks. Oh yeah, that's true. And maybe some Eldrazi. White Eldrazi boards. likes this. I think it's right. Gonna... Yeah. Assuming you're the sort of White Eldrazi list that's that's playing a, a a good selection of of colored lands. And you, you know you could tweak your mana base to support this. Yeah, I, I think you're yeah. right about that. Easily. That that's a really good point. I think White Eldrazi is probably a, a place to test this. It might not be a world beater, but it has a lot of application. I, I I just feel this is a little bit like Endurance. Endurance had some obvious homes, and this is a little less obvious than that, but I do feel like this has a broad application, and everyone's going to like the effect this has on their Dredge matchup, probably, so uh, their their Holovine matchup. So I I feel like we're going to see this in a number of places, but the number the quantity is going to be small. You know what? I think our, my baseline is not fully accounted for the fact that there are two challenges every weekend. It just it's just there's a there's a huge number of tournaments all the time now. Yeah. You know? Despite the lack of paper. I don't know if I'm fully accounting for that. Because I'm trying to think, let's suppose, for example, that there's one void mirror in a top eight every vintage challenge. That's twenty four. Kevin, that's that's yeah, that's twenty four over yep. three months. Yeah. That's totally reasonable. I agree with that. It would it would be reasonable for me to see that quantity. I, I completely agree. And I also think that so now if I'm we're in a world where bazaars are getting a big uptick, that suggests that the natural response is going to be bug. I know. Don't don't <laughs> tell me. <laughs> We've seen it before. Um, we'll see it again. And that suggests that void mirror might actually be overrepresented in a, in a month or two from now, if bug steps in. Okay, let's put let's put some numbers to it. Give me a number. I think people are slow to adopt the Void Mirror. I think a lot of people looked at it and thought, this is crazy f- for Vintage, but then a lot of people, the, the secondary, 
effect was a lot of people said "Eh, it's not really that good a little too symmetrical not right for this matchup i think a lot of people have backed away from it and so it's going to be a slow burn if people discover that it's actually nice in bug to fight the bizarre decks and a little bit of splash hate against other decks then i think you're going to see an uptick in it in a month or two and so the natural result of that to me is that you're not the over under is going to be zero per top eight for a while and then the over and under could go up to two or three even that and so the, the average yeah. of that over that time period might come out to be about one, which to me says by the time we're three months from now, I'm going to say, I'm going to say 16, a little yeah, under one over tough. that three month period, but yeah, I was thinking about, so if I go one per weekend, which would be 0.5 per yeah. event, that would be about 12. Yep. I think it's going to be more than it, that. It could be twice that many. <laughs> yeah. You know, two and a half months from yeah. now, they could be half of the top eight could have void mirrors for all I know. I just, yeah, that seems unlikely. Agreed. But I, I think, I think it's going to be more than twelve, and I think it's going to be less than a clip of two per event for the next three months, which would be. That would be six. That would be two per event. Would be forty-eight. Two, two per month. <laughs> yeah, forty-eight. I think it's gonna be less than that because I think I think there's gonna be plenty of weekends where there's yeah. zero. So between twelve and forty-eight, I think it's gonna be. I'm thinking maybe like, maybe like I originally was thinking maybe like a clip of one point five per weekend, on average, but I think it's gonna be closer to like one point two five per weekend. <laughs> that's a pretty. So what would be pretty the math narrow of slice? That? 1.25 per weekend is just 24 plus another uh, 6. It's 30. That seems high. <laughs> it sounds high, but it's not I'll unreasonable tell you what, in my I'm gonna, opinion. You said yeah. 16? It sounds like you're taking the over on 16. I think I'm going to take the over on 16. I think I'm going to go okay. 20. I'm not going to be surprised if that's it. You know, this is We're talking about subtle shifts, both in player adoption and in the metagame. Yeah. It's, it's not... Yeah, it's not a big reach between one or two per top eight. That's going to be totally reasonable. I'm going to be more interested to see I the need- dynamics of if people find that this is a, a, a world beater against bizarre decks, then I mean, it, it can't possibly be against dredge. But this could be one of the things no. that tamps down hollow vine slightly hollow and causes yes. dredge to ascend. So yes. we'll see. Okay, I need to get some water. Let's okay. pause. I will too. Pausing. We're recording now. All right. All right, Steve, let's move on to an interesting design in Prismatic Ending. This is XW for a sorcery. It has Converge, which you might not remember Converge. It didn't make a big splash in Vintage. (laughs) Exile target, non-land, permanent. If its mana value is less than or equal to the number of colors of mana spent to cast this spell. Kind of like Sunburst, right? Except Sunburst was all about things coming in with counters. Converge is just having an effect based on the number of colors. So if you play Converge, I'm sorry, Prismatic Ending with Converge of zero, that is to say X equals zero, the Converge value is still one because you put a white mana into it. Which means at one mana, this is a sorcery that exiles any non-land permanent of mana value zero or one. Hmm. As soon as you put two mana into it, then it can exile a Renin six. Or a Snapcaster Mage, or a, or a Deathrite Shaman, or I'm sorry, a Dreadhorde Arcanist. 
So it's essentially a kind of a new disenchant that's a little more versatile. I mean, it's any non-land permanent, yeah. right? It's. I mean, you put you put two men into this, it hits Ren and six. So it can also remove planeswalkers, it. which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, it's also quite nice. I mean, it's it's just straight up one mana exile a Mox, one mana exile a death right, one mana exile a you, I don't know pithing needle. You know what's weird to observe is that both red and white have been waning in vintage. White ascended. It was like containment oh, yeah. priest, monastery mentor, fragmentize. It's like holy hell. Like we're in white, we're back in white land. Now white feels like it's the fifth color again. Isn't yeah, that weird? Completely agree. And, then, uh, and I mean, red seems like the fourth one. Go ahead. Yeah, there's a number of reasons which we we don't need to elucidate. Uh, the combination of restrictions and the depowering of monastery mentor as a card, and the printing of functional replacements, and a number of other factors. Yeah, it's it's been a gradual decline. We've talked about it a number of times. I think that. Your observation there is very keen. There's almost no color aside from blue that you could put this card in that it would be playable really in vintage, in my opinion, partially because it's just so slow. Yes, it's very flexible, but at the moment, vintage isn't a a low-cost permanent kind of resource battle. Right. Right? Yes, Deathrite Shaman is omnipresent, but there's no opponent of Deathrite Shaman who's game plan and strategy is removing death right shaman <laughs> right the dredge decks don't ever really they seek to remove it. death right no yeah they, exactly and so the only deck that would even reasonably cast this card is just guy control or maybe a, a one of the um in the white eldrazi could try to cast this card and it would be okay but yeah. they, again all their permanents are better than everyone else's permanents. So. I think white is the fifth color right now, and it's the only reason what red is over it is because red has pyroblast and uh, and breach. I mean, let's not forget this is a format where breach has a lot of top eights this year. Breach and Doomsday yeah. are the two blue yeah. absurd combo decks, and they're I mean, there's literally a deck in vintage that has <laughs> unrestricted Yogmoth's will, right? I mean, it's like <laughs> it's how good vintage is right now. I actually love it. Yeah. I love the breach deck. I love Doomsday. I love the bizarre decks. <laughs> I'm I'm in heaven. Um, yeah. So white so, being super- even though this card is is incredibly flexible and has a lot of power to it, the format is just not in a mode to utilize yeah. flexible you, sorcery speed you, removal. You can literally hit almost nothing that matters against breach or doomsday with this card. Agreed. It would only be for mana disruption against those decks, and it's garbage. Yeah, and the things that dredge or hollowvine play to the board are either too fast or too big for yeah. this to target god there's po they, is still part of the format which is another yeah. absurd blue combo deck between yeah. po breach and doomsday I mean, it's it's yeah this does nothing <laughs> yeah we can move on from okay. prismatic ending then let's talk about Merktide regent five blue blue it's a dragon it's a 3-3 with Delve and Flying, and Merktide region enters the battlefield with a plus one, plus one counter on it for each instant or sorcery card exiled with it. So it gets bigger for everything you delve away. It's instant or sorcery. Also, whenever an instant or sorcery card leaves your graveyard, put a plus one, plus one counter on Merktide region. Yeah. <laughs> so this thing, just ben- every time you exile, either before or after <laughs> instant or sorceries, this thing grows. The whale so, that we reviewed a couple sets ago... You could play the spells you exile with it, right? That's right. It, it's it gradually put them back into your hand. Yeah, and that card did see, I think, a little bit of vintage play, but not much. And this is worse, I think. <coughs> <coughs> this 
this is just another variant of the many of growing creatures, right? This it's is not more, a growing creature. This is a well, it it is. It has to be technically. Anytime yeah. you exile an instant sorcery from your graveyard, this gets bigger. So you yeah. cast a preordain, and then and then you recast it with your dreadhorde arcanist. This gets a plus one plus one counter, right? Okay. You snapcaster a lightning bolt. This gets a plus one plus one counter. Dreadhorde you delve arcanist away and, whatever. Yeah. yeah. So there's some synergy there, but this is, I think, to your your observation is the thing the thing you trade here is size, initial size. Theoretically, when you when you cast this thing, it's probably going to be a five five or a six six, and that benefit is not as good as getting something cheaper, getting something with card advantage, or getting something that grows faster. Yeah, yeah. All the other growing alternatives are one of those categories. And I think they outpace this. I'm zeros. Yeah, I- I'm zeros on this. If you're going to pay UU for a delve creature, play the whale. All right, let's talk about Thought Monitor. 6U, Artifact Creature Construct. It has affinity for artifacts as flying. When it comes into play, draw two cards, and it's a 2-2. This is an affinity Muldrifter. Yeah, I've been victimized by this card online. (laughs) I know know that Justin Gennari was playing it uh, to good effect. He posted some tweets about, I think, league, league decks with this thing. Well, the, I don't think it has. I don't think it has top eight in any of the challenges, though. But people are playing it. Yeah, part of the reason it's so good is because it it draws you the two cards to keep the combo going, and then you can immediately turn it into two more mana with the with the Clark Clan car, ah the the works. So <laughs> yeah, um, well, tell our audience what, the deck you're referring to because I didn't. I didn't. KCI Crack Clan Ironworks Ironworks Clark Clark. Ah, let me say that again. <laughs> Clark. <laughs> Hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Let me say that again. So, I'm talking about Clark Clan Ironworks, which is an obscure, <laughs> not anymore, <laughs> um, <laughs> artifact from, originally, was it from Fifth Dawn? That's right. Uh, yeah, it was one of the Mirrodin expansion sets. Um. And it, it was used back in the day as, like, originally understood to be... I mean, it's basically the Ashnod's altar of the 21st century. So yeah. if you remember all those duelist puzzles, like where you can go infinite mana, it was almost always, like, Ashnod's altar. Well, it's <laughs> Croc Clan Ironworks is the version of that. And so it's a four-mana artifact where it says, sacrifice an artifact, colon, add two mana to your mana pool. So colorless, or generic, I guess. So, it's it's colorless, not generic, right? It generates colorless mana, yeah. yes. So, you can then, um, you know, just continue to cycle. Once you get enough cards, then you basically, with the combo deck, you start sacrificing things to this to be able to cast spells off the top of your deck through, you know, Mystic Forge or whatever the case may be until you can combo out one route or the other. Um, there are cards that allow you to sort of recycle other stuff. So there's like Scrap Trawler and nonsense like that. So you get the key cards back. But mm-hmm. this basically means you never run out of mana while you're comboing out. And I can easily see why you would want a Muldrifter artifact as part of that combo. It's just a, a huge boost in terms of keeping the thing rolling forward. Do you think that I mean, do you think that deck has legs in the sense that 
It's one of those archetypes that has popped up here and there repeatedly, right? We've had Thoughtcast PO a number of times, different iterations. It, it just seems like those versions never have long lives. <laughs> the Thoughtcast decks never dominate Vintage for long. Well, that's because there's a huge drawback. It's called Null Rod, right? Um, I, you and I have both I played. Like you and I have both yeah. played Thoughtcast decks in Vintage Championships before. <laughs> yep. Um, we've we've seen this song before. We have. We've we played the song. We've sung it. And the other thing is, basically, what happens is, whenever you get a Thoughtcast deck, it usually iterates into the non-Thoughtcast version of the deck. But this deck doesn't. <laughs> That's right. Every time. In fact. <laughs> this deck doesn't have that luxury. Yeah. Because it's just. I mean. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> one of the ways that they built it, they built resilience to Null Rod in the past, has been using the Karn 1.0, right? Well, yep. I guess yep. I guess there was an original Karn Planeswalker. I mean, the second Karn, not Karn Great, the Great Creator. I mean, the Karn, <laughs> the, right? There was like the old Karn from like a decade ago. I mean. The first good Karn, which <laughs> yeah. which what, Karn, right? So the Karn started as a creature, Silver Golem. Karn became oh, a Planeswalker, I mean, planeswalker liberated. 2.0. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I know. Then Karn became another Planeswalker, which was Scion of Urza. Yes, the one that looked for cards and generated construct. And then Karn became the Great Creator, who was the Nullrod Karn. Right, and Scion Scion version was used in a lot of the, I guess, the big year that PO broke out. Yeah, as an anti. Pyroblast, anti null rod, you know, source of card yep. advantage and also source of win condition. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and I think Urza Saga fills that niche, which we're going to get to at the end of this review quite well. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if any deck in vintage has legs. I think there are cycles, right? Where things surge and then recede. Um, we've seen them in almost all of our annual year in review episodes where it's like wow yeah. in this month in february look at that surge and then it's gone two months later it's like 30 yep. percent of the top eights and then it's disappeared the next month <laughs> yep. um and then it comes back five months later this i mean obviously crock crock clan Cl- ironworks is not a vintage staple it's not breach it's not po it's not uh, dredge it's not shop aggro or shop prison it's not um doomsday it's not a perennial thing but you can't write it off as becoming one and it has existed in the past right i mean there have been decks built around this in the past i assume yeah i could it's go true. back and look at my <laughs> you know our our challenges let me see how many kci decks there were last year so in 2020 there were one what is the total number there were there was one kci deck in a top eight in 2020 um this year there have been geez none in top eight so far at least none that i've classified as being in top eight so far or among the deck lists that i have because there are some missing deck lists from the Wizards page, the Wizards um, official page, and I haven't pulled them off secondary sources. Right. Um, what about before? I don't have any record of a KCI deck from 2019, although, again, I could have had a different classification. 
TC Dex has a single KCI deck in their whole inventory in 2020, a mud list. That, that was, was a paper event. Oh, really? Yeah. So I have one in my 2020 database. I don't see any before that on MTGO. Yeah. Of course, I'm not sure I would have called it KCI, so uh, I'd have to scan further. But it, let's just assume that it doesn't really have a history in the last five years of vintage. Because my data right. goes to the power, the power, the vintage challenges started in 2017. The Power Nine challenges started in 2015. Yeah. So we're talking not even six full years. Um, this this was a big deck in modern, such that KCI is banned in modern, and it's the same engine basically, which is it's basically a scrap trawler deck, right? Like scrap trawler is the engine here. Stacking one artifact replaces with a cheaper one and allows you to gain card advantage as you generate mana. And all you have to do is have KCI and scrap trawler and then cast artifacts that cost more than zero because every, every iteration of that gets you some other artifact that costs less. And as long as a couple of them draw cards like chromatic sphere, I'm sorry, chromatic star and, or Ickerwell spring, as long as a few of your artifacts draw you cards, which is why this thought monitor fits so well, yeah. then you just play one, go down the chain, generate a bunch of mana, draw one card. Play that, yep. go down the chain, generate a bunch of mana, draw your chromatic star again. As soon as you get up to casting artifacts that cost two or more, then each one of them generates mana and draws and a card draws because a it card. gets a chromatic star back. And then back. You've, yeah. you've hit your critical mass. So, exactly. so Justin won the Vintage Challenge on September 12th, 2020. With KCI and clearly feels that it's in a better position today. I, I can't argue with him. I mean, I did face it one time. In fact, I think I played him. And let me look at my log and I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> um, I think what, I, I won game one and lost games two and three with Dredge. Uh, okay. I played against, um, yeah, I mean, actually, I did, it was, it was against a guy named Einstein9988. And I don't have any notes on it. I just, I went one and two against it with Dredge. So maybe it's, you know, it's just because the problem with playing against KCI is that you can wipe its hand. You can even force a vigor its board. It still will just hang on. And if you're only doing, I don't know, six, seven, eight damage a turn, let's say you have two turns to win. It's two, it's two, it's one turn too, it's two turns too long. <laughs> you know, it can just combo out that quick. So, yeah. um, yeah, I think it does have a nice combo element that is a little bit faster than dredge. So I, I don't know. You're asking a question. Is that it really if the, you know, a permanent archetype in the format? I don't know. I think enough people are pl- like 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 enjoy playing it and have watched Justin play it that there are going to be some followers, some mimickers. Is it enough yeah. for this to be a staple? Your guess is as good as mine, Kevin. Maybe better. At this point, there are enough bombastic uh, workshop type cards that you can just piece together wins from uh, components that might not otherwise be synergistic. By that, I mean. You fan open any seven cards from a deck that features Time Vault and Trinisphere and Tinker and yeah. Mystic Forge, yeah. right? You're going to win like, games. 
and, and Karn the great creator, like, yeah, you're just gonna you're just gonna win some games because you're playing with with super powerful cards. Add to that the redundancy of things that draw cards between the stars and the wellsprings and now these thought monitors, and you got you got a little bit of consistency too. Yeah. So it, it just feels like, yeah, this is kind of a this is kind of the sort of deck you can piece together if you have the kind of homogeneity plus spikes in power and yeah you've got a so, you've got a reasonable deck at the same time it feels like it doesn't have the flexibility or the consistent power to be a consistent player i think throughout the metagame i think you're right and i think what you really are getting at although you're not stating sitting explicitly is that once players are familiar with it will they be able will it be able to adapt to their countermeasures right it's yeah i think that's really what you're getting at is that once players like when I first when I played against it, I lost because I didn't really know what it was doing. I completely stripped out its hand, and I didn't know what mattered. I didn't know what does wasteland matter? Does force of vigor matter? Does force of will matter? Like I, yeah. I think in one of the games I lost, it like I stripped its hand. It top decked or, or chained enough chromatic stars into a Karn, and then Mycosynth latticed me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, so I think as players, I think the question is, as players learn its kind of weak points and then get better at playing against it, and then also, can it counter-adapt to that? And my guess is it's probably not good enough to do that, but who knows? I, I do feel like the deck is a little bit narrow in its in its breadth of options, even though Urza's Saga is providing a, a fair diversity of, of uh, options here. And we'll talk about that, yes. how that is in a second. Yes. Yeah. So I feel like I'm going to have to be convinced through some more consistent performances that this deck is going to be a, a player in the format. Yeah. Okay. And and the the history of KCI and Thoughtcast decks are are bringing that position to to bear for me. So I guess what I would say is Thought Monitor is a is a playable card. It could put up a couple of top eights. I don't expect it to be consistent though. And so if it's a non-zero number, it's going to be a, a fairly low one. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm inclined to say two or three at this point. Well, I think it's a popular deck right now. And I think we're going to see a smattering of top eights with it. So I will say, I'll say, I'll take, well, I'll take the over on, you say, what are you going to say, two or three? I'll go, I'm going to say two. I'll go five. Okay, fair enough. Three months is enough time. For there to be five. So, Steve, since we we're talking about cavern decks, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about Esper Sentinel. I think this card is really cool. Uh, it costs W. It's an artifact creature, human soldier. It's a one-one. It says whenever an opponent casts their first non-creature spell each turn, draw a card unless they pay X, where X is Esper Sentinel's power. This card's been humorously referred to as Ristic Buddy. Uh, which I love in the <laughs> love that. in the commander circles. Yeah, so this is like a Ristic study effect, but it only triggers once per turn, which is a, a fairly big disappointment. But for that, you're getting yeah. a, a beatdown creature for one mana and it coming out way faster than any Ristic study ever would. And this, that compares that draws the comparison in my mind to um, Mystic Remora. Obviously, yeah. Remora has a lot of advantages because it triggers a lot of every spell, and the cost is steeper. But you're never going to kill anybody with a Mystic Remora, <laughs> so yeah. I, so I, I I can't shake the notion that the fact that this is a non-legendary artifact creature for one mana 
that could, over the course of a game, draw you multiple cards, it seems like it's got to be worth yeah. considering. Yeah, and you could put a skull clamp on it when you're done with it and draw more cards. That's right. You can bounce it with a PO if you want. I mean, look at how look at how disruptive this would be if you're playing PO against any kind of control deck. You just go so, land mox this or just land, you know, fetch a tundra, play this, go. How are you going to keep up resource-wise? You you know, this card is far more impressive I think than the surveil card you had us discuss earlier. Yeah. Um the first thing you've got to you've got to respect the power of this once it's on the board. Yep. You just have to account for it in a way that you don't necessarily have to count for the surveil creature. Um, the f- the second thing is that you need to have a critical mass of creatures to really make this worthwhile. So I don't think this is going to go into a PO deck because they don't have enough creatures. It would be quite interesting in something like a a, a suicide virus deck. Oh yeah. That has a lot of creatures or or like a KCI deck. Help, help me understand. Why do you say that you need a critical mass of creatures? Well, you want to be able to trigger this every turn. This this is your opponent, though. I mean, this I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I I knew I knew that. Yeah. Um, this could be the only creature you have in your deck. Yeah, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Whenever they cast a spell, so yeah, your your opponent definitely has to respect this. They're gonna. It's it's a very it's just a taxing effect. I think right. Yeah, but of a different style, right? I mean, the the taxing effects that see play in Vintage these days are not the sort that generate you card advantage, right? That is to say, Thalia and Mystic Remora never overlap in Vintage, right? Your deck is trying (laughs) to do one or the other. So build me a deck around this. You said just slip it in PO? Well, I'm just thinking the the PO versus control matchup is not a highly relevant example. I'm thinking from years past right now. But, jeez, imagine, I know, we're going back to ThoughtCast. Imagine the ThoughtCast Mentor deck that we played at Champs. I think this card would have been the awesome in that deck. It would have been hard to cast this because we didn't have a ton of white. Yeah, we, st- we but, still had turn one Fetch a Tundra, though, if, at our disposal. Yeah. Well, yeah. Your point is well made, though. That deck was low on white. I, I think that the, the homes for this are slight in Vintage. I really do. I just can't shake the notion that a deck that's trying to beat down but also gain some advantage. Like, um, the way that the Dredge versus White Eldrazi match plays out, you've played it a number of times from the Dredge perspective. Can you imagine the way this would impact that matchup from your side? Meaning they have some disruptive answers against you, but they also just get to deploy one of these on turn one? Now picture the way that that piles up in terms of advantage for them over the game. Go ahead. I'm not sure what the go-to answers for Dredge in White Eldrazi are today, right? But I would expect it's some combination of Cage and Crypt and Leyline and obviously Wastelands. And, and, and you don't have to list all the spheres yeah. and such. So, but some combination of containment priest. I I see some lists with rest in peace. Like they're going to try to 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 pass turn one against you, and then start deploying hate cards every turn until the game ends. <laughs> Basically, that's their strategy against you. They're they're going to try. They're trying to play one on turn one. Obviously, they're going to mulligan aggressively. But if that one doesn't stick, then they're going to play another one on turn two and another one on turn three until something works. And you can't, you can't get out of the lock, right? That is inherently a, an attrition battle, right? That's, that's the, 
that's the approach they're bringing to that matchup. And I feel like this card feeds that kind of attrition battle quite well. And similar against, you know, combo decks. Like, their approach to beating Breach is, I want to play a two-mana spell on turn one that disrupts you. And I want to play a two- or three-mana spell on turn two that disrupts you. And it just feels like filling your hand as you, while your opponent's trying to wrestle out of the, the lock components is just ideal. Well, one of the reasons that Days ha- has become so widely played is because there are decks that just can't pay Days. Yeah, yeah. Good example. I think this feeds on that same phenomenon. And, oh, by the way, it's beating down at the same time. Now, granted, it's it's a little slow, but every little bit helps. When you've got a deck with Thalia's and Thalia's, and then your top end is Eldrazi, or, you know, the Archon of Emeria, the three damage that this thing chips in over the course of the early part of the game is going to matter. So what do you think? I, I just think that I'm not an expert enough in those white Eldrazi type lists, but I feel like this is synergistic with what that deck's trying to do in a lot of matchups. And I think you're going to get good benefit and it feeds the attrition aspects of that deck over time. So I, I feel like it's worth considering. I, I'm not sure. I don't know what you cut from one of those decks for this. So I, my, my position is only theoretical at this time, I think. But you know, any deck that feels like it's going to play Luminarch Aspirant in Vintage has got to have a home for this card instead, right? Luminarch Aspirant is such a low-power vintage card, and yet people are playing it. This card's way better than that. (laughs) Oh, oh, and oh, by the way, if you still think Luminarch Aspirant's a good card, this card plays well with it, too, because anything that increases its power makes it more powerful. I think Luminarch Aspirant, having played against that deck, is is much more like Steel Overseer. Um, Yeah, okay. It's actually quite menacing, because it can distribute the power in any way it wants, but... Maybe you're right. I always thought Luminarch Aspirant just wasn't a vintage card. Yes, I understand. <laughs> you can win some games of vintage and have it in play, but I don't think that's a vintage card. I think this is a vintage card more than Aspirant is. The other thing that I found about the Aspirant is that it can actually trump um, Hollow One. Sure, sure. You can lock down the graveyard. I can see why it that It grows might be. larger than Hollow Ones. Yeah. But, you know, on the flip side, I if I've got this Esper Sentinel instead of that Aspirant in that same matchup, well then I'll just trade with the Hollow One and I'm going to draw another card every time you try to interact with me at least with your non-creatures of course but um, yeah, I just feel like the advantage is going to pile up as you're trying to fight through my my hate cards well, at any rate, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, I mean I don't think this is a breakout card of this set by any stretch, I just feel like it's a non-zero and we're going to see it in a couple of places so I'm going to say, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to say two. Uh, this is okay. my Sanctifier in Vec. <laughs> uh, I'll go zero then, but I would not be surprised. I mean, I, I do think this is a respectable creature, and your opponents really do have to respect this. And there are reasons to think that this could generate some serious card advantage in the format. I mean, even over a four or five turn game, that's four or five cards, right? Yeah. So And it, it could trigger each turn cycle, too. I mean, twice a turn cycle, your turn and theirs. If they're force of willing you and force of vigoring you and such. If this triggers off Moxen, right? You just go planes this go and they go land Mox. You draw a card. Unless they want to put a mana into it, but then that's feeding your primary strategy, you know? Yep. Yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think it's amazing, but I think it fits right in that deck and what that deck's trying to do. 
All right, Steve. Well, we've had a couple of whimpers here near the end, but we are definitely going to end with a bang. I know you're excited to talk about one Urza's Saga. This is a brand new collection of things. (laughs) It is an Enchantment Land (laughs) dash Urza's Saga. And as a saga, it has three chapters. Chapter one, Urza's Saga gains tap to add colorless. That is to say, the turn you play it, there's going to be a trigger on the stack, and then it's going to be a colorless producing land. Chapter two, Urza Saga gains two generic tap colon create a zero zero colorless construct artifact creature token with this gets plus one plus one for each artifact you control. Two mana, make a construct. This the same kind that Urza has created before and that we've seen in a number of other ways. <laughs> and then chapter three is search your library for an artifact card with mana cost zero or one, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle. Worth noting that that chapter three, when it triggers, when that trigger's done resolving, you will be sacrificing her as a saga. So you don't keep this land in perpetuity. It gets sacrificed like all the other sagas do at the end of their last chapter. This is a pretty unique and powerful card, Steve. And uh, we've already seen applications for it, obviously. So... I'm just fascinated to see what this card's fate is like in Vintage going forward. (laughs) What do you think? Well, I think the card is busted. Um, I don't know if I'm excited to review it so much as, like, uh, fascinated. (laughs) (laughs) Let, Let me say a couple of things. So first of all, you know, having a week behind us of, uh, experience with this card, it's, I think, by far, right now, the most played card in from Modern Horizons. Um, which is perhaps surprising, given how deep and, and wide this set runs. Yeah. Um, the most obvious point of comparison... So, so let me just point out one specific thing. So you have pointed out that it's an enchantment land, so it can be disenchanted, right? And it also sacrifices itself. That's right. Um, but here's the trick with it. <laughs> with the with on your third turn after it's been in play, yep. when it the the trigger for the third chapter happens, you can tap it in response. Exactly. Which means that you can get both ability you can basically get that second ability twice. Yep. You can make a construct on turn two and a construct on turn three. And And then simultaneously Then you get the tutor, yeah. Yes. So it's the it's the Mog Fanatic problem here. <laughs> it's the, which makes it, it looks innocuous, but it's actually busted because you get two constructs and you get to search for a Black Lotus or a Soul Ring or whatever you want, right? A Sensei's Divining Top, which makes it totally busted. Yeah. This is like, this is like a Mishra's Factory on steroids. <laughs> Whereas Mishra's Factory was, you know, in old school, it's just by far the best card, unrestricted card you can play in, in 93, 94 Magic. Yeah. Because Mishra's Factory has a rules quirk that does not, that it works in a ways that you no longer, because you can stack, uh, it, you can, you can block and then it can pump itself, which is something it could not do back in 1994. Right. Because, you know, so it's inherently a more powerful card now than it was then. Far more powerful. Yeah, far more powerful. It's a set, functionally a three-three on defense. Yep. In a format where, like you know, 
you have a lot of Savannah Lion type nonsense. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, which means which means that a Mishra's factory can trade with a juggernaut, which it could not do in 1994. Right. You know, I mean, at least a single factory could <laughs> do that. <laughs> right, right, right. This card feels like the 2021 version of Mishra's factory. <laughs> It just feels like it's going to be ubiquitous because it can fit into almost anything. It can go to PO, which has it can go to workshops. It can go into all kinds of decks. Um, it's a it's a mana on turn one, right? So you can spin a top. You can yep. play it, cast a tinker. You can, uh, you know, whatever you need to do, you can do. Um, but then where it gets really nasty is you get two of these colorless constructs. And then essentially the constructs are by default, by the end of the third chapter, by the third chapter default, they're going to be three threes, which is six power. And in actual practice, they're going to be much larger. That's right. And their, their median size is probably going to be five and six. Yeah. It, which just is median, which is a single land that gives you essentially 10 to 11 power. Yeah. It's absurd. And, and then you play multiple versions of these. And the, I mean, the third, give me a break. It's worth noting too that the third chapter is structured in a way that I would not have expected. It's not a. It's not it's a, a mistake. It's not a trinket mage, <laughs> right? Trinket mage has yeah. this effect yeah. much like this, except this it goes says into your hand, right? This says put it onto the battlefield, which means you've got an uncounterable uh, voltaic key if you want Whatever it. Whatever the hell you want, pithy needle, yeah. voltaic key, <laughs> uncounterable black lotus. <laughs> yeah. Now, granted, you've got to wait, you get so you got to structure a your chalice. Yeah, that's right. Goes goes through a chalice. That's a good point. Yeah, it's amazing. Goes through hell. It goes through a trinosphere. Yeah, true. Um, this card is just silly. It's just silly. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. Putting it directly into play. I, give me a break. I think there was a serious mistake. I think they. I think they should have had a. I think the big mistake was the ability to stack the second ability with the third trigger on the stack that should they should have made the chapters such that you couldn't do that because it's clearly not the like it's clearly not the intent design intent these are supposed to be sequential chapters that's right you know what this is like in a book it's like a book that says reread chapter two. Oh, by the way you can read chapter two a second time and chapter three simultaneously <laughs> <laughs> yeah they, they probably should have made the ability to create the construct a trigger tied to chapter two only yes. meaning not granting yes. the ability to make it but you can pay that, you can pay one mana at, at chapter two if you pay, do yeah that would have i think mostly fixed this um that's one fix and, and also you know, there's the other chapter ways. three card should go into your hand not into play agreed yeah. there as well although this does make it a very useful anti-shop play right because now i can put a mana crypt I don't care if you have all these damn Thalias or tr- Trinisphere in play. I'm going to play this and just put a Mana Crypt into play. And there's nothing you can do about it except Wastelanding this before that happens. Yep. So, uh, this card is bananas. <laughs> it, re- it really is. It's just, the only open question is just how many decks are going to play with this. Yeah. Now, we can rule out Dredge and, we can rule out the Bizarre decks, I think. I think. <laughs> I can come, to, because you can't really get the second ability out of it. But this is clearly going to go in any PO deck going forward. Why would you not play this in a PO deck? Right. It'd be ridiculous. Right. You get you get a top into play on the third chapter. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, you have an alternative route to win winning here. Um, 
clearly going to go in like the KCI decks, clearly going to go in a lot of shop decks, I think. Yeah. Shop aggro. Why would shop aggro not use this? Right. Um, I would play this over factories in the shop aggro deck. Do shop aggro use factories? Maybe some do. But I, yeah, they do. The one advantage of factory is, is of course, with Ravager. Um, oh, That's and not, Golos can this, find this This is too. better than factory with Ravager. Oh, you mean moving the modular... Co- I don't know. This, yes. this eats factory as lunch every day because you still get the yeah. creature to put either on Ravager or the other way around, and this I produces know. two artifacts. Also, you can find this with Golos. Actually, this produces so, three artifacts. It, it produces three artifacts. You know, Good two, assuming you can activate both <sighs> chapter twos. That's a, this that's... is, I mean, obviously with Golos, you're going to find that this is a win condition with Golos too. So you, you can, you just need one for the Golos deck and you can find this. Yeah. Um, and then with Chal- with Crucible, you can recur it over and over again. Oh, good so, gravy. It's, it's just silly. Yeah. So this, this definitely goes in all of those CS style Crucible Dark Depths decks too. Right? Yes. Oh. It goes into anything with Golos. It goes into anything with PO. Automatically. Those two decks are automatic included. It feels like it goes in almost every workshop archetype. Maybe the only deck that might not want this is two-card Monty. But even then, this is a good backup. No, wait a Why second. We- two-card plays this. Of course. Yeah. Oh, jeez. They have Golos. So. Yeah. At least one copy then. Yeah. The synergy here with um, Time Vault is unparalleled too oh. like just the uncounterable yeah. uh manifold key, key, manifold key. key yeah 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 so if you if your opponent goes l- this and a mox and a time vault this, you you have you're on notice <laughs> right this also just very much eats uh uh bugs lunch because this is it's very difficult from an attrition standpoint for a bug to fight this yes. you, you have to wasteland yes. this on site I, you have to wasteland on site, and then you're basically dealing with these constructs against Tarmogoyfs. Yeah. Um, Although, which, I, I would posit that Energy Flux becomes a decent answer to this. A, a solution to that it's true. from a strategic standpoint. Yeah. So, that's one mark in Bug's favor. But your, your point is well made. As an attrition card goes, as a, as a qu- card quantity and, and material standpoint goes... That's basically how Bug tries to fight those kind of decks, and this is a big mark against that strategy. Oh, wow. Yeah, this card is this card is pushed in ways that I find unsatisfying. <laughs> well, I, I as I said, I, it, to me it's totally fascinating because it really does ramp up the clock in vintage. Yeah. This is this is really a 2021 appropriate like factory. It's just pushed so fast. Yeah. Which I think it means it's going to push the clock up in vintage, which I I actually don't mind. <laughs> uh, I, um I want to say something holistic about this set. So I I find this entire set to be fascinating. I'm really <laughs> excited to see what it can do and I I actually am glad that we have something insane like clearly broken and problematic like like the Urza's land. Yeah. Because it creates some interesting dynamics. But I think one thing that is evident to me is that Vintage is in a very different space than it was five, six years ago. Where it was kind of stuck between the Turbo Xerox and Shops and the Taxing Decks, right? And I enjoy, I'm really enjoying, I I was basically a five-month hiatus from Vintage from 
January to to June, mm-hmm. where I hadn't played any Magic on Magic Online. I had still been playing old school. But one of the things that I've had time to reflect on, Kevin, is that to me, you know, I wrote that article a year ago about vintage formats, and we discussed it in our 100th episode. Oh, yeah. But one thing I don't think I articulated much then, but has occurred to me with shocking clarity now, is that to me, one of the criterion for the most interesting vintage formats is when you are doing things in vintage that can't be done anywhere else, that make it truly distinctive. And I think one of the things that has dismayed me (laughs) about some versions, some recent iterations of vintage, is that it, it's done a poor job of... It's been a souped-up version of Legacy at times. You know, with the various Deathrite and Delver decks, type decks, and Xerox decks. And I think Vintage is more exciting and more, enervi- more energizing when it is distinctive to itself, right? Like one of my yeah. favorite formats, which we mentioned, is when... One of my favorite formats historically is when you played Mana Drain decks, Mask decks, uh, Bizarre decks, and Workshop decks. You know, the Orgorger deck, the Shop, the Stacks deck. That was one of my favorite vintage formats, if not one of my, I think, can't remember was in my, where it was in my top five. But it was because it was so different than anything else anywhere in Magic. And now there's such a proliferation of constructed formats between EDH, modern, historic, legacy, vintage, standard that I, I particularly enjoy when iterations of vintage are in, essentially unique in the in the kind of pantheon of constructed play. And I feel like the Breach, Doomsday, Shops, Bizarre, Metagame really scratches that itch for me. Mm-hmm. It's very distinctive. I can see um, the, I can see the allure of that. That's pretty cool. The other the the second thing I just wanted to point out that and I by the way, I think that Modern Horizons both the first version and the second version, amps up that feeling in vintage. <laughs> it moves vintage into a feeling of being more vintagey. Yeah. Which I real which is one reason I love these sets. But there's some one other th- insight that I had that I wanted to share um related to what I enjoy about vintage. One of the problems with um old school as a set of formats is that Oftentimes, the plays that you make are not clearly connected. Hold on. Can can you turn on your camera, Kevin? I can't even see you. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize it was off. There yeah. we go. Let me, let me back up on my second point. So uh, the second point is, Kevin, that I, I think one of the features of a good vintage format is there exists a set of decks that require the ha- that in- that in- include levels of mastery huh. where over time you feel like there's not a ceiling you're still always learning and getting better and you never reach a point where you feel like you like have mastered every nook and crevice you know you f- like i think that ability was one of the allures of the deck and that was the ingenious of the deck is that that Brian Weissman wanted to create a deck where there was no ceiling on play capacity and skill okay and I, th- I want to relate that to another point, which is that in old school, one of the flaws of old school as a set of formats is that the proximity between play and outcome 
is extremely attenuated in many cases. So you make a turn two play, and then the game proceeds to turn 12. It's hard to tie a decision made on turn two or three to the outcome, ultimate outcome of the game. Uh-huh. Because old school decks and games are so nonlinear in that respect, right? It's sort of like an agglomeration of, of forces rather than this decision led to this decision led to this decision led to this decision, which is what I think a lot of linear vintage has, has been in its best forms this century. You know, it's like, I brainstormed into this, which led to this, which led to merchant scrolling, into gifts, into this. You know what I mean? Very linear. <laughs> yeah. You know? Or thirst into thirst into tinker. You know what I mean? I, I, my feeling has always been that the attenuation of play from outcome means that it's hard to it's hard to reckon the accountability of a decision to the outcome in a way that allows us... It's not that you can't ultimately tie a decision to outcome, mm-hmm. but the visibility of it, the evident of it, evidence, the the obviousness of it yeah. is is very remote. And so I like formats that have high stakes decision making, where your decisions matter, where the decisions trees are complex, there's a lot of complexity, and where there's accountability, meaning there's a clear tie between the decisions you made and the outcome. And you and you can know it's knowable. There's a knowability to it, <laughs> right? Do you see what I'm getting at? That I sometimes you make do. a decision. And, and so one of the problems is, like, when you come to a fork in a decision in old school, you can't really, there's a fundamental unknowability to whether the other decision would have yielded a different kind of outcome. Whereas in vintage, you're able to tie the outcome back to the decision tree in a more clear way, in a more evident and obvious way. And so I think that's a, an advantage of vintage. And I, I think the, the, the versions of vintage that meet those three or four criteria, that have high-stakes decision-making, where there's a lot of complexity, a lot of decks with super high ceilings in terms of skill ability, where dis, there's lots of decision-making, and where the, it's, it's possible to tie outcomes to decisions made, or it, rather than making it like endlessly ambiguous and epistemologically impossible to... <laughs> to see the relationship between the outcome and and the decisions those are the best for versions of vintage and i feel like we're in we're back in one of those and i think modern horizons has helped bring that into play again i do think there's you know there's a the skill level in vintage is just enormous right now to just to, the baseline to enter the format at a competitive level it may be that the cognitive capacities just to play a basic vintage deck at the at a competent level, have never been higher. Interesting. The re- requisites have never been higher. Because there's so much complexity. I mean, from Doomsday to Breach to these bizarre decks, you know, to the shop sequencing, it's just none of it is rote. It's depending on the set of factors that you're con- interacting with. Certainly for Bug, it's not either, right? The set of factors you're contending with have multiple decision points at every point. Yeah. And I, I just think that's such a, a credit to this version of Vintage, and it's a thrill to play. And I know that some people, the downside to those the versions of Vintage I sometimes like are that it can feel like you're just being overpowered. But as long as that power level is a function, the geyser of power that, that's, that's flowing on top of you is a function of the 
decisions that your opponent's making. And if they're making the wrong decisions, and there's a, a huge complexity to the tree, and the wrong decisions will lead them to loss losses, I think it's an acceptable trade-off. I think Doomsday is sort of an epitome of that. So I'm loving I'm loving what Vintage is on offer right now. And I don't always love every one of these version, <laughs> versions of Vintage, but I think this this one's a particularly fun one to 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 noodle around with. Yeah, just wanted to say that's that. that's pretty invigorating to hear. And uh, while I don't have necessarily the same uh, quite as sculpted an opinion of the matter as you do, I definitely see the allure of what you're talking about. I believe that I have heard a number of people over the years express sometimes the opposite opinion of yours which i find interesting i i I know i have heard of situations where people have said i think i lost that game because i played this land on turn one instead of that land but it's really (laughs) hard to tell i feel like that's the other end of the extreme where there's some there's some satisfaction to be found in the the deep complexity and i guess the unknowability as you said of of game states and, and how they've progressed over time I think some people are drawn to the other end of the extreme, but but either way, the way that you and I tease out um, games of magic and and structure them, break them down into hierarchies and and progressions and strategies and tactics, I, I probably lean towards you a little bit more. You know, I I want to be able to trace back, and I want yes, to be able traceability. to yeah to to point to and restructure and reconsider and discuss and break down over time. But but reach a satisfying conclusion, <laughs> and well, so for well, that reason, I probably I think I'm probably in your camp, even though I haven't considered it to the same degree you have. I appreciate you drawing the counterpoint out. I think one of the kind of objective features of great games is replayability. Whether it's a video game, a board game, a card game, right? Games that have the exact same experience over and over again are just not fun because they don't challenge us intellectually. Mm-hmm. And part of why I like the idea of tracing outcomes to decisions as a feature of good formats, and and that's sort of what makes me dislike a lot of some aspects of old school, but also legacy. Like if you watch legacy play patterns with Delver mirrors or whatever, it just feels so not only repetitive, but impossible to see where there can be genius. (laughs) It's like turn one Delver, days, stifle your fetch, Wasteland your fetch, bolt your thing. But, you know, it's just like, it just feels like seven cards coming up against seven cards rather than a mind at work pushing the thing into a direction where, you know, maybe there is like a subtle genius at one small point, but it's it's not a full blossoming of genius, an expression <laughs> of, you know, where where a mind behind a powerful vintage deck like a Doomsday deck, a master of that when they play it and they skirt scenarios that they should be probabilistically losing is, I think, an expression of brilliance. It's like watching a, you know, a concert pianist behind a grand piano. <laughs> and just, you know what I mean? It's not just rote. It's, it's beautiful and elegant and amazing to watch. And I, I don't know. I feel like vintage allow, creates the possibilities for that kinds of genius that I, I think other, other formats do not allow. Now, I think the downside to it is that there are games that are too hard to play that require such a, a baseline level of minimal intelligence that most people just can't engage. And Vintage, I think, is clearly past that point. I mean, you're talking... I mean, it's just impossible for me to imagine how 
someone who's new to magic could pick up vintage, you know, quickly. You know, in a, like just learning the rudiments of the game is just impossible to be, even become close to competent in vintage, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just, I mean, the Modern Horizons is a set. You mentioned it's like 50 mechanics. Yeah. You know, it's just absurd the amount of baseline knowledge you have to have. And the complexity in every, we talked, we started the, the podcast talking about grief and how those trade-offs. I think those kinds of thing, decisions, I don't know. I want a format. And it, to me, it's okay if there are fewer people able to play it, if it can demonstrate brilliance and where there's the decks have ceilings that are so high they can almost never be met. Yeah. Where you can spend your life mastering a deck, where you can write a book on a card. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the four. That's what I find appealing out of vintage. I feel like vintage offers that now. Well, I'm glad to hear that you are getting that from the format, that you are seeing that beauty and brilliance in it, and that it's satisfying to you. I, I share a lot of what you said, of course. I don't think I need to repeat it. That's that's really nice that you feel that way. Let's hope I feel that way you know, six months from now. <laughs> <laughs> well, these, as you said, these things wax and wane. These Each format has its own characteristics, its own character, and... I, this is an exciting time, right? It's been a long time since we predicted this much play of any you yeah. know, subset of cards from a new Magic set. I was just... Wait, did we actually give numbers for Urza Saga? Did we forget to do that? Uh, not yet. We have not given numbers for Urza okay. Saga, but it's going to be the last cut on our list today. And and once we do, we will have predicted play for, I think, 10 cards in this set. One, two, three, <laughs> four, uh, five, six, seven... Eight, nine, ten, eleven. It'll be the eleventh card that we've predicted non-zero play for in this set, which is way above the norm, though not unsurprising necessarily. Or not surprising necessarily for a Modern Horizons set. All right. So anyway, you you said something before you went on your philosophical discussion there about how Urza Saga could appear in and probably will appear in many different archetypes, PO shops. All, all kinds of shop variants, the KCI yeah. kind of decks. And we talked a little bit about uh, Golos and uh, and two-card Monty. Two-card Monty. Yeah. I, I, I agree with all of that. Uh, it appears that Urza Saga is going to push a couple of archetypes, temporarily at least, you know, PO variants and this affinity list that Justin's championing. And, and it appears that Golos is a natural home for it. And any workshop aggro worth its salt that shows up is probably going to have it. So it feels like it's just a cross archetype all star that is going to lead to using the metrics we've used before. I would argue two to four appearances per top eight probably for a while. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Could wax and wane a bit, but it could. Yeah, he could have even that's... just passing appearances in things like Golos as a one of. I mean, that's going to really pad the numbers. Those, those, that's a huge number. That's a huge yeah. number, right? Wow. A fifty percent saturation of top eights is what? That's um, eighteen times four, right? That's sixty-four. Yeah. Did I do my math right? I'm not saying that's the baseline, but I, I think that's one possible universe shows sixty-four appearances. Jesus, between, you know, in three months. 
and it's it's I know it's popular with players because it showed up already in the first few challenges and people are talking about it. Justin's super excited about it, obviously, and he's probably going to work it into half a dozen different decks before he's done. And he's not alone. I, wow. Yeah, I, I feel like this card is a is the fun combination of the intersection of power, but also uniqueness and interest on the part of players, and that is a recipe for a lot of appearances, right? Yeah, I think it'd be irresponsible to go any less than thirty on this card. I agree, and and my instincts put it closer to the to the fifty range. You go first. I think with such a high number, it's it's real hard to pin it down. But so two per top eight feels like the floor to me. Two per top eight is yeah. 36, right? Yeah. Three per top eight gets you up to 60. No, not 60. Yeah, it does get you up to 60. I was wrong about my four number. It's not 64. It's it's 84, isn't it? Yeah. Sorry, I'm doing my math badly. Um, uh, this is just going to be a massive, a massive. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna go 50, which feels like a low okay. number. Feels like a safe number. But God, I'm not gonna be surprised if it's not much more. So, I think I think it's going to be slightly over 50. I think that's a very good number, though. I think it's going to be closer to 60. Mm-hmm. I think it's going... I'm going to go... Let me see. Uh, actually, I think it's going to... I'm going to say 54. Okay. This is going to be an incredibly fun set to do the report card on. I mean, we're going to have so many different variants and placements of these cards we're going to be my guess is we're going to be really close on most of these and then we're going to be wildly off on one or two (laughs) it's just the way these kind of things go there's so much there's there's so much interaction between these cards we spent a whole bunch of times trying to tease out how grief and fury would interact from an archetype standpoint and how that and how that interacted with blazing root walla and then master of death i mean this this set is another just abundant harvest for uh bizarre decks and we didn't even review Abundant Harvest. <laughs> so I would like to thank our audience for, especially on Twitter, for listing off a number of other cards that we're not going to review. There's a number of other things we could say about the likes of Gaia's Will and Brainstone and Magus of the Bridge. In short, there's a lot of niche role-playing cards here that, yeah, may- maybe there's a place for a one-off here or there, but... In the interest of time and having a four and a half hour show, we're gonna we're gonna cut it off here and acknowledge that hey, there might be one or two of these other fun cards that does show up, and we'll talk about why that is in the future. That brings us to the end of our amalgamated episode one hundred and one of so many insane plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other Magic players can find our show. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.